everyone, and welcome to Between the Sheets, episode number 354. I'm your host, Chris Zoner, joined as always by my co-host, David Bix and Span and Bix. We got quite the show this week as we go to one of the wildest years in wrestling history, and we uh, have a special guest with us this week, a first-time guest. Yes, and I think for the first time also on uh, the main show, I think I'm going to have to regale everyone with the story of ECW Management Group in detail. <laughs> yes, yes, a lovely story that uh, came out of our Patreon series on ECW from this time period. And, uh, boy, we all learned something on that on that night, didn't we, when we recorded that? So that was a, a one of the wild, crazy nights we recorded, absolutely. But anyway... We are joined by a special guest, someone that's actually in the business at the current time, which is always a treat to have have that on the show. But not just an active wrestler, also a prominent podcast personality. Um, you've seen her on uh, Beyond Wrestling and our friends at AAW and AEW. Uh, she's competing on AEW Dark and She's right now recovering from an injury, but she'll be back soon. And in the process of that, she's also with my good friend Kevin McAvaney on Pro Wrestling Indie Strated on the, on, the, on that podcast. So we're delighted to have with us on this week, Kaya McKenna. Kaya, welcome to the show. Thank you guys so much for having me this evening. I can't wait to sit around and just talk about some wrestling. It's one of my favorite things. Oh, oh yes, yes, yes. And uh, I know you and Bix have uh, talked a lot in person. In, in the recent times here at shows and uh yeah it's great to have you on the show finally so uh, yeah it should be a hell of a show this week yeah i'm always excited when i can find other people to just like chew the fat about wrestling with because <laughs> you know there are a lot of people in wrestling who don't consume it to the extent which i do and i've had to kind of learn that <laughs> it's okay that if not everybody like is super interested in like obscure wrestling or knows specific weird random things like that's been a big learning curve for me so whenever i find other people that are like as interested in like the meat and potatoes of wrestling as me it's always always a good time well you know i mean it was what's been cool in, in recent years is the amount of women that's been getting into wrestling and that hardcore nature you know normally you know over, over, over all these years you know women would be into wwe or you know, WCW back then or TNA or whatever, but to get into the deep roots of wrestling, you know, indie, indie wrestling, Japanese wrestling, you know, Lucha, stuff like that. I mean, it, it has been great to watch, watch that evolution, you know, in, 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 with, the, with, the, with the women fans. I think that, um, honestly, at least what it seems for like the, the current generation of women wrestlers is a huge entry point for a good chunk of them, believe it or not, was Total Divas. Like, and I know that not everybody's into Total Divas, and like, especially like the hardcore wrestling people are like, ah, Total Divas, ah. <laughs> but it did. It it put wrestling in the mainstream in front of women who had never seen wrestling or bothered to watch wrestling before. Right? It was an excellent entry point for people as fans. And it was just enough where it wasn't overwhelming to them. Like they got their their divas, their drama, and they got a little bit of the in-ring, but it was all very like digestible and easy for them to latch on to. So I, I really do think that Total Divas was a huge entry point for a lot of women in the business nowadays. And that's all you need is that entry point, because once you're in, then you can start to delve deeper and find out more about wrestling that you like or wrestlers that you like. Um, 
I think that the availability of Joshi wrestling for for viewer consumption has been a big change as well. It's kind of encouraged more female competitors to dive deeper into other forms of women's wrestling that isn't just stateside. So there's all these things that are happening with um, content accessibility on top of the entry point that have made it made it cool. You know, it's like, oh, this is like a whole thing and it's cool to know a lot about it. And it's cool to be interested in what I'm doing. So I'm all for it. I think it's great. Um, I've just had to learn, like when you're trying to get people more interested in the nitty gritty of wrestling or like maybe a more obscure type of wrestling, like it's very easy to overwhelm people. So you have to like make it very digestible and Oh my God. Okay. So like I was calling a match one time with a girl and she's like, can you do this thing where I pick you up on my shoulder and then I just kind of like sit out and slam you. And I'm like, like an Emerald Flosion. And, <laughs> and she's like, yeah, I guess like that. And I was like, yeah, yeah, we can do that. And then I was like, but that's called this. And it, it was done by this very famous Japanese wrestler, Misawa. And he's really cool. And if you just get a few minutes on YouTube, just check them out and see what you think, you know, and not make it this big intimidating thing. I think sometimes when we're trying to educate people, we overwhelm them and it's important to keep it very small and digestible and make it feel like it's something they can actually learn about without feeling intimidated or like, Oh my God, I'm never going to know anything about it. So why bother? Well, so accessibility, accessibility is, is, is exactly right because, you know, we're covering 1999 and 1999 is, you know, Probably the first real big internet year for wrestling fans is when more and more people are getting online. And the fact is, it's still at that point in time, there's no way of really getting footage other than tape trading or recording it on your own. I mean, there, there are... Yeah, YouTube wasn't a thing until no, of course like 2006, not. right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> so you had like stuff that you could find on real video i mean for going way back but i mean it's just the accessibility made it hard for fans to to get into it like like you talking about getting into it and nowadays it is so easy for newer fans to find anything on their particular wrestlers they want to look out for i mean it's just an amazing time for new wrestling fans to be able to fall in love with it because I mean, it's, it's so much easier to do it. You have you rather put in the work and spend money back in the day to, to, you know, build up collections and get stuff from all over the place. So yeah, it's, it's much more easier now. And yeah, I mean, I think that's why we've seen a growth, especially in women and uh, as fans because of that. So hell yeah, I, I love it. It's awesome. All right. Well, let's get started. So this is going to be one of them weeks where we don't have the full week due to past shows, but we still have a, a six-day week as we go to May 11th through the 16th of 1999. And, you know, we talked about uh, here this past few minutes about all the things involving, you know, women wrestling fans and stuff like that. Well, let's go to a promotion. I always treated women well. Extreme Championship Wrestling. <laughs> It missed reports flying everywhere of the possible demise of the company and others who are talking that the company is a short period away from growing bigger than ever. The ECW Hardcore Heaven pay-per-view came off like a show that was a bridge for the company to something new. But when it was over, there were still no answers over whether what is new is good news or bad news. It's hardly a secret that ECW has played with financial problems. 
there are wrestlers owed large sums of money. Those close to the franchise, Shane Douglas, whose departure from the company, while expected, came out a day earlier than expected, resulting in him no showing the pay-per-view, is rumored to be owed in excess of $80,000. Some, report, some reports have that figure at 100000 The stories about the bounce checks are legit. There are some really strange stories about finances, including the often asked question of how the company met payroll and never seemed to have any problems when drawing a few hundred fans a show a few years back. But now it's bouncing checks left and right while drawing packed houses in admittedly small buildings and with merchandise way up. It's also no secret the ECW has been desperately trying to make deals that would save the company and that Paul Heyman, after giving many different stories early, has largely said that certain deals are imminent that would make the company bigger than ever. At press time, none of those deals have gone down, but some are expected to be finalized shortly. When the new fall television season is being finalized this month, it's assumed that any deal involving cable networks will either sink or swim over the next two weeks. The most talked about potential deals to garner a weekly one-hour time slot at 8 p.m. on the Nashville Network. Multi-channel news had reported that this would be announced at the pay-per-view, although Paul Heyman said that when that story broke, that wasn't the case. Nevertheless, crunch time on that television is now. Heyman also said the much-talked-about acclaimed video game deal should be finalized this week. All right, so Bix, we talked about all this um, on on our Patreon shows that we've done. Um, Dave brings up an interesting point when he talks about how in 98 that, you know, they – it didn't seem like the financial problems were – as bad as they are here that they were meeting payroll when they were just when they were drawing smaller houses and selling less merchandise and they were a year later do you think that that goes into the fact that their con- the contracts are bigger a year later or what do you what do you um what do you think about how this is playing out well are they running bigger buildings or the are the per show expenses up or is it still the for the most part outside of like a few of the biggest shows? Because yeah, I mean ninety eight is really the year where they start running bigger buildings more. So I don't see why there would be a big change from ninety eight to ninety nine in terms of that. Yeah, I'm looking. All right, so let's just say April. Hmm. They're running Rochester, Buffalo, twenty six hundred at Buffalo, Fort Lauderdale, Tampa, Kissimmee, New Britain, Connecticut. Savvy Arena, Woodbridge, New Jersey, Trenton, Russellpalooza, oh boy, Marietta, <laughs> Rochester again, Buffalo again, Queens, Elks Lodge, um, Hamburg, ECW Arena, Cleveland, they drew 2200 in Cleveland, Monaco, the Golden Dome, Ross Draver, Baton Rouge, New Orleans. So, I mean, that was 98. And then we look uh, a year later, Allentown, Edison, ECW Arena, Dayton, Pittsburgh at the Convention Center, Cleveland, the Agora Theater. So that that's a, a, a better venue than where they were running. Buffalo, they Buffalo, they're drawing thirteen hundred more fans than they were the previous year. Hmm. Staten Island, South Amboy, Delks Lodge, uh, Fort Lauderdale. Palmetto, Civic Center, Cocoa Beach, Kissimmee, York. It's on the same markets, he said, Arena. So outside uh, of Cleveland, really, it seems like they're running the same basic size of venues. Yeah, but they're drawing some, some bigger houses, like in Buffalo, yeah. than they have been. 
So, but yeah, there's not that well, big. Of interestingly a enough, interestingly enough, there are indies currently that are doing those draws. And when you consider ECW was a TV show, like in '99, it's the third promotion. Independent, yeah, there are independent promotions these days that regularly draw that amount of fans, which is crazy. In case you were wondering how exponentially wrestling has grown in the past twenty years. Absolutely, yeah. I mean, they're on television, syndicated nationwide. Um, They they're the third wrestling promotion. They've been spotlighted on. WF television. I mean, we're going to I mean, talk about a pay-per-view later where they have a dub- active WWF wrestler who they pretend is a former WWF wrestler. And, and, and they're on pay-per-view <laughs> on the big satellite and cable and everything. So, yeah, I mean, they are legit. Absolutely. But again, what is the difference? Why are they? Where is this money at, Bix? <laughs> What's going on here? Well, I guess now it's time to talk about ECW Management Group, isn't it? Yes. Okay. So the backstory here is to how we discovered this for those who have not listened to ECW on TNN Part 1, which you should, because I believe we also released it as a free sample full show um, a while back. Yes, so it's in the, if not in the feed, then on the website, which I know I still need to do the thing to make the feed have every episode again. But... um. <laughs> We're going through, like, this era, and we see this note in the, I think it was, I forget if it was the Observer or Torch, I'm guessing Torch, maybe, since it's ECW, that said something to the effect of that there haven't been issues with the checks bouncing ever since Eugene Sharkowski started being the one who was signing them. And I'm like, okay, who is this? Is this E, the accountant, or whatever? I Google his name. The first result... Turns out to be a lawsuit from Acclaim's parent company suing, uh, well, it's the uh, court order from the lawsuit, but suing this ECW management group and that consisted of Eugene Sharkowski, the accountant, uh, Steve Carroll of ECW, and also various people from uh, Eugene Arboff's law firm, who was, I think, ECW's go-to law firm. And you mean Bofa? No, it's Bafa. I think. <laughs> Bofa right. these nuts. I know. We made that joke many times. Uh okay, so the so I'm reading through this thing and now I guess I'll just get into what it says here. So this is in the background of the court ruling where you know, I forget what they were even ruling on, but still you can be fairly sure this is an accurate summation of things. Uh, okay, Anodius is a subsidiary. Oh, that's right. They're technically a subsidiary, not the parent company, of Acclaim Entertainment, a corporation that creates and sells video games. HHG is a corporation that did business as Extreme Championship Wrestling, which was one of three nationwide wrestling concerns in 1999. And then we get the bombshell. In or about January 1999, representatives approached uh, ECW about, excuse me, approached HHG about obtaining a license to produce an ECW wrestling video game. HHG was wholly owned by its founder, wrestling promoter Paul Heyman, but Enodius was told during negotiations that he had turned over control of HHG's business and finances to ECW management under the terms of a written agreement. ECW management uh, is a joint venture comprised of Sharkowski, Carroll, and Baffa, who was also the senior partner at uh, BSOC, which is his law firm. And then they get into all of the financial stuff and ECW offering up 
uh, pay-per-view receivables as collateral to get loans from a claim when they already had them offered up as collateral for other loans. But yeah, so, and this is something we have asked enough people about to know, like, it doesn't seem like any of the wrestlers knew a thing about this. Nothing. And <laughs> I'm assuming if we're going with in or about January, is this just residual issue? Is it, is it, is it probably this is the residual, like, they are paying weekly now, but they are not caught up thing? Or what? Possible. Because Very when possible. I'd have to pull up the notes to see... Of the, I think it was that first. I mean, it could time. also very much be that business concept of don't pay anybody any money unless you absolutely have to and you have no choice but to pay them. Well, <laughs> drag stuff out until day 30. Well, it's I not even just that. Ethical okay. or correct, but it's certainly something that people do, especially when they're trying to keep their finances tight. Well, and, if... a, and, as, and as we would discuss, you know, as, as time goes on, you know, as 99 and 2000 goes along, Paul Heyman would not show up when it's time to pay to a lot of times. He would not be there. Avoidance is a perfectly acceptable coping <laughs> mechanism, I suppose. <laughs> yeah, outside. Out, he was working on TV deals. That was the excuse. He was in Los Angeles working on secret projects. <laughs> well, he also, could be there. Uh, don't forget, though, that like if you do the math looking at the bankruptcy filing – they didn't pay MSG Network and probably, I think, also America One for like a year and a half before they stopped <laughs> doing the syndicated show. Yeah. So, yeah, they weren't even paying for their TV. Yes. And uh, I'm checking to see. So when did when did Eugene Tcharkowski's name first came up? OK, so his name doesn't actually come up until July, at least in the stuff we went through on the page. It was around show. when the TV was about to start up. Yeah. Yeah. The way it was reported here, which I, okay, I think is the observer. Um, in recent months, ECW structured its management. Steve Carroll, who was involved in ECW as its media relations director, quit his job at General Media last year to work for ECW full time. A former associate of his, interesting wording, uh, Gene Sharkowski of the Gene Baffa Law Firm, I don't think he's actually from the law firm in New Jersey, is the new chief financial officer of ECW. He now signs ECW's checks. Since he began signing ECW checks last month, okay, interesting, none has bounced for a while ECW was desperate to meet payroll, blah, blah. Okay, so at least from when the name on the of the signer on the checks changed, that was about June. So not yet. So even though the court stuff says January, it whatever happened, it didn't seem like it took effect for several months. Hmm. Interesting. Well, anyway, let's get back to 99. Coming out of the show, most of the talk regarding the departure of Shane Douglas, who joins Axel Rotten, Chris Candido, and Tammy Sitch, the latter of whom did appear on the show but were buried early and swiftly in that regard. There's no secret that Douglas is going to be done after the show, with his final match being a job for Just Incredible. But Douglas no-showed the event after problems all week with Paul Heyman. Everything went down the evening before the show, as Douglas was at the ECW arena for the independent Break the Barrier show put on by Al Isaacs of the Scoops website. Oh, yes. Oh, Scoops. Douglas was talking about the financial problems of ECW and claiming that the end of the company was near to people talking with him. He claimed he was trying to get a hold of Heyman all week and that Heyman didn't return any of his phone calls and that he didn't have a plane ticket to the show issued by Heyman. 
Heyman's stories that he had a one-hour conversation with Douglas on May 13th where they worked out what the scenario would be for the match with Credible, redo the job in seven minutes, and he said on Friday that everything had been worked out and Douglas would be appearing. Heyman said that since Douglas was in Philadelphia, which was driving distance from Poughkeepsie, New York, they didn't need a plane ticket to get to Poughkeepsie. That still leaves the unanswered question regarding the ticket back to Pittsburgh from the show, which was never issued. <laughs> Douglas was telling people that since Heyman didn't even want him at the ECW Arena show the previous week, that it would cost him $500 for a plane ticket, and he wasn't paying it out of his own pocket with all the money he's already owed him. He wasn't going. Douglas was also telling people at the show that the Nashville Network had been asking him about the financial stability of the company before doing business with them and claimed the deal wasn't nearly as much of a done deal as had been hinted within the company. As it turned out, the word got to Heyman about what Douglas was saying regarding the Nashville Network, and Heyman was really upset. So he sent Gabe Sapolsky, an ECW employee, to the ECW arena to set up a conversation to clear things up about the next day. But Douglas waved off Sapolsky, saying to tell Heyman he wasn't there and wouldn't take Heyman's call. (laughs) (laughs) At least at press time, there was no deal made between Douglas and the WF, although there are no secrets that have been talks. But no contract has been offered, nor have any money terms ever been broached. Nor, despite many rumors to the contrary, is anything close to a done deal made for either Candido or Sears to join WCW. Candido's match with Taz for the title originally built as a main event of the show was cut to a one-minute opening squash by Heyman, well before the show, because he already decided he was he was getting rid of both of them. Candido and Sitch, like Douglas, owed a substantial amount of money by ECW. Candido has told the people $80,000 is the figure. Large of ECW using their credit cards to purchase plane tickets to fly wrestlers in for shows. According to friends of Douglas, his credit cards maxed out due to the fronting EC, due to fronting ECW money it was a financial crisis, and he no longer has a, has credit and has to pay for everything in cash. Uh, okay. Oh no. Oh yes, yes. That's, that's we, not a good time. Yeah, Kyle, we talked about this on the Patreon show too. Uh, Shane Douglas, Chris Candido, and Tammy gave and Tammy gave so much to that company to try to keep it going. And Shane was one of the best house show promoters they had and everything. And then they get treated like this. And when you pay in cash, you can't even get those airline miles, man. Or those bonus miles. I know. I know. Sure. (laughs) I had forgotten, though, that this was reported at the time, though. That this wasn't just something that came out later, uh, you know, in the Candido interview and stuff. Yeah, this is all out well, you know, before... They're, they mean, they even gone from the company, yeah, I mean, <laughs> you know? And Paul did a lot of people dirty with how he did all the ECW money stuff. But everyone else is behind Chris, Tammy, and Shane Douglas. That's what they should be. Because without them, who who knew where ECW would have been? With them putting their finances into that company, basically. Yeah. Fronting it. It's insane. I guess that's the other the business thing of uh, use other people's money for as long as you possibly can before using your own. I mean, could you imagine? I mean, think about this. I could you imagine today in today's social media climate that if there were high profile wrestlers working for an independent wrestling promoter and they're fronting them all this money to the point that their credit cards are maxed out, how big of I a mean, deal you, that would be? Waiting that that doesn't happen because I'm pretty sure that probably still happens it probably does we don't know about it doesn't mean it's not happening 
That is yeah. definitely happening on a some socioeconomic level because, like I said, don't pay anybody until you absolutely have to, and don't use your own money until you absolutely have to. I mean, yeah, it probably is, but I'm just saying I would think it would be a big powder keg on social media if it's you know found out. At this well, if it was time, this much it, money, it, especially. Yeah, at this point well, in time, yeah. where we're at, I mean, it's, it's in the newsletter. Yeah, exactly. We're in the newsletters. So, I mean, it's not out there for a major public consumption like it would be now. And, you know, it'd just be crazy. But would people be saying something? Because, okay, yeah, of course this is happening. But if you do that, you've clearly publicly at least burned your bridge with this company. And then all that time and money you've invested is never going to pay off for you. Well, they so brought sure Candido. There are a lot of people that don't say anything for that reason, right? Well, they brought Candido and Tammy back. <laughs> they did. <laughs> you know, it was a whole episode of TNN basically devoted to Tammy for ratings, <laughs> which that's a whole nother story. But um, yeah, Douglas the next day posted an internet response to the negative publicity he was getting for not appearing. His story again was that he attempted to contact ECW several times since he was never issued a plane ticket for an itinerary sheet for the show, and that Heyman had never returned his call. He said the conversation with Heyman where he agreed to put Credible over to a place the previous week. He said that he had been told, never been told by anyone in the official capacity that he was no longer with the company, nor had his friend Damian Farron, who channels merchandise, ever been actually told he was fired. And whenever Farron asked if he was fired, was told by Heyman and Steve Carroll he was on a five-week vacation. Douglas, who said he contemplating legal action, said he considers himself still an employee of ECW. Others said that Heyman made it clear since to Sapolsky when Douglas wouldn't take Heyman's phone call in front of several people the day before the show that he was fired and to tell him to have a nice life. <laughs> see you later. <clears throat> I can see Heyman saying that. Have a nice uh, life. <laughs> even though Douglas does come off as somewhat like Vincent Mann in that talk show incident with Phil Mushnick complaining he can't get him to return his calls and then when he's on the phone refusing to take the call and after that still con complaining afterwards that Heyman didn't return his calls in his behalf the company was heavily indebted to him financially it's believed his relationship with Heyman soured more as a result of his complaints about being owed money and questioning Heyman's character in the dressing room than directly from his in-ring performance being hampered by frequent injuries Heyman's his last pay-per-view did begin scenarios to phase him down and eventually out. He was a large part of the success of the company, both as one of his top wrestlers and also as a local promoter in the Pittsburgh area, which had been one of the company's strongest live event markets. Oh, absolutely. I mean, they they were doing tremendous business, considering, in, in, uh, in western Pennsylvania because of shame. I mean, we talk about it on the show a lot lately because we've had a lot of those shows – from 96 and 97 and 98 where Shane's the local promoter and drawing some of the biggest houses in that company at the time. Yeah, I mean the yeah. main the main Pittsburgh area shows at the Golden Dome like I want to say the first show did well over 1000 close to 2000 and then within a few shows he was up to like 4000 fans. And like his secondary Pittsburgh area towns I want to say all drew at least 1000 the last time we went mm -hmm. over it. Absolutely. And yes, Shane, you know, wasn't the same guy in the ring, but good Lord. I mean, he's contributing so much more than that financially and in, in other ways, too. So, uh, yeah, to have all this happen to him, it really sucked. Yeah. And you also know? that, as we've discussed before on here, I, 
he is the wrestler who's like his everything fell apart at the same moment. And right as he was entering his prime, too. Yeah, just terrible. Terrible timing on his part. As there was a last-minute plan, Heyman called Sid Udy at 11.30 p.m. the night before the show to replace Douglas. The original plan on Saturday night was a backup plan all along in case Douglas didn't appear. That Sabu would wrestle just incredible. While Heyman admitted that the scenario on the show where Sid appeared was totally screwed up, large in execution, he felt he needed to show the people he's trying to do business with that were at the show, and in particular TNN, Showtime, and MTV, that Douglas' loss on the show wouldn't be missed and that he was replacing him with a bigger star that the fans would pop big for when he showed up, which is what happened. The scenario was a minor disaster for Credible and Lance Storm, who Heyman is building up to be the top heels in the company, since Sid sold almost nothing for them and left them looking like too much in the WWF. Two talented smaller guys that nobody takes seriously, as opposed to Pat Patterson and Ray Stevens. Two talented smaller guys that are thought in many circles to be the greatest tattoo in wrestling history and were top headliners around the world. Who he's trying to pattern him after. On Friday, when Heyman claimed that Sid faxed him word that he was interested in returning, which would take the validity of being rumors that WF or WCW had expressed any interest in him, and at the time, Heyman said that he was considering briefly bringing him in for a match with Taz in the show as a surprise, where Taz would go for a choke, but then decided against it instead to do the scenario with Taz that he wound up doing. With Douglas out, he made the decision to bring Sid in for the reasons mentioned above. He said he considered the idea of putting, uh, having Sid job for Credible, which for many reasons makes the most sense to elevate Credible, who's struggling to be taken seriously at the level Heyman wants him to be. And I also at least show the rest of the crew that there isn't the star double standard and in many ways on the verge of destroying WCW since Sid no-showed a major ECW arena event. And in Sid's defense, ECW had bounced a check on him, although his other complaints about never getting a plane ticket and not even knowing he was booked that weekend weren't true, according to people who handled the ticketing. Heyman C. never suggested to Sid doing a job for Credible, claiming it was a fear of a negative audience reaction to Sid losing a two-minute match and then one of the people he was trying to do business with hear chance of bullshit or refund. The scenarios that went down, a cheap DQ for a run-in after two minutes considering nearly every major ECW match has run-ins and there are rarely DQs called, left nearly as bad of a taste. Heyman said that Sid's appearance was not part of him signing a deal. They never had a contract before. Heyman claimed he'd never bring Sid back without a contract to protect him from no-shows or refusing to do jobs. It was simply a one-time deal, but that it would talk during the week at any key. He may bring Sid to the house show on May 22nd in Detroit to finalize things. Okay. Well, first of all, Sid debuts in WCW on June 13th. So mm-hmm. there's that. Yes. At the at Great American Bash. Um, I'm surprised that Dave isn't pointing out that not only did they do this, but as we already alluded to and we'll be talking about more, Paul turned the advertised main event into a one-minute opener. He just casually mentioned that. <laughs> Where is... Yeah, that was wild. I remember, like, watching, and, like, you know, when you're a child, you're not, like, you're not a privy to that type of information, right? Like, it's not like I was nine years old on the internet reading all this stuff that was happening. I was just consuming. So it's like, why was that so short? Like, your little mind is just, like, you can't even wrap your mind around it. You're just like, well, okay. I guess that happened. And they, I mean, they have been building that up. I mean, yeah, Taz King, for a Taz while. Candido. So much more. Yeah. Yeah. It, Especially it was, it, Candido comes out, cuts this promo. You're like ready for it, right? You're like, okay. Absolutely. Then, yeah. Where is it? I don't 
Yeah, I mean, it's that, and then you have the the the, yeah, the finish of that Sid match was so horrible because it's ECW for God's sakes, and you're doing a DQ finish, you know, with, at, at the run ins and that promotion. What? Had had they done a single DQ in the promotion since Bill Alfonso's debut? I'm thinking they hadn't. Uh, there's nothing that stands out. Yeah. There's nothing that stands out. If they did, we would know, because it would be such a rare occurrence that it would be forefront of your mind. Yeah, it it should be something that would stick out, like a sore thumb, because it is ECW. Uh, Okay, I'm seeing some undercard matches and spot shows. Yes, yeah, I'm seeing it now, too. Yeah, there's a DQ in December in Allentown with the Dudleys against Balls Excellence by Dudley. There's a double DQ in November in Fall River with the Dudleys against Balls and Tanaka. Um, I'm seeing some... Spike Dudley over Jack Victory by DQ in Worcester. Okay, we're working from opposite directions then because I was looking at 96 first. Revere Mass in July with Spike and Jack. Um, let's see what else. What was the cause of these disqualifications? It doesn't say. Taz over Bigelow by DQ in April. Of 98 I mean, because that would be curious, right? To see, like, what what was the, the circumstance? Like, what did it take to get that disqualification in a promotion where people regularly clobber each other with chairs? Okay, no, well, here's one interesting one, because all the, all the ones we've read have been my house shows. There was one at the ECW Arena in June 98 where Axel beat uh, Jack Victory by DQ. Hmm. So that is on an ECW Arena show, and... And, hey, there's a DQ finish on a pay-per-view in January. Well, not pay-per-view, a, a Hostile City Showdown. RVD and Sabu over Balls and Axel by DQ. Mm. And Taz and Bigelow have multiple DQ finishes in 98. So it it happened, but it's nothing that was a major thing. And it's know? not really a presence on the TV and pay-per-view shows. Oh, Bigelow and Sabu had a DQ in November 97 at the Elks Lodge at a main event. Hmm. Ooh, the Elks Lodge. Yeah, 900 fans that night, too. That's so. a lot of people in an Elks Lodge. <laughs> well, it was a big Elks but Lodge. But very sizable Elks Lodge. Especially that Elks Lodge in Queens. Well, they crammed them all in there, though, yes. <laughs> yes. Like, like sardines. Yeah, exactly. So it happened, but it, it definitely wasn't nothing that was... Uh, you know, commonplace in ECW, that's for sure. All right, so there are a lot of other items to talk from around the show. There was no mention on the live broadcast of a return date on pay-per-view, although they were advertising several weeks' worth of house show dates, which, considering the known financial problems and rumors that had swirled around, this would be the last pay-per-view event for the company, was taken as a death knell. As it turned out, a commercial was done for a July 18th event called Heat Wave, which couldn't air until after the main event, because the commercial made talked about world champion Taz, Hawker icon Just Incredible, the Canadian technician Lance Storm, and Mr. Baby Rob Van Dam as the headliners for the show, as Taz couldn't be called world champion until his match was over. For whatever reason, a production snafu being the reason, the commercial didn't air on Viewer's Choice for the live show. It did air in the satellite dish homes on the live show, and it did air after the replay show, both on dish and cable. New Jack wasn't there, probably in stores he had quit the promotion. Heyman didn't want to book him on the show because his trial in the Eric Coolis incident is coming up later this month. And there's expected to be at least some national publicity coming from it. And again, Heyman didn't want the people he's trying to do business with tie the two together as a possible deal breaker. 
Heyman claimed he didn't know New Jack quit the company, although there were reports that New Jack was unhappy, claiming the reason he was told his proposed match with Mustafa in a cage was canceled at pay-per-view was because he was led to believe that viewers choice didn't want him on the show when it was actually Heyman who didn't. New Jack I caught independent promoters over the past few days looking for work. Okay, wait, well, I forgot. So their first match was Living Dangerously 99, the Mustafa New Jack singles. Right. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. This is clearly Paul giving up on the feud because that's one of the worst matches of all time. Yeah, it was horrible. You guys want to know something crazy? I, when I was a manager before I had even gone to wrestling school, I was a manager in a match with New Jack. <laughs> oh, yeah. I'm sure that was delightful. I, he just told me, he was like, baby girl, if you stay out of the way, you'll be fine. And I just stayed way out of the way. <laughs> and he proceeded to beat the shit out of these two dudes while his music blasted in the background. And that's what everybody My fondest wrestling memories. <laughs> well, I mean, it's, a, it's an experience. The, the it definitely Jack. was. <laughs> He was very, he was very nice, but it was, oh, yeah. it was definitely an experience. <laughs> yeah, sad he's gone. He's, he's, he was, he's, a, he's a classic, but, but yeah, that feud sucked. I mean, Mustafa w- was terrible, <laughs> and uh, it, it just, it just wasn't worth it, you know. But I can also see Bix though that Jack, being who he was, and with the trial coming. He didn't want him anywhere near TV networks at this point in time. Yeah, I would think that's fair. Especially I mean, that's stage. reasonable. Yeah. That's very reasonable. It's like, oh, uh, we're just going to cool you off for a second and see how this goes. <laughs> yes. All right. Well, the show on May 16th, which drew approximately 2,800 fans to the Mid-Hudson Civic Center in Poughkeepsie, New York, got mixed reviews. The general consensus view seems to be a slight thumbs up, which is about where Dave would have rated it. The Raw Van Dam Jerry Lynn match, which wound up with both Russells being injured and possibly suffering concussions. Van Dam was out momentarily late in the match. Lynn's injury more obvious because he went limp for a few seconds. Came on spectacular and mistaken head first bump off the top rope to the floor. Uh, it, was it was pretty the much floor. the same so bump. Gnarly. It was pretty yes. much the same slip and like hit his head on the floor that Waltman had in the uh, second Razor Ramon match, right? Like he was yeah, on the top rope and he just kind of slipped and just ate shit yeah. face first. Yeah. Yeah, rough. You could rough. just see him just chilling there like nobody was home for a few minutes. <laughs> yes. Bless him. It was so sad because, like, actually, I really enjoyed the start of that match. I thought that was a spectacular display of chain wrestling that I was not expecting. Yeah, I mean, they could get they could go to the mat. Those two, uh, definitely, you know, and yeah, that happening was, uh, oof, that was rough. He was, Lynn was hospitalized after the match due to the possible concussion. He also suffered a broken nose, among other injuries that are expected to keep him out of action for a few weeks minimum. He may need surgery to repair his nose. With the exception of working Chicago to an angle, maybe off as long until as until the next pay-per-view show, where at least he's under the impression they're going to do a third match between them. He was released from the hospital the next morning and expected to see a neurologist later in the week. The idea of doing a show-long series of angles with the Dudleys to lead to a new main event was an idea to get the people he's trying to do business with. The idea that ECW is like Nitro and Raw, which is what everyone's idea of pro wrestling today should be, with vignettes leading to impromptu matchups. From a production standpoint, the wheat miking of the crowd was fixed, as you did get the idea this was a hot audience. On the downside, Joey Styles' audio was too low, particularly as the show went on. Yeah, you they couldn't bo- hear him at all. 
Yes, and and that was a problem they had on multiple hair reviews. Not just this one. Yeah, I mean, and it's Joey Styles. <laughs> when you can't hear Joey Styles, that's a problem. Because <laughs> he's yeah, yeah, it's it's just such a part of the show as well. It just feels like something's missing. It's like when Metallica recorded "Injustice for All," but there was no bass. It's like, well, it's Metallica, but there's it's missing that richness. It's like, well, it's ECW, but it's missing the voice of Joey Styles. Yeah, exactly. So they brought in Cyrus the Virus, Don Callis, uh, St- Styles' badly needed sidekick from some of the early matches, but it was annoying how Cyrus disappeared with no mention he was gone. Just all of a sudden, Styles was doing all the talking. Styles' overreaction to comments by Cyrus about creative control of his gimmick was also annoying. And in later matches, the problem of Styles doing the show by himself were evident again, as he had nobody to bounce off of, which made the announcing seem boring. On the undercard, a match that many thought would be the show stealer with Takabichi Noku against Super Crazy was a disappointment, as Taka didn't do much. What the hell is he talking about? <laughs> <laughs> what? Taka, like, ta- it, it's not a long match, but like, he does his spaceman plancha into the Pillman bump on the rail. What is Dave talking about? Well, just wait till we get to the review and you'll yeah. oh <laughs> see what he rated it. Um, <clears throat> however, Yoshiro Tajiri. I'll hold Tajiri... my thoughts until then. Okay. However, Yoshiro Tajiri and Lil Guido was better than expected. Oh, no, yes. it was just. Yes, it was. Oh, no, it was just another Sunday pay per view. No better, no worse than most of the others. There was a major snafu in that the fireball that Balls Mahoney blew at Joel Gertner, which was the setup for the show Long Angle, missed badly, but had to be sold anyway, which made the second straight show. We screwed up fireball spot for ECW. I mean, this... nine-year-old Kaya didn't care. <laughs> I was just like, "Oh, fireball!" Yeah, fireball. yeah. I didn't think this... it looked that bad anyway on the live shot yeah, at least. I, I... Well, did he want him to take it straight to the dome? Like <laughs> no eyebrows. <laughs> well, this All was right. made. <laughs> this was made worse because in the post-show highlight package, another angle was shown where it was even more obvious the flame didn't come within two feet of Gertner and sold it anyway. <laughs> That's a very WCW type thing to do as well, is to yeah. use the worst angle in the replay. Yeah, did Ron and Charlie bring in Tommy Edwards or something to work with them? <laughs> Who knows? All right, so our dark match was Skullbot Crush over Danny Doring in the opener. So there's that. So Chris Candido and Tammy Sitch came out to start the show. Dave said their looks have changed to the point that instead of being the most marketable woman in the game, she now looks like a, any indie valet, an average-looking woman all dressed up. Uh, it is 1999, Dave, so we get that. Um, honestly, though, I thought it was... Very ob- Y2K fashion from her. I was like, <laughs> spaghetti strap, okay. She also just, she didn't look with it. Gee, you think? Well, because it's... It, I mean, but Chris has his issues, too, but Chris seems fine. She is just, like... It's clear it's not the same person. The thing about Chris is, though, Bix, is he had all of his issues, but he was still in great shape. Hmm. You, I mean, you really couldn't tell that Chris was undergoing major problems at some of these points in time. You just wouldn't know if you looked at him. No, because when it got really bad, shape. yeah, it was when he was in the best shape of his career, when he was training with practice and all that. Yeah. So they came out with Candido scenes bringing out the Dudleys, and they would interfere freely and guarantee him the title win. The fans chanted, she's a crack whore, which shows how Sitch is changing harder looks 
aren't exactly going unnoticed to the average. Uh, uh, mm. 1999. Oh, yes. That era of uh, fans and their chance. Uh, thank God we finally got mostly gotten past that. Like, it took forever, yeah. though. I do sometimes, not the content per se, but I do miss, like, how reckless people were with signs back then. Like, there were so many signs at every wrestling show, and it was the coolest thing. Maybe some of the content was questionable, and we could certainly do it without that. But I wish people would bring signs, like, that again. So it was just, like, a sea of engaged fans. Yeah, but, I mean, it seems like now both major companies want signs on cam- on the well opposite the hard camera to be as minimal as possible so who's even yeah. going to get them on well, tv if you, hold a sign, you can't hold your cell phone and record a video to post on social media right so that's <laughs> taking the place i mean that, yeah <laughs> just taking the place of signs but you know what i mean it, signs are, are it can be very great as an aesthetic but being in a crowd with all the signs around you and, and kind of maybe blocking your vision sometimes weren't was a yeah, one isn't always the best. Especially yeah, those... try to buy tickets like opposite of the hard cam. Like I just was like, nope, I don't want to deal with signs today. I don't even want to be on TV. I'm here to enjoy. Yeah, especially Raw. Raw Raw was the worst with that. I mean, oh, some... it was just like oh. a, a minefield of signs just everywhere. Like yeah. literally neon for miles. <laughs> yes, I know. So um, we get our main event at the beginning of the show. Taz over Chris Candido in 70 seconds to keep the ECW heavyweight title. Taz came out while, while Candido was doing his interview, ducked the Dudley's attack on the ramp, then took them out with a double clothesline. In the ring, he threw two suplexes on Candido. Candido came back with a powerbomb but missed the head off the top. Taz then put him away with a T-bone and the Casa Hajime. After the match, the Dudley's hit Taz with a 3D. Quite a pay main event. Quarter of a star. <laughs> <sighs> I, rem- I remember buying the show and um, thinking, what in the hell's going on? You know, why why is this leading off? What What's going on here? What's going to be the main event of this show? And then it goes 70 seconds. Like, what the fuck? <laughs> what is this? So it, it gave it, it – I, I will say this. It gave unpredictability because you, now you want to – well, what the hell are they closing the show with? You know, although I'm putting on this money out there, so it's kind of like – uh, I better get satisfied. They better do something good. So you put yourself in that position when you're doing this. You better deliver. It's kind of dangerous. But as yeah. you know, they lived on danger. I mean, can they was great. Of danger. They snacked on danger and dine on death, like Hawk said. What was that, Bix? <laughs> I mean, at least Candido's great here, but uh, this is just it. It feels like such a spite booking thing, like. Especially since the, you know, quote-unquote real main event ends up being Taz and Bubba. Like, he's there. He's willing to work. You are seemingly trying to write him off anyway. Just make it a match and then have Taz kill him at the end. Like, what? I don't get it. Like, This is is promoter bullshit. This is promoter Mm -hmm. ego bullshit getting in the way of business. And never good. Never good. I mean, don't let your ego get in the way of doing business. And too many promoters have fallen to that trap over the years, yeah. on every level. You're throwing busy. You're throwing money away. I mean, it's Vince McMahon's been the worst. There's no time how much. I mean, he's made a lot of money, but he's thrown away a lot of money because of his ego. 
So, I mean, there's a lot. I mean, it's just crazy. Yeah. And I love that. The little thing uh, Candido does each time Taz catches him in a suplex, he does this thing where he leaves his feet twice, once to like make it look like oh Taz is so strong and caught me, and then the second su- and then the second one is the suplex. Like it's, I think he did that in most of their matches, but it's it's this nice little you know Chris Candido touch that you notice. Yeah. Chris he was Ross. all about the details, man. Um, I think that's one of the most underappreciated things about Chris Candido is the attention to detail that we just don't always see these days, or even especially back then, right? Just someone who was a master of making the little things count. Absolutely. And he's become one of those guys that newer wrestling fans have gotten into way more than fans did back then. I um when I was in wrestling school and you know you obviously have a whole week where you watch tape um well we have like a week and a half like they watch a lot of tape with us at my school but um Rollins and Merrick showed us Chris Candido matches and I thought that was so cool um obviously I appreciate Chris Candido being a little bit older and what he's contributed to wrestling but there were so many other students in my class who were a little bit younger that had never seen his work and just to see them appreciate what he brought to the table was really cool as well. So I'm glad that they're still doing the Lord's work and sharing the work of Chris Candido out there. Absolutely. Well, the dub, they stuck around. They did an interview challenging anyone. Sign guy had a sign that said, Devon eats live baked in reference to Chastity's porn video. Oh, I see. That's an ongoing story at this time. Oh yes. That was a sign. I remember Live Aid, absolutely. Uh, there is a very subtle beginning of a tease where the Dudleys would break up and Devon would go babyface. Sure. Bubba talked about running this guy and that guy out and injuring this guy and that girl. And no Marlo Thomas jokes here. That's way too dated. <laughs> Thanks, Dave. <laughs> no jokes, but we're going to mention it here anyway. Something from 30 years earlier. Uh, he said they split up the Eliminators and now Perry Saturn's wearing a dress. He asked if anyone had the balls to come out. So Mr. Mahoney came out. Okay, before we get to the actual match, I was kind of surprised watching this because, okay, I, you know, the Heat Wave promo at the next pay-per-view is infamous for just how lewd and (laughs) offensive and all that it is. And here they are not, you know, not even Bubba. And... I feel like that kind of confirmed our theory on the Patreon show that Heatwave was Bubba trying to sabotage ECW because there were TNN and Acclaim executives in the building. Of course. (laughs) And the thing is, is that he's another one like Shane and Candido. He's doing all this work behind the scenes. And, I mean, you could tell how all this resonated with all these guys years later. That WWE Network deal where they had all those guys together with Heyman, talking about ECW, there was so much resentment still there all those years later with Dreamer and Bubba and Taz. I mean, it was all still there because all the shit they did and how they all felt like they weren't you know, appreciated, like they should have been, taken advantage of. I mean, you could tell. There was a lot of tension in that room, even to that day. So... Yeah, I mean, those guys had some They had some issues, absolutely. All right, so the Dudleys beat Spike Dudley and Balls Mahoney and 748 to retain ECW tag titles. 
This wasn't any good except for a big pop where Bubba powerbomb spike off the top row through a table. Balls was facing both for about a minute, slipping, trying to deliver the Randy Savage elbow off the top, which elicited some chance from the crowd. Balls took a bump off the top, and Spike did a run in through the crowd to his music, gave both a low blow, which was real weak. Spike was thrown into sign guy on the floor, but he took an incredible bump over the top. Balls' brawling was really bad. They had a 3D on Spike, but Balls made the save with a weak chair shot, which made everyone groan, since that's his gimmick. He made it up for it by nearly killing every brain cell in Tevon's head with a second shot. Oh my gosh. Yes, that was brutal. Joel Gertner ran in for his patented weak chair shot on balls. This was terrible, even as a spoof. Gertner had tried to throw fire Mahoney, reprising the classic Hogan Warrior spot from Halloween Havoc from last year. That was hilarious. Unfortunately, balls' fireball didn't come close to Gertner either. It was sold huge, and ringside officials overreacting to make sure everyone knew not to take it seriously. Hit 3D on balls for the pin. Fans were booing this match, and with two title matches already over, this show was not off to a great start. Quarter of a star. Okay, first of all, Dave is not describing the Joel Gertner thing and with him trying to throw fire accurately enough, which he should, because it's, that's the joke. Gertner just takes out a matchbook and starts lighting them and throwing the matches at balls. Yeah. <laughs> because it's Joel Gertner. Yes, yes. Um, I it, it, The highlight of this match in one way, but also it was terrifying because I'm pretty sure I yelled, Jesus, out loud at like two in the morning watching this, was that spike bump over the top to the floor, though. That was disgusting. I was like, what? What did I just watch? <laughs> the okay? Yeah. Is that a dead body? <laughs> And, and, and Kaya, this is something that you, you know, we don't see a whole lot of anymore. The unprotected chair shots to the head. I mean, I see I see quite a bit of that at GCW still. Well, yeah. Well, GCW, yeah. I'm talking about like in your, ma- in your major wrestling promotion deals. I don't think I've seen an unprotected one like in a major promotion in a hot minute. Yes. I mean, I watch pretty regularly. There's a chance that like I've missed one or I've forgotten about one that has happened, but... People are pretty good about protecting themselves these days. AEW had AEW had one. Was it was it, it was the a- Cody Page Cole. No, 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 no. You're thinking of from the second show, uh, Spears on Cody. Yeah, yeah. Oh, there you go. Yeah. Why? Where? <laughs> well, the the story allegedly was they sanded down the t- chair to gimmick it, and that Cody was not Cody was neurologically fine allegedly. But the problem was that how Spears swung it, the seat, the like the bottom of the seat back is what caught Cody in the back of the head. That it wasn't the uh, that it wasn't the actual chair shot. But I don't. It's just it's it's a bad idea. Like it was it was unnecessary, especially when you have like a wrestler of Cody's caliber, where it's like, is that necessary for someone? like him like i i don't think that's necessary i'm okay not watching cody Rhodes take chair shots to the dome like i'd rather just watch him wrestle <laughs> i think the only person that can really i mean be comfortable watching take a chair shot to the head is masato tanaka because he's taking all these chair shots to the head and he's still going <laughs> he's a freak matthew justice and matthew justice as well he's another one <laughs> but tanaka all these years taking all them hard chair shots you know and fucker still going god bless him it seemed like he <sighs> Obviously, I wouldn't recommend any wrestlers take chairs to the head. It does seem like Tanaka had a different way of taking it than everyone <laughs> else, though. Like, in terms of how yeah. he braced for the impact. 
Yeah. He had the secrets, I guess. I'm okay not knowing that secret. <laughs> <laughs> I like my brain. I don't blame you. Intact. Yeah, um, I don't blame you. I, I like my brain cells. That's the thing is like, you know, brain cells don't regenerate. You can kill them. You can kill as many brain cells as you want, but you don't get like new brain cells. <laughs> they no. all just reproduce. Exactly. Like you're you're definitely uh on bar. It's the war when you kill off. <laughs> the odds are not so in your favor. Not at all. No. Alright, so now super crazy pin Takamichinoku on eight twenty eight. Somewhat disappointing due to his potential, but still a good match. Crazy took a tremendous Jerry Estrada bump over the top rope. Taka went for a springboard plancha, but Crazy missed, and he hit the guardrail. Crazy did his Especial de Crazy, which is actually a reverse footing off the top onto a top rope Asai moonsault that Taka actually debuted a few years back in Japan. The cameras missed the move the first time, but they broke to a replay about 30 seconds later. Taka missed the moonsault by a mile. They did some near falls. Taka did his missile drop kick to the back. And they mentioned Oku Driver, but sold his knee so he couldn't make the pin. Crazy two power bombs, the first off a Hurricane Rana attempt for the pin. Two and three quarter stars. I thought this was about as good as it could be with the time constraints, pretty much. Like, yeah, they I packed a lot into they it. They had a solid match. Yeah, I wasn't mad at it. Yeah. So th- I think, did, did, did this suffer from, in Dave's mind, of having too much, you know. Yeah, maybe thinking it was going to be you know way better than what it was, and then it wasn't, but it was still good. You know that happens. Mm-hmm. Sometimes you go into I don't know something what more. He wanted in the time they were given hot moves. <laughs> he, he wanted his hot moves, but he got but, uh, oh. yeah, he didn't get enough. But I mean, that's the thing. You know, sometimes you you know you have that where you just man, I've got these great expectations, and you know, man, it's going to be a killer match, and blah 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 blah, blah. and then it's good, but it didn't. Do what you, you know, what you were hoping for. Did you know, scratch the itch. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> and you and you see people going like crazy for it. It's like, yeah, it's great. You know, it's like, what did you watch? <laughs> Maybe their expectations were lower. I don't know. You know, mm-hmm. everybody, too, everybody has their own vibe. You know, and stuff like that. So. Sure. And then the uh, the other highlight of the match was um, Joey Styles referring to Taka as a former WWF wrestler. <laughs> sure. When yes. he's very obviously still there. Yeah. I love. I mean, even even to that day, they're still trying to kayfabe that relationship. Hilarious. All right. So they went backstage to Gertner selling the fireball. The Dudleys picked his pocket and found a hit list of guys that Gertner was offering cash. You know how those ECW guys like cash these days. <laughs> 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 the first name on the list was Nova. So they went to his dressing room and found him, beat him up. It's funny that all those guys backstage and Nova was in costumes and none had any logical reason for him being there. <laughs> well, wait a second, though. Why don't they know about their manager's own bounty list or whatever the hell it is? It was a secret, Big. But it doesn't go you anywhere. Secrets. Well, here's the thing. I mean, this is what Dave was talking about. And that this is ECW doing these backstage vignettes. They never did shit like this before. No, it was this a little out of left field. Yeah, well, it's they're trying to they're trying to show off to these executives, so they have no idea what the hell they're doing. So this is probably storytelling. Something... Oh yeah, exactly. We're telling stories, baby. I mean, it's just like it, it's it, it makes no sense, and it's because they didn't know how to do shit like this. 
it during a the show. They do it. You can do it in post production. They would, you know, Pulp Fiction, you know, in the TV shows. But during a show, inserting it during the, during the show like this, they had no experience doing that. So yeah, I mean, they had to how they were spitballing this show. Oh, let's just um, let's do this hit list deal. Okay, okay, all right. Let's put Nova on here, even though he has nothing to do with the Dudleys. Okay, you know, they're just coming up with shit, spitballing. So that's or why we'll see what sticks. Exactly, that's why it came out like it did. All right, so next so we like go a to ball of shit. Yes, exactly. <laughs> Uh, this year Tajiri pinned Little Guido in eleven oh six. Tajiri, I really enjoyed that match. Like, I'm oh, not gonna lie, yes. it was very enjoyable. I mean, I I really enjoyed Tajiri in general, but I, that was the perfect little palate cleanser match I needed. I was very oh, happy absolutely. with it. Well, these guys work great together. I mean, yeah. throughout the year, Tajiri delivered his really stiff kicks. Guido is used to working that style from his UWFI days, which Styles even brought up. They're trying to change his perception from an opening match comedy guy to a solid undercar worker type who can have good matches with the other good smaller workers. Tajiri did a really cool sunset flip into a tarantula, which was a tremendous combination spot. Sally Graziano crushed Tajiri with a power slam, but Tajiri kicked out of Guido's pin attempt. Graziano interfered some more. The match ended with Tajiri putting Guido upside down the corner and drop kicking him hard into the face, then hitting a brain buster for the pin. This didn't quite complete the job of elevating Guido from a fan's perception standpoint, but was a step in that direction. Two and three quarter stars. This is better than he's giving a credit for, too. Like, yeah, they really worked well together. I think that yeah. actually I enjoyed um, this match with Little Guido, like Tajiri and Little Guido, better than some of the matches Tajiri had with Super Crazy, believe it or not. Well, they were different. Yeah. Yeah, but like in a good way, <laughs> like in a yeah. very good way. Exactly. Yeah, there were different matches. I mean, you watch Tajiri Super Crazy, and they had some really great matches together, but sometimes they run together because it's a lot of the same shit. You know, you get Guido here who's doing a totally different style. It stands out. Yeah, of course. Right. And even if it wasn't the one the most people saw, which it was, like the the Mexican death match is still, you know, it's probably so well remembered in part because it's so different from the other matches. Absolutely. And uh, what was I going to say with this one, though? Watching this, though, made me feel bad that they don't really stick with Guido in singles matches with those guys. He becomes like a third wheel in Tajiri Crazy matches, and I don't think that worked. It just felt like it was a Tajiri Crazy match with a third body thrown in, whereas here he kind of got to have his own style. Yeah. And, uh, you know, then they'll, then they'll put uh, when Tony Mamaluke shows up later on back into the tag team again. So, but yeah, I mean, he got the show's stuff here. At least he got, he, you know, he got some spotlight. All right, between matches, the Dudleys beat up Rob Price with a chair and some punches. Why? <laughs> Why? Telling that story. I guess. So next we get Lance Storm and Tommy Dreamer, where Lance won in 1340. Francine came out with Dreamer. The original plan was during the show, they would do an angle where Francine and Douglas would split up, with Dreamer saving Francine to lead to them being put together as a unit. Instead, they are just together as a unit. Storm had the most had most of the offense and looked really good carrying the match. Dreamer was a step slow in his comebacks. At one point during the match, Dreamer must have messed up his bat because he had to be taken to the hospital the next day. They'd use a lot of weapons, so this was a typical garbage match, but better than usual due to Storm. Storm did almost a rocket launcher type throw of Dreamer. 
Drew means a Def Valley driver on Storm off the middle road through a table for a big pop, and they called it the Spicoli driver. That's always called an ECW. And mentioned that Tina Spicoli, Louis' sister, was brought in for the show. Cyrus didn't run in, but Francine speared him and gave him the Bronco Buster. It got big pops. Yes, she did. <laughs> it got big pops. Yeah, when it does make ECW seem minor league when they're using some of the trademark moves of the major league wrestlers, so to speak, on their own pay-per-view shows. I'm not saying everyone in the business doesn't constantly copy everyone else, but when it's done too frequently, it makes you look like the copiers as opposed to the innovators. Dreamer gave Don Marie the same Beulah panty shop driver from a few years back. They did a tease for the match that she wasn't wearing any underwear. But Storm handed her panties and made her put them on while he blocked the fans' views. <laughs> okay. Storm put a garbage can on Dreamer's head and used a spin kick off the top for the pen. Dreamer literally crawled to the back on his knees. Three stars. Yeah, I mean, Tommy Dreamer, that, I mean, 98 and 99 is when he starts falling apart. And it's sad because you watch him in 95 and 96 and even in 97. The guy is the heart and soul of ECW. He, you know, he's going out there. He just look. He looks older. He he looks like he's aged like five to ten years in 1999. Sometimes with all the shit going on, you know, outside of the ring, inside the ring, he aged that man bad, and his body's falling apart. And I just felt sorry for him because he was literally giving up his body for that company, and wasn't getting appreciated like he should have been. I will say that match certainly had a sense of urgency to it that you didn't typically see in those ECW era brawls that I appreciated. I was like, oh shit, we're going. Like, and and sometimes that's really what you need in that type of match. So even though Dreamer was maybe on the downswing in that time period, he certainly delivered that night. Yes. Yes. He, well, he, I mean, he definitely could give you that no matter what. I mean, but it was, but you can see it's hurting him bad. Yeah. He, he, yeah, he's, he's going through it. Um, Bix, it's interesting that they were going to actually do an angle to explain Francine going with Dreamer, but of course Shane's not there, and they just put them together. Even though they had kind of, you know, been together a little bit, you know, with Dreamer and Shane as a tag team before, but now it's official here. Yeah, it just, it, I, I never liked how it just happened. Like, it, there was no explanation, like... And also, like, especially if you're acknowledging Beulah, then, like, it comes off like she's just replacing her, but you're still continuing the thing where you call Dawn the fake Beulah, and, like, it just didn't click. I mean, really, they should have, they should have just kept Francine off TV for a few weeks or something before they did anything. Maybe. Uh -uh. Um... Yeah, this match is surprisingly good, though. Like, especially, like... I mean, it's it's Lance Storm in a Street Fight-style match. It doesn't sound like it should work, but he seems into it and, you know, really trying to make something out of it. It's like... It's a match that on paper does not sound like much, especially in 1999, but it turned into, like, you know, a very good, like, around ringside, not going in the crowd or anything, like ECW, you know, Street Fight-style match. And, and we're at the point with this, though, is, you know, the feud doesn't seem like it's gone on forever like it would. Because no. it seemed like the, 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 the Dreamer against Credible and Storm went forever. Yeah. You know, way the, too long. Yeah. The, the pee throwing comes after this, right? Because I think Francine's there for that. Yeah. Yes. Yes. <laughs> oh, man. 
All right, the Dudley's beat up Jack Victory next. Week. He hasn't been seen in months. Dave said he looks huge, like he's got to be in the 350-pound range. So Taz is tired of this shit. And he's, he's going to do an interview, so he's going to take out the Dudley's for the end of the show. Well, good for Taz to save Jack Victory. All right, Rob Van Damp and Jerry Lynn in 2657 to retain the ECW television title. People are really into this match from the start, which gave these guys the luxury of doing a slow build that most in ECW don't have. It was a great, great match, although they were out there too long again as the crowd was dying towards the end, but not as bad as the previous match. There were more missed spots than you'll ever see in a four-star match, most of which went noticed by the crowd. But they always recovered quickly from them and did more tremendous moves than you'll see in three great matches. The building of the match was better than any of Van Damme's previous preview matches. His right eye was busted about six minutes in, and they teamed stopping the match. Lynn used springboard dropping Van Damme on the apron and followed with a plancha onto those pretty blue mats that Styles always makes snide remarks about the other groups for having. Uh, <laughs> Dave, it's New York. <laughs> you have to have mats. It's an athletic commission rule. Yeah. I'm trying to think if we had mats. There was, I can't remember, there was one show, it was at Melrose Ballroom. I don't know if it was GCW or what, but like they didn't have mats, but they put cardboard down. And they were like, it's something. (laughs) And I guess they got away with it. I wish I could remember what show it was, because I remember seeing it and just being like, well, all right. I mean, I guess if this (laughs) satiates the need. Well, because really all you're trying to do at that point is is make appease the commission. It's not like you're actually trying to provide safety. Yeah. yeah. And also of the various New York State Athletic Commission rules, it seems like it's the one where they tend to let the most slide cuz I like I've been to shows like especially um when ICW was running that weird like gym next to the strip club on the uh Brooklyn Queens Expressway <laughs> where yeah. um, it would be like one like puzzle piece mat on like each side of the of the ring and that was it or less yeah. or, and when I did I, ring crew for impact uh, at Melrose Ballroom we had to like tape down school mats like they actually like the guy was walking around and, like kicking them to make sure they weren't going to shift off the floor we had to tape around them outstanding yeah. <laughs> that was that was delightful. <laughs> oh man. Um Van Cam sidekick Van Dam Van Dam sidekick Lynn to the floor and Lynn took this totally scary head first bump that literally could have broken his neck. And now like he was dead for a split second. As he legit suffered a concussion from the bump. Van Dam whipped him over the guardrail and did a running dive onto him on the other side of the rail. Lynn was cut hard way taking the bump. He had the Van Daminator and threw Lynn over the top to give him the time to regain his bearings. Van Dam used a corkscrew leg drop off the apron on Lynn ha- handling the guardrail. The match was losing momentum at this point. Lynn used a powerbomb over the top rope, putting Van Dam through a table, which appeared to be the spot Van Dam may have suffered a slight concussion since he was limp for a few seconds and his eyes were glassy, like a boxer who had just been knocked out. Lynn hit Alfonso of a chair and got a great near fall with a German suplex on Van Dam. Both were on the top rope. Are they going to do a belly belt super, superplex out of the ring through a table, which would have been a sick spot? But both guys slipped off the top, eliciting those memorable mismove chants. Another Van Damme and on in for a good near fall. Van Damme blocked the cradle pile driver, and they traded moves until Van Damme hit a split leg of moonsault for a near fall, followed by a high frog splash. But Van Damme took too long to cover him, and Lynn kicked out. Van Damme then hit another Van Damme and an even higher frog splash for the pin. 
Four and a quarter stars. And it takes a lot for Dave to go high on a Rob Van Dam match in this era, so that really shows how much he yeah. liked it. With the missed moves, too, that he talks about. So, I mean, that shows you how much he liked this, even with the missed moves. Which, Kai, you're the competitor. I mean, when you have something like this happen, when you, you're missing stuff, it can throw you off. But these two guys were professionals, and they just moved on to the next one. Well, you said the key word there, Chris, professional, right? Like, when yes. you're a professional, you understand that sometimes things don't always go according to plan perfect, but that you can't just stop moving in the ring, right? You have to figure out how to get to where you need to be next, and you have to be able to kind of think on your feet, and you know, they always say work on the fly, right? So anybody who's a you know consummate professional should be able to do that. And those guys were, you know, there's not really an excuse. Like what, what, what if wrestlers just stopped moving in the ring? When I've seen it happen. Was blown? <laughs> yeah. And, and it's not good. Right. Like I would much rather people just kind of keep going. Like you have to keep going. It's, um, it's not very natural though, because you know, when you make a mistake, your natural inclination is to stop. <laughs> you know, it's like, Oh shit. Oops. And or, they or did they set set- that. Or do the Sabu way of, let's do it all over again (laughs) immediately. Well, well, they kind of break you of that when you're in training because you just have 50 people yelling at you, keep going, keep going, keep moving. Why just keep moving? Just like yelling at you. So it makes you, you have to break yourself of that like reaction of stopping, which is probably the natural reaction, but there's not a lot that's natural about professional wrestling when you think about it. It's like, going to throw my body around in unnatural ways and i'm going to this guy's running at me and i'm just going to let him run me over and i'm going to willingly throw myself down like it's not a very natural practice as is so you have to break that habit of stopping and just learn to keep moving despite whatever happens my favorite like that ever was it was one of the early roh shows i think it was uh backseat boys against dunn and marcos maybe and I don't know if Cashmere got blown up or whatever, but they're doing their the thing. What was it? I think it was called the dream sequence, where you know it's a bunch yeah. of like consecutive spots, and it seems like Cashmere it was Cashmere going too slow that caused it all to get mistimed, and then Cashmere just spends like ten seconds staring at Donner Marcos or whoever. <laughs> yeah, and and then you got the you know the fans, you know the fans start chanting, "You fucked up! You fucked up!" Don't let that get you. I mean, because then, then you're, yeah, you you know, you're in the trouble. Yeah, then you're really in trouble. So thankfully, that's yeah. also mostly gone. Yeah, I haven't. I've not heard anybody yell that at a show recently. It seems like people have a little bit more grace, which is nice. Yeah, it, it's definitely not what it was. You'll hear. No, and, I mean, and you, you hear sometimes. That's a good thing. You know, I don't necessarily think that we need to ostracize people for mistakes when yeah. everybody knows what happened you watched it i guarantee you the people in the ring know like you don't need to remind people they know <laughs> i feel like occasionally yeah, no. you see it for stuff where like the fans know that everyone's okay but like i feel like you see it mainly yeah. for stuff like a light tube didn't break or whatever or a guy yeah, trying to do like a, 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 guy, a guy maybe trying to do a you know a springboard and falling fall off the ropes or slipping off the ropes, something like that. You know, where they're not hurt, but it's more of embarrassing, you know, something like that. 
But then I mean, with the spot they were trying. I a very considerate wrestling fan because, like, I never. I was like, oh my god, it's so embarrassing when you mess up. I don't want to make it worse for these poor people. And doing the spot they were trying to do too. I mean, a belly to belly superplex off the top rope. Oof, I mean, yeah. yeah, tough. Big Dick Dudley's back. He dragged Chris Chatty into the Dudley's dressing room. Devon punched him and, and broke his hand, thereby eliminating him from the main event. They beat on Chris Chatty as Taz's cousin talking about him being blood, but also acknowledging that Taz doesn't care about his cousin, which previous angles have shown. So it's hard to generate much of anything beating on Chris Chatty. <laughs> <laughs> yeah? Exactly. Yeah. All right, so Joey Styles, in his first acknowledgement of Shane Douglas not being there, said Douglas wasn't there and probably would never be back in ECW. And just said it was a dispute between him and ECW management. Not the management group. Styles never went after Douglas directly. When Sid came out, he definitely favorably compared Sid with Douglas. Credible came out and ran down Douglas, talking about all the beatings he'd given him, and talked about the millions and millions of his fans, which of his delivery style so similar to Val Venus and using Rock's language made him come off as too much of cheap indie heel. Jeff Jones came out with his robe, and the crowd popped, realizing Sid was back. Yeah, Val Venus did well, steal his entire promo style from Shane Douglas, didn't he? It's about Just Incredible. Oh. I thought that's how Just Incredible. No, Just Incredible is delivering his promo with Valvinus and stuff. And that's the thing with Just Incredible that a big part of him not getting to the level that Paul Heyman wants. Wait, what am I talking about? Douglas isn't there. I th- Never mind. My brain is not working all of a sudden. Go ahead. <laughs> no, yeah, just railroad me just then. But, uh, he, but the reason why Incredible wasn't taken seriously was because everybody thought he was like some indie level heel. I mean, I mean, credible. Just incredible could work. He could do things, but he, in a lot of the fans' mind, he was overpushed. He didn't have the look. I mean, it just it, it, they were shoving him down the throats, and then he comes out there and does this type of stuff, and it, it just it doesn't come off as authentic. You know, me and Bix have talked about this, Kai. I mean, what what are your thoughts on Just Incredible, the presentation of Just Incredible in ECW? I just, to me, it's like if they wanted me to, like, buy into him being a top-level guy, it wasn't happening. I just kind of saw him as somebody that floats around in the mid-card. Like, I just, I, I never hooked onto it. Granted, I was really young, but if your target is to hook people into it younger, it didn't hook me. I mean, I'm not saying anything about his work rate. He's obviously an incredible wrestler, but it just, there wasn't that something there that made it interesting. You know, he was just like a dude. Mm. Exactly. And the comparison yeah, I always make I always make now is uh, Matt Taven. Matt Taven is clearly really, really good at pro wrestling. Very good uh, at pro wrestling. It was just he should, just should not have been a pushed world title guy. But Matt Taven had the had a had a good good great look too. I mean Matt Taven looks like a, a guy that could be in that spot. Just Incredible's out there, you know, looking like a schlub. <laughs> With the, well, I mean, Darby ended up taking his look, though, I guess. So there is that. But... Dar- don't care, compare Darby Allen with Just Incredible. <laughs> There's no comparison. No, I mean, but I mean, Darby as far had, as the gear, Darby, the gear, though. Well, I ain't talking about, I mean, it was more than that. I mean, Darby has the charisma. Just, I think just that's didn't have the, the magic word there is charisma, right? Because you can have a good look and you can be a talented wrestler and just not ever, like, make that connection with fans. Well, like, it's not Lance that he didn't Storm. have a like, charisma either. I see it, I see Lance it Storm. 
I see it on the indies to this day. Like you'll have somebody that by all means should be one of the most successful people out there. And it's like, they just, their look is great. Their gear is great. They're a phenomenal wrestler, but it's like eating Melba toast crackers. It's just like, (laughs) it's just, but then there are people that are, it's like, they look okay. They're like, like they, or they have a good look. Let's say if somebody has like a really good look, right? Like they look good, their gear looks good. The wrestling is okay, but for some reason people are interested, you know. And to me, like that's that's the that's what you want to you want to have. You want to have that thing that makes people connect with you, that makes you interesting, because you can always improve your look. You can always improve your wrestling. You can't. It's harder to become interesting if you're not naturally, you know. Exactly. So, Yep. That is well, definitely the bigger struggle, right? Like, I mean, I can go to the ring, I can practice and become a better wrestler, I can invest in better gear, I can take my ass to the gym and work out harder and, and get more cut up, you know, I can invest in like things cosmetically that make me more attractive per se. But I can't like buy charisma. I can't like train charisma. It's like if you're somebody that people resonate with. Like that's special. Like, and and hold on to that because not everybody has it. Like I said, there are tons of guys out there and gals that look good, wrestle good, and by all means should be successful. But it, it's just they're not. They don't have that thing that makes fans watch. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But you know exactly. who did? Sid Udy beat Just Incredible by DQ in two hundred one. <laughs> this was a disaster. Sid threw Credible over the top with a choke throw and dropped him on the guardrail. Jason hit Sid, but Sid no-showed and powerbombed him. Sid also no-sold all of Credible's offense and chokeslammed him. Lance Storm did a springboard double sledge on Sid, which he also didn't sell, which at this point made zero sense since that was the move they called the DQ on. It's a series of mix-up at this mix-up at this point, although Sid was supposed to sell for Storm's run-in. Sabu came out, but the, but the angle hadn't unfolded. Uh, to where it was supposed to be, and the crowd. So the crowd popped. He was standing there holding a chair, watching. Since Sid was supposed to be selling big before he came in, and Sid was barely selling. And even worse, the cameras flashed to Sabu standing there. Fans are chanting for Sabu, so he did the run in and put Cre- Credible and Sid on the table. Storm put Credible to safety, and Sabu did his double springboard dive, nearly losing his balance on the top ropes, and put Sid through the table. Sabu also puts security guy Tony DeVito to a table. Sid got up. He was supposed to be mad at Jeff Jones because Jones ordered security to take Sabu away when Sid would have wanted Sabu to stay. But Jones didn't do that spot. So Sid had to powerbomb Jeff Jones twice for no reason. The crowds went, crowd went nuts for this. But it made the guys who needed to be converted into top guys looking more like prelim guys than ever. Negative one star. What a train wreck, Kaya. Yeah, it definitely... It definitely was like a train wreck and maybe not. I guess like there's such thing as a good train wreck, but I feel like there is a good train wreck on occasion where you're just like, wow, this is a hot mess, but I'm here for it. This was not that instance. It, it was just the wheels were falling off and nothing seemed to kind of hodgepodge it back together enough to get through to the end. Like it just couldn't be over fast enough. Picture yourself in Sabu's shoes where you know you're supposed to be waiting on this specific spot to happen. It's not happening, and you're standing there in front of all these people looking like a complete goof. (laughs) 
Oh. I mean, I guess this is where the the ability to adjust, adapt and overcome also comes into play again. It's like, how do you fill that time and make it feel natural and not awkward? But in that instance, I don't really think there was a whole lot anybody could have done in any sense. It, it was just going to be what it was. Yeah. And Sydney CW is always a fascinating thing because, you know, me and Bex talked about this on the show. I mean, Sid should be the type of guy that ECW fans should be rebelling against, but they're eating him up like candy. Isn't it amazing? I mean, you, I mean, you can anticipate fan behavior, but that doesn't mean that like it's never set in stone, right? Like, gosh, there's so many instances where that's happened, right? Where they want you to feel one way about somebody and the fans feel the complete opposite, you know? Yeah, but I think they knew. I think they knew what it was going to be anyway because they know how. Fa- Sid's the the guy who just he tr- just transcends that. Yeah, you know, he always has because he's Sid. <laughs> I mean, it, it, it's amazing to watch how fans react. He just to has him. people just get behind him. It, it's yeah. one of those things, right? Like that's the connection. It, you know, it's the connection. It's um, it's so crazy to me who has it and who doesn't. I'm I'm trying to think of like somebody who has that connection now and it's like inexplicable. It's like, oh gosh, like Jimmy Lloyd, for example, has that connection with the fans. The fans absolutely love Jimmy. Nick Gage. Yeah, but if you like look at these guys, like just if you were to just show a picture of them to somebody, you know, like, okay, but like they hit the ring and the fans are like so there for it. And and that's that that intangible quality that we were speaking of right and, and sid has that intangible quality that people are interested in what he's doing samoa Maybe joe they relate to him on some level right like yeah samoa joe like, is that is that way oh 100 samoa joe is definitely that way i think that people like somebody that they can can relate to on some level like they see some piece of themselves in either and that maybe, e- either that or somebody like sid who has that just fantastic look but he has this aura about him as well that they're just in awe of, you know? Yeah, it's a presence. It, yeah, a presence, exactly. I call it like the airport test, right? Where like if this person was walking through an airport, would they look like, would you Would you stop for a second and look at them like, oh, they must do something important or, oh, that's an interesting person, right? Vince, yeah, Vince is all about that. I mean, that's the yeah. thing he preached for years in WWF, you know? So well, I mean, it's not always size is the thing either. Like you know, what what dictates that is it is it size? Is it appearance based? I think it's a vibe. I think some people just have that vibe. Exactly. So it's it could go all it, about vibes. Yeah, it could go one or two ways. Like you said, you could be the re- relatability or the complete opposite. You know, it could yeah. work e- either way. All right. No, so let yes, let's go to the main event. Taz over Bubba Ray Dudley in twelve seventeen, a false count anywhere match for the title. Taz hit Bubba with a weak sign shot, and they brawl into the crowd. Taz juiced, apparently blading himself with about the third time in his career. Very rare. They wound up brawling in the lobby. Taz was really bloody. After Taz delivered a front superplex, Devon came out and hit Taz with a reverse DDT, while sign guy distracted referee John Finnegan. Finnegan got bumped. Pee Wee Moore ran in. Bubba used a powerbomb for a near fall, and the two did a double-team back suplex and net breaker spot on Taz for a near fall. Taz dropped Devon with a DDT, hit Bubba through the table with a T-bone suplex, used a choke for a tap out at the end of the show. Okay, it was okay. Nobody took Bubba yeah. seriously. 
Yeah, nobody took Bubba serious as a challenger for the World Title Pay-Per-View show, and this really wasn't the kind of match you want to end a big show with, starring three quarters. Well, that, and then all the stuff at the beginning of the show with Candido, I think kind of just took the wind out of people's sails. Yeah, I mean, they they really put themselves in a bind here and doing what they did. And they, you really, I mean, I don't know what they could have done to close this show out with a bang. I, I really don't. I mean, unless they wanted to really hot shot things, which I don't think they wanted to do on this show. No, uh huh. You know, so I mean, you can't do that. But um, I guess they they did about as good as they could have done under the circumstances, possibly. Absolutely. So yes, absolutely. It, they just put themselves in this position, though. So, I mean, Bix, what do you think? What's your feelings on how all this played out? We're working within the framework where no matter what, there's the Candido one minute opener instead of doing the Candido match yeah. as a real main event, right? Um, that, that was my point. I was like, well, I think people were just a little bit black. Yeah. Back from that. Yeah. It's like if you're doing that already, you would need to have like a big surprise replacement to make it work. So, the, well, yeah. how about this? How about, how about how about this? What if they? Let's say they still do the Tash Candido short match deal, but do it at the end of the show. Without Dudley's bullshit and that stuff. Do it in the show where, yeah, it's a short match, but Taz comes off looking like this fucking killer. Right. It, or maybe you make it a little longer than it went, but still do, you know, Candido's a professional still in this sense who was happy to do the quick job and make Taz look great. So just, I mean, we saw when it worked eventually, you just got to do it the right way. Like, like Lesnar Goldberg. How... I I would love to know whose idea that finish was in Toronto where Goldberg beat him in like two minutes because that was like the most genuine like holy shit I've moment I've had on a wrestling finish and I don't know how long. Yeah, it's like wrestling main events don't have to go 10, 15, 20 minutes. You could do one in less than two if you could book, if you book it right and fans will be like, oh, my God. Because they're not, you're not expecting it, you know, and 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 that adds a little extra to it. <clears throat> the fact that you're like you're doing that and it's unexpected, like what the fuck, you know? I can't believe that just happened. You know, I mean, why not do that here? I, I like mean, the curveball every once in a while. I think that it it's <clears throat> absolutely good. Absolutely, it keeps the fans on their toes. Absolutely. All right, well, let's Especially go to... like when something happens that you're not expecting oh, at all, period. Yeah. Like, yeah, who, and who would it, thinks yeah. they know it and, it, and that's not. Yeah. And who would have expected that as a main event finish, too? A, a match that went 70 seconds? Nobody. Nobody would know that. I mean, look at what they did with Bianca and Becky at SummerSlam. Like, people had. Oh, boy. People had felt a certain way about that. The... Yeah. <laughs> 32nd or whatever, 22nd yeah. match, however long it was. It was not, not very long at all. But yeah. Yeah, that, that had, that, there was a lot of other things involved in that, too. <laughs> yeah. But that's a whole well, other I mean, story. We can dissect that up one side and down the other, but I, yeah. I do think there is some value in throwing people a curveball every once in a while. Absolutely. Yeah, and expect, I just checked. Expect. Goldberg Lesnar's even shorter than I thought. It's a minute 26. Oh, yeah. wow. Yeah. So it's really you. 
it's uh, 16, only 16 seconds longer than the Teas Candido match that opened the show. Exactly. All right, let's go to the torch. Jerry Lynn suffered a broken nose and he took a bump midway to the pay-per-view match. Upon impact, Lynn thought he might have crushed his skull. His nose had been broken for about four weeks earlier, and he already planned to have surgery to repair his deviated septum at the pay-per-view. The ref asked Lynn if he was okay or he should, if he should tell Van Damme to go home and end the match early. Initially, he said to go home, not knowing the extent of his facial injuries. Once Van Damme carried him back to the ring, Lynn regained enough of his bearings and said, let's finish. After the match, he went to the hospital and got five stitches on his forehead and needed glue to close up a cut on the bridge of his nose as a result of the face first bump. Tough bastard, Jerry Lynn. Oh, yeah. That I mean, good wrong. lord. There was definitely I mean, a moment where he was just, like, <laughs> face down on the outside, not even, like, moving. It was very concerning. And Art is going in with a deviated septum. Already, you know. <sighs> Goodness. Yes. Absolutely. The move backstage preview was very positive before and after the show, although some were anticipating or hopeful for Heyman to announce a deal with TNN. There was a lot of joking amongst the wrestlers about checks bouncing, but silence fell over the room whenever the names of Douglas or Axel Rotten were brought up. <laughs> the reason why Bubba Ray Dillow was given the main event match against Taz is because Heyman is said to believe Bubba is the most overheal in the company right now. Bubba was upset with Gertner for standing so far back that the fireball at the pay-per-view missed him by over a foot. Oh, I'm sure he yelled at him. <laughs> yeah. Um... <sighs> Most overheal in the company. It's, eh. I mean, who do they have at this point? Impact players. They got them. Impact uh, players is a unit. I could see an argument for them over Bubba. No, but, they dealt this with the most overheals. Okay. I'm just trying to figure out how much I graded on a curve based on well, depending many, on what type of promos they're doing. Well, how many ECW shows did you attend where the Dudleys were doing this act? I never got to go to any ECW shows. I did. So, okay. <laughs> I, I know. I'm from experience how over they were at the hills. I mean, there, there were fans in Marietta that were literally trying to kill. I mean, kill. There's the famous deal at the damn, uh, oh, fuck, what restaurant was it? One of the restaurants outside the Cobb County Civic Center where they're all there and fans are trying to fight them in the restaurant. You know, okay. I mean, it was crazy. I didn't crazy. know that one. Okay. Yeah. What? It, was, it wasn't Longhorn. It may have been Red, uh, either Red Lobster or Ruby Tuesdays, one or two. But, yeah, they were there after the, after the show. And uh, fans were there, and they were pissed <laughs> because they were talking about fucking their mothers and all this other shit and digging up dead bodies and fucking them and stuff like that. I mean, they were getting the heat. I mean, oh, what, what's it? Was it cheap heat? Yeah, it was cheap, but it fucking worked. <laughs> it did the job. Shane Douglas' relationship with ECW was likely coming to an end whether or not the WF ever showed interest in him. Shane Douglas wasn't at the ECW arena last weekend because he was told not to come, Paul Heyman told the torch. He was told that his presence in the locker room was no longer welcome. I had a conversation with Shane Douglas at the beginning of last week, at which point I told him that it's better for the locker room and better for he and I not to be in the same locker room, and that the time had come for us to go our separate ways. Heyman apparently paid Douglas a substantial amount of back pay owed to him last week. Well, well, okay, okay. First of all, <laughs> not only is apparently doing a lot of heavy lifting there, but as far as we know, the main issue with Douglas is not back pay. No. 
No, it's credit cards. Yeah. Now, in the when the bankruptcy comes, I don't know if this was contested at all. Um, it says they owed Douglas forty, so maybe Paul did make good halfway. But no, it's not back pay in the first place. It, it, this is one of those times where we go through ECW coverage in this era, and it's like. You can see what Jason Powell's about to become, but he can also tell he's green and letting Paul get away with his shit too much. Yeah. Douglas still didn't appear at ECW pay-per-view on Sunday. Douglas did rip at ECW during a venomous speech at an independent event in Philadelphia night for the pay-per-view. In a statement released to the media day after the pay-per-view, Douglas said Heyman did not return his phone calls last week and never sent him a plane ticket for the pay-per-view. Heyman reportedly says Douglas threatened to expose the real financial status of ECW to TNN to try to kill the deal. On the WF front, Douglas took a physical and a drug test for WF, but the two sides have not yet come to terms on the deal. So there was obviously some interest in that from WF towards Shane at this point in time. Yeah, and I can't believe I never thought of this before. I always forget about their interest in him at the time. Isn't it interesting that here we are in May 99, um, Mm -hmm. WWF is interested in him. Mm-hmm. Eight months later, mm-hmm. his friends are so paranoid about him ruining their deal that they double cross him. Mm-hmm. What the heck happened? And one of the things I thought of just now, this is a, probably a long shot, but you know how we increasingly see people make the argument that Triple H is the game persona was basically Shane Douglas doing the franchise. Yes. What starts a couple months after this? That, <laughs> that whole, the whole, uh, you know, uh, change in look, so to speak. Yeah. The backwards, backwards Kangol hat, you know, all that stuff, the hair, mm-hmm. being like it is. Yes, he becomes the franchise. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Interesting, isn't it? Stay with a torch. Lance Storm joked about internet rumors that he's going to WF by asking friends if they'd heard he was in the WWF. Amos says Storm is signed to a two-year contract and can't go anywhere. Jerry Lynn agreed to turn to ECW for a two-year deal also, although the paperwork has not been signed. Oh, those ECW contracts. <laughs> that wouldn't be any issues in the next year or so. No. None. Chris Candido appeared on AOL night for the ECW pay-per-view and said that Paul Heyman believed he and Tammy Sage were headed to WCW. Candido gave away the finish of his match by saying Heyman had ordered a quick job. At this point, there are only denials out of WCW regarding the widespread rumors of Chris and Tammy negotiating with them. Chris led the pay-per-view about halfway into the event, right before the Van Damme Lynn match. He and Heyman appear to be cordial and businesslike towards each other the day of the pay-per-view, and even sat with each other at one point during the show. Aww. He was too nice. He, God love Chris. He was so nice. Especially with people in the business that would take advantage of him. That's weird. Sad. And, you know, he goes to WCW a year later. <clears throat> who knows Who knows how different, you know, Chris and Tammy could have been if they went to WCW at this point in time. You know, you know if they're there from the beginning with Russo coming in, you know, mm. how hard does Russo push Candido in that first run? Yeah. You know, it would have been interesting to see how that would have worked. I think he would have pushed him hard. I mean, he pushed him hard when he came back, and the only reason it got derailed was by all the bullshit with the arm injury. Yeah. So, 
I think he would have he would have pinned him up there, you know, probably if he went Benoit or some shit like that, you know, for the U.S. title. Mm-hmm. All right, this week's TV was from last week's ECW Arena show. They again picked up the Chris Chatty, Chris Candido, Taz Angle in progress. Chatty was already on the stretcher, and Candido looked apologetic and then attacked him. Taz made a save and also attacked Chris Chatty, saying if he did that to his own cousin, imagine what he'd do to someone he hated. Sort of made no sense. Yeah, I'd say it sort of made no damn sense. Hell, they just they do this to TV before the damn pay-per-view, where they do an angle where the Dudleys attack Chatty, and Taz just attacked him on the TV. So yeah, it didn't make no damn sense. Each up, everybody. Uh, Dave knows that Tamuel's looking almost like Courtney Love in the final scenes of that Larry Flint movie. <laughs> you're comparing her to a portrayal of a real person who both in the movie and in real life died of AIDS. That's rough. Yeah. Very, very rough. Yikes. Oof. Lance Storm just grabbed an interview claiming that since New York suspended Sabu's license that all other states have fallen in line like they did for Mike Tyson and that Sabu can't wrestle anywhere in the country. Kind of hokey since everyone pretty well knows that most states aren't regulated at all. Even if they were, nobody cares about the health of the wrestlers. They guess it made more sense than most WCW angles. <laughs> Kaya, you mean you 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 wrestle? I mean, what, the the states that have athletic commissions and the states that don't—is there that big of a difference? Yes, it's it's a process. Not only is it a difference, but it's very inconsistent state to state. Like, there's no universal athletic commission that some states have. It's a free-for-all. Um, I know Maryland has an athletic commission. They are at every show. They have a doctor there. You have to, like, meet with the doc, do a little mini-physical. I remember, like, I couldn't get a wrestling license because I couldn't prove I went to a wrestling school at one point in time when I was a garter. <laughs> wow. Um, which, I, you know, honestly, to be fair, this is that's not a bad thing. But... <laughs> <laughs> but um like i know in maryland you're not supposed to use weapons that they don't approve there was like one show i was on that the only weapon they approved was cabana man dance flip-flop <laughs> i like remember that being said in the meeting very specifically i know that you can't do like ddts or pile drivers you know that they fine you obviously these rules don't apply to larger wrestling companies because they just eat you know whatever the fine is and who cares but it does kind of make independent wrestling a little bit more difficult. I know Maryland does not permit intergender matches either. So there's that. Uh, New York, you know, Bix could probably fill you in on New York. Oh, have, yes. <laughs> yeah. They've got quite the athletic commission fiasco there. And <laughs> yes. other states that have one. I know Missouri, you have to have like blood work and a full sports physical to get a license. Virginia, you have to have a, like have to meet with the doc to get a license i think dc has a similar order of business i've heard south carolina has an athletic commission but the overarching thing here is like none of them are consistent with what they enforce and really they're just kind of there to collect fines absolutely it's all about the money on a theatrical performance yes all about the money well and in new york specifically making up rules too yes i don't actually like disagree with the concept of like an athletic commission like trying to somewhat regulate wrestling in the sense of like keeping people out of wrestling that should not be there 
right? Like if they wanted to go, oh, we're not going to issue wrestling licenses to people who are convicted sex offenders. I think that would be a great use of the time of the athletic commission. But yes, it's just I, like totally. it's misguided. I think that in in some sense that it could be reformed to be a very beneficial thing. But it's it's not. It's just another way to fine and collect fees and bog up the process, in my experience. Yeah. I will say the guys in Maryland are always very, like, decent, though, in comparison to some other states. Like, the Maryland guys are cool. Well, that's good. Yeah. You never know what kind of uh, deal you'll get involved with some of these commissioners. Yeah. Look, look Guido beat Moscow de la Merced. And Dave talks about how they're repackaging Guido's a tough little guy trained by Billy Robinson as sort of a, a short of a shoot style guy to work against the high flying small guy as opposed to his largely comedy role in the old FBI. Of course, it's a total style clash on paper since Moscow only knows Lucha, but it wasn't too bad. Sally Graziano did his interfering. Guido did a really cool looking powerbomb off the top rope. The fake crowd noise being piped in was really distracting as opposed to enhancing. It seems so 70s when you see fans not making noise and you have this whirling fake crowd noise that doesn't match the moves of the match. Guido won with the crab. So ECW, uh, fall, uh, going with the Kevin Dunn method of uh, <laughs> fake crowd noise on their TV in 1999. <laughs> yeah, and... Like, I remember it mainly from I – I think they would use it a lot when they were, like, transitioning from a non-in-arena segment, I guess, to make it flow. And then maybe they'd kind of go back to the real crowd noise. But it they, they did not do a particularly good job with it. it just, it's such a strange concept because the the only times it really works is if it's extremely subtle. Like, especially now when you have so many people watching on phones and tablets and with headphones and stuff. Like, it just doesn't make sense now. Like, and the other thing I really don't get is why SmackDown is so much more sweetened than Raw when they're both live shows. But It may be a, fo- it may be a Fox thing. I guess. It may be a Fox edict. That'd be a weird one, but... Well, it's Fox, so who knows? I mean, they show sitcoms with laugh tracks. Yes, <laughs> exactly. And Fox, this is a wrestling version of a laugh track. React yeah. now. <laughs> yeah, and laugh tracks these days are ridiculous. I, I don't watch TV outside of sports or wrestling, so... Well, that's, that's me too, but I... I yeah. come, like, it, well, I mean, watch Big Bang Theory. When it comes, I mean, if you can't catch I'm it right good. before AEW, and I don't need to watch that. I know I don't either, but I'm just saying. <laughs> I'm just saying if, if you can't, if you catch it maybe a few minutes before Dynamite airs, you can hear the obnoxiousness of the laugh track on on that show. It's really bad, and for the least funny shit too. It's so unfunny. And you're like, oh. <laughs> you know, it makes no sense. All right, next up, let's, let's talk about Shinoku and Yoshio Tajiri being super crazy in spite Dudley, who replaced Nova, who was destroyed early on by Guido and Sally. Nova's always built from Silicon Valley, which begets the question, does that mean he's from San Jose, California, or does that mean he's from the fantasy location where wrestling finds all of his women? Wow, he is really 1999-ing it up here this week, isn't he? Wait, wow. is this the match where, like, Spike Dudley comes in out of nowhere? Uh, Yeah. Oh, wow. Okay. All right. Yeah. My brain works sometimes. I remember really random things. 
Tajiri was mad at Guido for interfering in this match. They kept to build a little heat for the pay-per-view match and subsequent matches. When Nova was taken out, Spike came in. Taka must be tiny because he was even smaller than Spike. He was a smaller man. Highlight was talking to Jerry doing simultaneous aside moonsaults. It was a weekly three and a half star match out of ECW TV. Taka used mentioned Oka Drive on Crazy for the pin, which was setting up Crazy getting the win back on the pay per view. The last match was added like crazy, which was Dudley's beating balls and Axel, which was the angle to get rid of Axel. Sign guy finally spoke. They only showed the very beginning with some brawling that wasn't good. They picked up right at the finish and showed the fireball missing badly, and then doing the 3D on balls for the pin. So I missed Fireball on the TV show, too. How about that? Hmm. So there we I go. guarantee no children watching cared. They were just like, <laughs> oh, Fireball. Yep. Yep. All right, so Heyman is supposed to run a show in Manhattan in July in the Manhattan Center in their 2300-seat ballroom. Be Hammerstein, yes. And it would take a year after that. A full year, basically, yes. Yeah, well, uh, was it July or was it August? It was August. It was, was, it was year end plus. of July. It was end of July, I think, maybe. You know, what was so wild is like when we were there for GCW, like I walked around and the first thing I noticed is they had painted it because I yeah. remember like it's blue now and I remember it being red. And I remember like asking people like, because I thought it was crazy for a second. Like I was like, hey, like, did it used to be red in here or is it just me? And like we actually had to like sit down and confirm it. But yes, they've painted it blue now. It's like a lovely shade of baby blue. Yeah, yeah it looked I, different. I wasn't crazy about it. Um, no. Although it it didn't hit me until I was just looking up stuff to, when I um, wrote the article about the show for Fanbyte. Like, because it's really the same building. Like, you look at photos from like the twenties and thirties. It's really the it's more or less the same, except for that it doesn't have fixed floor seats anymore. That's yeah. got to be at this point the oldest, like, semi-continuous wrestling venue in the world, right? From when it was Manhattan Opera House. What yeah. about Cal Palace? Like, I know they used to run there in like the fifties and sixties. Yeah, but this goes back to like tournaments in this like, goes way back like the twenties and thirties. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Well, yeah. You're like Hackenschmidt, <laughs> shit like that. Maybe that you know, shit like that. Yeah. Uh, all right, uh, and you'll love this bitch from the torch. The belief in the locker room is that Heyman will stick with ECW as long as humanly possible for looking to outside investors to buy majority ownership to keep it alive. I mean, <laughs> kind of, yeah. Heyman insists he took blame for pulling New Jack out the pay-per-view and didn't tell Jack it was viewer's choice decision. Heyman also says Sid left ECW because he wanted too much creative control and not because of any bounced checks. He said Sid showed up in Queens, New York two weeks back while in the air for an indie show to collect his last paycheck. Not to collect on a bounce check. Heyman also says Axel Rotten has been let go because of personal problems, not because he raised a stink in a locker room over bounce checks. He says he was unaware of Axel's vocal complaints to the other wrestlers. Spin, 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 spin. <laughs> <laughs> well, it is the torch, the house organ, so there you go. Uh, poor Axel. Yeah, poor Axel and D, man. Too many problems. Mm. You never hear Sad. anything about him being anything other than a nice guy, though. Well, you know, I mean, that's a thing. Yep. Break the barrier. Or as Dave says, breaking the barrier. Break the barrier at DC Arena on May 15th, promoted by Allies of Scoops, drew approximately 400 fans and about 300 paid. 
for matches featuring a lot of indie talent, including the Pitbulls, Abdul the Butcher, Manny Fernandez, Rick Link, Stevie Richards, Tom Brandy, that jobber, Hillbanger Mosh, and others. Shane Douglas did one of those new line worksheet interviews about not appearing on the East End Pay Review the next night, where a lot of wrestlers did some insane moves or her good reports on a three-way with wrestlers from Steel City Wrestling. Mike Quackenbush, Don Montoya, and Lou Marconi. Well, let's go over this card here, and this is like your best of the indies in this time period in a lot of ways. Yeah, no doubt. APWF heavyweight title, three-way dance, as Dancing Stevie Richards, the King of Swing, defeated Jimmy Cicero, oh, and Tom Brandy, that jobber, to win the title. Then we had a WLW heavyweight title match, false can anywhere, Harley's promotion, as Derek Stone defeated Steve Sharp, who was Ali in uh, WCW in the developmental territory power pro. Then we had a uh, new dimension wrestling brass knuckles title match as Rick link man, Mount link retained his title going to a WDQ with the raging bull, Manny Fernandez. Yeah. IPW tag title match, which I guess is Ron Nemi's might be W as the pit bulls won the titles from Friday Kappa U Biff Wentworth and Chaz Wentworth. Well, no, you know how, you know, it's not the Florida IPW because there is a fraternity Greek-themed tag team that is not Phi Delta Slam. You're right. That Yeah, you're right. So it's another IPW. I think there was Who a Pennsylvania this? one, maybe? <clears throat> Could have been. Who knows? They've had a Maryland Championship Wrestling Heavyweight title match as Headbanger Mosh retained over Romeo Valentino. Oh. Then we had Tennessee Volunteers, Reno Riggins and Stephen Dunn over Christian York and Joy Matthews. A ladder match for the WWO heavyweight title as Scab beat Natron Steel to win the title. IPWA heavyweight title, Q-Ball Carmichael retained over Julio Sanchez. Then the Lord of the Dance title, a vacant title by Steel City Wrestling. Mike Quackenbush won over Don Montoya Lou Marconi. A first blood match, Fang beat Blade Boudreaux. Well, you would think a guy named Fang should win the first blood match. That and was then I thought exactly. I was like, <laughs> you know, yeah, it would yeah make but the other sense. one's named Blade. <laughs> yes, yes, it is. <laughs> yeah, it could be either or, right? Yeah, yeah. Then a CZW interpromotional hardcore title match, vacant title, as Nick Gage defeated Justice Payne. And our final match was a battle royal. Everybody on the show won by Tom Brandy. Chopper. So, yeah, I mean. <laughs> We have these indie super shows now, and you know we see all these different, you know, different guys, different promotions hook up and stuff like that. Here we are, in 1999, and this is like a revolutionary type show for that time period to have all these different independent promotion titles on the line on the same show. It's wild. It's the first like multi-promotion indie super show ever, you know, and now. It's commonplace, or at least fairly commonplace, you know, that you'll have either something like IWTV Family Reunion or, you know, you'll have these big blocks of shows like the Restival or whatever. But there was nothing like that before. What's the closest, like, you know, an interpromotional show like ECW versus WWA? Yeah. And that's not really the same thing, so. Yeah. I guess anything that falls under like the IWTV banner, you know, when they run the multiple, when they run like yeah. restable or if they run, I guess uncharted territory has multiple companies defending different titles on it at this point. But yeah. And, and, and it's good to have that, you know, 
it's good to spotlight wrestlers from other promotions that may not be seen, you know, because so, not everybody's watching everything. Because IWTV has got so much on there. It's hard to, you know, try to keep track of. There's not enough time in the day to watch everything on IWTV. So if you have this major type show and you spotlight all these people from all these different motions, I mean, it's a good thing because you never know who's going to break out and go, wow, you know, this guy, this guy, this guy needs to be used in a higher, you know, higher ranking promotion or something like that. I mean, that's a way to get known. You know, you're no longer a big fish in a small pond. Now you can move up, you know, into a bigger pond. So, yeah, I mean, I love stuff like this, you know, to see all these different people on these shows because it's not the same crew. You know, you get these some of these groups, it's the same crew all the time, you know. And when you have something like this where there's so many different people, variety, I mean, it definitely adds something to it. Yes. And no, it, it definitely does. And, and just honestly, it's really interesting to me that like they would have CCW defend their interpromotional hardcore championship, which was like their version of at the time the WWF hardcore championship per se, right? And then defend it in oh god, but I'm trying to remember. There was it was a um it was a it was a staple staple gun match, right? Like that was the the gimmick for that match. Yes. If I remember correctly. Yeah. Yes, yeah, something like that. Like yeah. after having all of these independent wrestling matches that are very kind of run of the mill except for the first blood then you have these two guys come out semi-main event like oh yeah staple gun match let's go well like i think part of it is probably is that czw as far as a promotion i think just launched right yeah it's like a month or two in yeah yeah very early in the game and you know nick and justice i mean they're very young in the business babies super yeah babies I mean, we, we, when you watch Dark Side in the Ring, you know, and you see, you know, the early footage of, of, of them together, you know, when they're first starting out, I mean, good Lord. <laughs> they're so yeah. young. Yeah, and so they were just, young. like, all over the place in that match. Like, not only, like, you're running the middle hardcore match, but they're, like, brawling all over. Like, I think at one point, like, Justice Payne chucked, chucked them off the top of the entranceway. <laughs> like, it was wild. Yeah, and Bix, for people, I mean, this is 23 years ago, Al Isaacs. Talk about Al Isaacs. Where do we even start? I still don't understand how Scoops even became a thing. So it was, I think technically at first he didn't have a domain name, right? I think it was like on whatever like company he worked for his website, but then it became ScoopsCentral.com. Scoops Re- ScoopsWrestling.com. Well, ScoopsWrestling.com came after. First it was Scoops Central, then Scoops Wrestling, I believe. And he was this, like, Long Island stand-up comedian and comedy teacher who somehow made some friends in wrestling and started reporting news and at the beginning seemed to be relatively accurate, if I remember right. And then, I mean, long before this, because it was 97 you know, started falling off a cliff where, you know, the joke everyone makes, but it's because it happened and repeatedly, was that he would report, like, frequently in the summer of 97 that Yokozuna was coming back to the WWF to join the Hard Foundation. <laughs> and we and we talked about earlier in the show about the signs at Raw and stuff. I mean, there was scoop signs every week at yep. TV. He was that over with, with, with those fans, internet fans. 
He was one of those guys that everybody went out to because, I mean, you got to remember, this is the time period where there's, you know, Dave has no internet presence. Torch has a weak internet presence at this point in time. So these news aggregators, like Scoops and stuff, they are where everybody's getting their news if they're not subscribed to the newsletters. You know? Mm-hmm. Well, anyway, I found this. This isn't in the notes, but I found this. Our old friend Bix, Nate Stein, did an interview with Al Isaacs um, not too long after the Break, Break the Barrier show. It's probably been about 2000. So he asked him about this, and uh, I'm going to uh, do the thing here. So Nate asked him, what sticks out in your mind about the Break the Barrier experience? Al said, the whole thing. My wife slapping Tom Brandy right at the top. Totally <laughs> unexpected, unplanned, unrehearsed. He gave me the power bomb, and she just belted him. That's that Italian temper, I guess. The fact was she was supposed to come out and make sure I was okay, but Lutez was in there as well and told her to bail. When Lou tells you something, you do it. So she was panicked, and it just happened. Needless to say, I was still unconscious in the ring. Brandy couldn't hit her back, so he climbed back in the ring and pounded on me some more, and I didn't know why. Also, the opening segment with Shane Douglas, where he quit ECW. We did not know he was going to do it. We just stood in the back saying, how in the hell we follow this? <laughs> I saw Shane at the Brian Pillman show this year, and he was working for WCW. I told him we were playing Break the Barrier 2, and he was like, great. Now do I have to quit WCW at your show? <laughs> 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 Why not? I said it would have been like having Pete Rose getting destroyed by Kane every year. <laughs> It says, oh, I can't forget Headbanger Mosh. He used Adam Sandler's song at a medium pace as his entrance theme. Classic. The whole uh, thing was a really great experience. I wouldn't trade it for anything. <laughs> at a medium pace. That is uh, fantastic. Yay. And then uh, uh, Break the Barrier also got recycled as a name for uh, the first IWTV TV promoted show. That is correct. <laughs> yes. The old powerbomb.tv days. Yeah. Yes. So, a fun weekend in, in, regarding Pennsylvania-related independent wrestling. All right, well, let's go to the World Wrestling Federation now, and uh, we have a actual pay-per-view to talk about, only in the United Kingdom. As the World Wrestling Federation's second United Kingdom-only pay-per-view event called No Mercy took place on May 16th before a sellout crowd announced on the air as 18,107 at the 9X Arena in Manchester. Okay, real quick. Um, This is the event, if anyone wants to watch it, known as No Mercy UK retroactively because they decided to recycle the name for a regular pay-per-view later that year. Yes. Also, it's the third UK pay-per-view, not the second. I mean, if... If you if you really want to watch it, no, I didn't bother. It's, I remember this being the most skippable show ever, pretty much. It's nineteen ninety nine WF, so I mean, you pretty much if you've seen if you've seen ninety nine WF, you've seen it. So there you go. It's a pretty straightforward show with no major surprises. Reports generally have considered it an average show with first class production, but not particularly good wrestling. There are a lot of video features that catch people up on different major angles pertaining to the corporate ministry which were the stars of this show. The show, advertised locally on pay-per-view channels as lasting three hours, was over in two hours and 15 minutes, which caused at least some complaints. 
who are those people? Most of the show was going around <laughs> Shane McMahon, the corporate ministry. Shit, I'd give me a wrestle the ends early, for God's sake. Uh, there was more tall than you'd have expected on Davy Boy Smith, who grew up in Manchester and started his career at the age of 15 in the area back in 1978. And it was the first on-air acknowledgement of his injuries and health problems by either major promotion. Since Smith was given a termination notice by WCW, although at last word WCW was still paying him, he's a free agent. And it made it clear he wants to return to WWF. During the show, Mick Foley did an interview and brought up Davey Boy, saying that he had called him up, but because of the time difference, had woke him up. And later in the show, they heard a video tribute to Davey Boy, showing clips of his legendary Wembley Stadium match where he won the IC title from Bret Hart in 1992, with Jim Ross and Jerry Lawler, who did the show, talking about his health problems. Davey's condition was well known in England because of exaggerated front page type stories in News of the World, oh, the most well read tabloid. So is he still in the hospital? Yeah, this is that injury, yeah. Yeah, so for those who don't know, because I feel like this doesn't even get talked about that much anymore, um, he obviously already had bad drug issues. Just watch anything he did in that last WCW run. But he took a hard bump on Ultimate Warrior's trapdoor at Fall Brawl, badly messed up his spine, because of the existing drug problem, some people in the family and in WCW thought he was faking, and eventually he ends up with, like, an infection in in his spine and in a full body cast in the hospital Ooh. near death, if I remember right. I mean, it really is amazing that he was able to come back like he did and wrestle in just a few months. Totally amazing. How that he happened. was not the same, but he No, but goddamn, he was yeah. almost paralyzed. Right, exactly. <laughs> Jesus. So yeah, crazy. Alright, so uh Dave uh, had uh, the rundown and match ratings for the show sent to him by Brent Burke, since Dave couldn't watch the show well, wait, 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 wait a second though. Isn't this the era where Mo Chatra is doing the British Observer distribution? Why isn't Mo the uh, source? I don't know. Don't ask me. <laughs> <laughs> the show opened up like a raw with a corporate ministry interview with Shane McMahon telling what was going, to, what he was going to do during the show. The interview said it had been not very good as Shane bought some lines. The basic gist was that the main event would be turned into a no-holds-barred match. All right, then. Tiger Ali Singh pinned Gilbert in your opener in 65 seconds after a net breaker. Before oh the match, yeah. Before the match, Jim Ross announced the match as Singh versus Goldberg by accident. Oops. <laughs> when Gilbert came out, Ross said something to the effect of Gilbert, Goldberg. There isn't much of a difference. Crowd wasn't into it except they popped when Gilbert hit the spear, which Singh sold. As Gilbert was playing to the crowd, Singh got up and hit Netbreaker for the pin. Dud. A stellar opener. Hell of a way to make people <laughs> think they're getting a legitimate pay per view. <laughs> Jesus. And I guess maybe they were just assuming, let's give them a couple more minutes to get to their seats. <laughs> maybe. <laughs> it's like, oh, the lines are really bad outside. Let's uh, just buy them two more minutes. <laughs> yeah. Slow getting everybody in. Exactly. I wonder if that's a thing sometimes. I don't know. Probably well, not. They probably Well, you know, much, I mean, old, old wrestling, you know, back in the day, in the territories and wherever. I mean, the opening match was always like the lowest guys on the car. Everything, everything always built to the end at most of your shows. So you didn't have like a hot opener. 
<laughs> yeah, the hot idea of the hot opener is definitely a newer concept, and I don't know how I feel about it because sometimes it makes like the next two or three matches that follow feel significantly underwhelming when they shouldn't. Like, I get it. Like, starting off hot, I think, has a place. Like, okay, WrestleMania 35. I thought that was a great idea to have Brock and Seth as the opener. I was like, oh, this is fun. This is great. Like, totally out of left field. But most of the time, I feel like it doesn't always work that way because it just kind of waters down whatever was coming down the pike. You know, people are up so high, and then inevitably, more often than not, the match that follows does not deliver on the same level. And then it's like, womp, womp. Well, I mean... Well, you're, you're a, a great person to ask this question since you since your work and everything. I mean, how do you feel? Do, do you feel like uh, the better way is to have the peaks and valleys or start start low and work your way up? I mean, I think it just it, a lot of it, I think, is circumstantial. It depends on what you have on the card and what you have to work with. Like, OK, who do I have to work with tonight and where can I position them? That makes sense. I know one of the things we talk about frequently is like, it's not so much what you want to do, but what you need to do that night. So when you are in the back and you're looking at the rundown of the matches and you're like, oh, I'm fifth or, oh, I'm, I'm second or, oh, I'm, I'm semi-main or wherever you're at, you look at where you're at on the card. And then you also like look at who's before you and then who's after you so you can get a better understanding of what your role is that night per se, right? Like, yeah. I think that your opening match. And, and this is all my opinion. I mean, I'm sure people could argue this up one side and down the other and be very logical in doing so. But, you know, if you're first, it's like, you got to move. Even if it's not a hot opener, it's like, you want to move, you want to move, be moving, get the people into it. Like you don't want to necessarily start off real slow per se. Right. You know, second or third, maybe there's more room to be a little bit slower, but if that first match is just like, a barn burner it's like it, it's tough if you're second or third to come out and and deliver on that level unless what you're doing is so wildly different from what the first match was like the only people who truly i think benefit from that super fire hot opener is like if the second match happens to be something that's a little bit more gimmicky or comedy and then it's like oh this is so completely different from the barn burner we're we're okay and we're willing to play along and then by the time the third match rolls around the palette has been cleansed so yeah I, I, that's that's my yeah. idea or how i've noticed it seems to work really well if the first match is super hot and super over because if you try to have like a real serious like another barn burner right after if you're not at the same level of that first match it's just going to fall short regardless of how good you are, how tight you are, how clean you are, if you can't keep the crowd up. And then you're also dealing with crowd fatigue, right? Because they're so amped up from that first match. Like it, the shoe's going to drop at some point. They're going to get tired and sit down. So it, it's yeah. just, it's a tough yeah. position for whoever follows. Like, what was it? We were talking about, like, I think it was at WrestleMania this year. We were talking about how like the card order was a little wonky because Cody and Seth had such a good match that it kind of made the stuff that like it was an AJ and edge followed. And like that match wasn't like bad per se, but it just didn't continue the momentum that had been established. It was not different enough. And it, it was almost like a detriment to that match to be in that position in my humble greenhorn opinion. <laughs> well, I mean, it, you have a big major, major return, you mm -hmm. know, I mean, how do you follow that? Exactly. You're, I mean, you're right. So yeah, and, and and I've talked to many wrestlers over the years that's worked indies and stuff, and you know we always talk about stuff like this and talk about how the match that they hate working the most is the first match after intermission. 
Yeah, that's because... tough because everybody's <laughs> like got their food. They've gone to the bathroom. They're trying to get their kids resettled. Like it's yeah, that's a tough one. Um, Very tough. <laughs> that's a tough spot to be. It, it's not impossible. You just have to like know. Okay, like if I was tasked with that spot, I would be like, all right, this is a good time to not start off hot and maybe do some camaraderie in the beginning while people get back into their seats. Like that's yeah. how I would maybe attack that, especially having my gimmick being a witch. It's like, oh, what witchy shit can I do to eat <laughs> like 30 seconds or 45 seconds here at the beginning of the match to like get my character over and hopefully get the other person over as well. But also let people kind of settle back into the mode of watching wrestling. Exactly. Yeah. So again, it's it's knowing um it's knowing where you're at on the card. And like the first person who really kind of made me aware of that was actually Chris Dickinson. And that's like a piece of advice that has stuck with me to this day. Like it was oh, yeah. just very insightful. Yeah, absolutely. All right. So next we have uh, the Acolytes, Farouk and Bradshaw with Viscera, beating the new Brute, well, the original Brute, Gangrel, Edge, and Christian at 1349. Mm-hmm. Edge and Christian looked real good carrying the match, which is better than expected. And the Brood overall got a good crowd reaction. Finish saw Midian give Gangrel the DDT on the floor, threw him back in the ring where Bradshaw pinned him with his clothesline from hell, star and three-quarter. Oh, right. This is after the Brood got kicked out of the ministry after, like, six weeks. Yes. <laughs> so <laughs> they're, they're doing their penance here to... Uh, the Acolytes of Viscera here. Yes, and you know, for something that people remember so well, and granted Gangrel is the main part, and then the other guys becoming stars, but like, the Brood was not together long at all, especially as no. all three of them. <laughs> not at all. No, no. It's just one of those things where people remember it being longer, but it wasn't, yeah. Steve Blackman beat Draws in 753 with a Fujiwara armbar. Blackman was no different from when he was last seen. The plan, at least as a few weeks ago, was for him to return as a heel, and that probably is still the case, but since it hasn't happened on television, it hasn't happened. Not much heat, half a star. I greatly enjoy Steve Blackman as a wrestler. Steve Blackman was like a cult favorite, you know? Yeah. A lot of people liked him. He's not at the forefront of everybody's mind. Like, it doesn't upset me at all, but I always appreciated what he brought to the table at the time he was performing. I remember his Jax figure being popular too. That people would that that, that his Jax figure would would be one that sold more than you would think. So, yeah. I mean, it's the like, kids probably thought he was cool, man. Karate guy, you know. Exactly. He's got yeah. the he's got the sticks and everything. Yeah. Yeah. All right. So Foley came up for his interview and first congratulated Manchester United for winning the Premier League Championship, which took place earlier that day. That actually got something about Mixed Reaction live. Manchester's home <laughs> team is considered the most famous professional sports franchise in the world. Dave notes, soccer is, after all, by far the most popular sport with the most worldwide following. And Dave read somewhere that United's valued at a billion dollars. But there were a lot of fans in that building from around the country, many of whom favored the rival Tottenham team that was beaten in that mm-hmm. game. He didn't talk about Davy Boy. Well, there's another thing, too. I mean, you got Manchester City as well. Right. Manchester so City got... is the actual <laughs> local favorite. Manchester United is like they happen to be based in Manchester, but they're like the Yankees or the Cowboys well, or. Well, it, uh, uh, the Mets and the Yankees. Right? There you go. So there's, there's, there's your analogy. analogy. There's your analogy. 
Man- Manchester City's the Mets. Manchester United's the Yankees. And the Mets are, are way more vocal fans, yeah. you know, and stuff. It's like the Jets and the Giants in NFL. I mean, the NFL draft just happened. And there's every year you always get that video of the Jets fans losing their minds when they when they make stupid draft picks. You don't see that video for the Giants fans. <laughs> so, I mean, it, it's like that. I mean, it, it's that you have that that regal franchise and you have that franchise that's that, that step below that is in that same seat, but it's beloved in that way. Kind of like Cubs and White Sox in Chicago is like that in a way too. Yeah. So yeah, it's just, it's just the way it is, but they always do this at, at when, when they have run events in Manchester or they, I think, I don't know if they've done it in recent years, but they always played up the Manchester United thing. And it always like, yes, it's I a remember. totally mixed reaction. <laughs> I think, it, I think it, cause there's what, like there's an annual insurrection pay-per-view for what the two years after this. And then there's no more UK shows, I think something like that. And I want to yeah. say it at least one of them, maybe both there's trying to get cheap heat or cheap pops using Manchester United, not realizing that's not the way you do that. Yeah. It's not the local flavor. <laughs> no. Midian does double duty on this show as Kane beat Midian by DQ in 436 when the entire corporate ministry did a run in after Kane delivered a choke slam. X-Pop made the save with a kendo stick, quarter of a star. You know what this card is? It's... A 1999 Ross smushed together with like a 1998 B-level pay-per-view in terms of like the the yes. way the depth and the matchmaking is. Yes. You know, yes. like, yeah. you know, you expect to see like Farouk and Two Cold Scorpio against Harry Funk and Bradshaw or something like that. Yeah, exactly. Well, you got this instead. Nicole Bass Pintori in 27 seconds after a choke slam. This was scheduled as Sable versus Tori, and Sable was there, came out, did her grind, and then said she had a cold and couldn't wrestle, and would have Nicole Bash take her place. Nicole no-sold a few blows and hit a choke slam right away, said to be beyond awful, dud. Well, we're going to play the clip for this because this is Sable's final appearance in the World Wrestling Federation until she returned four years later. So here we go. is why all the women want to be me and why all the men come to see me. Brian, please. Are you boys ready for the grind? By the way, she genuinely does not look like she wants to be there at all. No. I mean, the lawsuit's no. coming in like two weeks, so you can figure she's probably talking to someone already. <laughs> her hair is, is I mean, her living in the South, I mean, she has the prototypical late 90s Southern Belle hairstyle right here, folks. Oh, my goodness. Where's she looks she, like she'll be belting out uh, some Shania Twain in a karaoke bar somewhere. Well, I mean, she's from Florida <laughs> and lives in Georgia at the time, right? Oh, so. that's what I'm saying. She's yeah, a Southern it's... Belle. She's a Southern Belle, but she's got the hair, buddy. Oof. Manchester, England. I said, are 
Aaron Nees coming on out. In your gloomy, damp country this morning. This morning. David from Mouth to Mouth Table, I'm here. I have developed a chest cold. Oh, that could be <laughs> fatal. 1999. And let me tell you, when Sable develops a chest cold, it's a big problem. You're not kidding. Yeah. Close when up puppies get sick. <laughs> if that was scripted, why did he step all over it? Now I know everyone's extremely disappointed because you all came to see me this evening. I'm not disappointed, I see you. But I am under doctor's care and he has advised me not to wrestle in this evening's match. Hey, Dr. King, Dr. King. But don't worry. There will be a match taking place this night. This night. Uh-huh. What? The world's largest female bodybuilder and Sable's own personal bodyguard, Uh-oh. Nicole Bass, will be taking my place. Oh, my gosh. That ain't good for Tori. I think Tori might develop a chest cold. So please excuse me. Why I go back to my country to nurse my chest cold. Let me nurse it. <laughs> Dr. King, Dr. King over here. Calling Dr. Lawler, Dr. King, Dr. Lawler. Well, Sable, uh, apparently a little under the weather. She looks great, but she's not feeling well, apparently. So uh, I guess uh, we'll have this uh, ladies' match. Nicole Bass. Oh, and she leaves ringside, too. <laughs> That's interesting. With her, you might not be feeling well either. If I hung out with her, my wife would kill me. She must have already given her notice or something because they're already teasing that her and Bass are splitting. And Nicole Bass is looking at him like, okay. Lori, <laughs> better get you some while you can. Condition young athlete, but my god, she looks like a little baby compared to Nicole Bass. And folks, this one may not last long. Mm. Right in the middle of the ring, that may be all right there. Corey, uh, this completely out man. Here is your winner. Nicole Let's see what JR did there. No, no pun intended. Oh. It, lo- it looked like she apologized to Tori for the choke slam after the finish. Oof. <laughs> Which. <sighs> that was sub great Kali choke slam. <laughs> it's like she was trying too hard to protect her and she messed it up. It was like know. she was, instead of being like straight up, like, you know how like your, your back would be like, like parallel to the person holding you, right? Like you would be still straight up and your feet would be like extended outward. Like you wouldn't be like, with your back already toward the canvas, curled in like a little baby. <laughs> yeah. You would you would still be upright, and then you would ideally take the high schoolboy bump when she drops you. But you have to jump, too. Maybe, like, Tori didn't jump. But, like, if that was, like, a product of somebody, like, A, 
doing it for the first time, not coming from a wrestling background and be someone having lead in their ass at the same time. <laughs> yeah. And poor Tori, you know, she gets plastic surgery to be part of this big angle with Sable and then Sable quits. <laughs> oh God. Wow. Woof. But she ended up having a decent run in the end. So, you know, she made the best out of it, I guess. Yeah. Alright, uh, Shane McMahon and X-Pac was next. Shane McMahon pinned X-Pac in 821 to retain the European title. Dave says, I know what you're saying. Didn't McMahon retire the title on television and it's never been referred to again? The answer is yes. But for this show only, that interview never took place. Well, I wonder why, Dave. They're in Europe. <laughs> this should have been a decent match, but not closer to a WrestleMania match. Shane tried to run away early, but Pat Patterson and Joe Briscoe caught him running away and threw him back in the ring. Hunter Hurst Helmsley in China was at ringside. The finish saw Triple H in China interfere on four occasions with China tripping the ref and Triple H using the pedigree on Xbox and putting Shane on top of him for the pin. Two stars. So they did literally the same finish as WrestleMania just without the turn because they did it already. Yes. They're Bro. playing the hits, brother. They're house showing it right here, basically. Uh, I mean, they, it's what it is. It really is something how especially since I thought the first show did well, they put no effort into these shows after the first one. Oh, no, no. I, it, yeah, it's just it's just what it is, you know? Um, the, I mean, fans, I, the fans are starved for the wrestling, and, you know, you just give them what you want to give them, you know? Yeah. Hey, Ca Capital Carnage, I remember, had a decently attractive lineup going in, but then they switched the top matches around during the show. You know, yeah, the one like six months earlier. So I don't get it. It's like, yeah, you're doing monthly pay-per-view, so it's a little tricky, but and you don't have anyone you can really tailor to the market with, with Bulldog gone at this time, but there's got to be a better way to do it than a show like this. Yeah, but they, they did a hell of a house, so it worked. All right, before the next match, Mankind was attacked by the entire corporate ministry, and they injured his bad knee, which leads us to Billy Gunn pinning Mankind 11:27. This match consisted of largely of Gunn working over the injured knee before winning with the famous on a chair. It was described as going too long with just working the knee, star and a half. At this point in the show, Ross and Lawler did the tribute for Davy Boy, and then we get the main event. Stone Cold Steve Austin retained the WF title in three-way over The Undertaker and Triple H at 1507. All three brawled outside the ring for five minutes. Technically, similar to the ECW pay-per-view show, the bell never actually rang to even start the match. At the beginning, Undertaker and Helmsley worked as a team on Austin, but as the match wore on, it became everyone for themselves, telling the story that both wanted the title for themselves, and there could only be one winner. Austin ended up hitting the stunner on both before he could score a pinfall. The entire ministry ran in. At this point, all the Bayface under the car ran in. They brawled to where the original wrestlers were left in the ring, and Austin a stunner on China. Then Triple H for the pin. After the match, he hit one to Vince, or excuse me, Shane, and then another one to Triple H. And the show ended with Austin, X-Pac, and Earl Hebner in the ring drinking beer together. Three stars. Is this the one where Austin's neck, uh, uh, excuse me, knee brace nearly tears Undertaker's ear off? I don't know if it's this one. I know what you're talking about, but I don't know if it's It's a three-way main event with those two, I think, on a UK paper. Oh, no, 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 no. It was, um... It, if, if based on the was it the Broken Skull Sessions or something? It was um. He remembered it as being the same one as Plane Ride from Hell. 
in O two, but were did they wrestle each other on that show? I don't remember. But Undertaker also just is not really capable of having good matches at any point in nineteen ninety nine for physical reasons. <laughs> well, who is? <laughs> I mean, nineteen ninety nine is the is not the land of good wrestling. That's for no, damn sure. But, but, but it was a, a, amazing a, year business wise. <laughs> yeah. But he's also this is the most he would be a physical wreck until his career started winding down. Well, he needed that break he would get, yes. you know, that 2000 and all that. So that helped him out. Plus changing his style a little bit as well helped him out. Yeah. But anyway, there's no mercy UK. All right. So let's talk about some other stuff. Entertainment tonight did a TV feature this past week on the women of the WWF. It was pretty clear that WWF was trying to market Deborah ahead of Sable in the piece. Oh. And I mean, Sable leaves, Deborah steps right into the forefront and becomes, you know, their new choice. Yeah. Um, okay, it couldn't have been in, it couldn't have been Insurrection 2002 cuz they don't wrestle each other on that show. Okay. So it's um it is okay, it's they did the same main event at Insurrection 2001 in a, as a handicap match. That's why. Uh-huh. Okay. Well, there you go. Um, it, it say, it, and then Deborah, you know, when when Jeff leaves, I mean, that changes everything with her, too. So she kind of slides down at that point in time. But anyway, they need somebody to replace Sable, and she was next in line. The Nash Bridges episode of Austin did an 8.2 rating and a 14 share on May 14th. The previous two weeks had done 7.7 and 8.0 respectively, so it was an increase over the usual number. The show was promoted much harder in the previous two weeks, and it was the final episode of the season. So the rating for the show without Austin probably would have been around the same, unlike Austin's first appearance, which drew a 9.8. Times change. Yeah, and, and, and you know what? He was a, a you know he did a great job on that show. Yeah. You, you know, very good job on that show. Yeah. It's kind of surprising that he didn't turn that into more of a acting career, you know, where they're getting his own TV show or doing movies and stuff like that, because well, he, he did very well as Jake Cage. Wasn't Jake it Cage. like a newspaper wrestling columnist rumor in this era that he was looking into getting a Jake Cage spinoff because he felt the schedule would be better with regards to the custody issues and the divorce from Jeannie? Yeah. I don't know if that was true, but it was like it was one of those things where it was like out there, but it wasn't the usual people who report on wrestling. So it was a little questionable, but I could see it being true. Didn't go anywhere, though. Yeah. Austin appeared on the Late Late Show on CBS with Craig Kilborn. Oh, Craigers on May 12. Kilborn didn't know much about wrestling. I'm shocked at that. Austin informed him that Vince Man is the owner of WF and Ted Turner owns the second rate WCW. He reiterated the story of how he was given the name Austin and said his ex-wife came up with the name Stone Cold. To close out the segment, Kilborn asked Austin the standard five questions, a gimmick Kilborn carried over from his days as host of Comedy Central's Daily Show. With the final question being, if Austin cries after a match, Austin replied, yes, and managed to get all five questions correct. Yay. <laughs> I miss old Craigers. Yeah, although uh, wrestling fans would do a 180 on him in an, about a week. So, <laughs> You want to explain why that is, Pex? That was his... Should I look it up to make sure I get the quote right? Let's see. Yeah. 
Cray killed Borno in heart. Yes, yes. Uh, it's in his IMDb quotes list. Oh boy. Oh boy. On the Late Late Show. All right. I'm not sure if it's there because it's notable or because they someone actually thought it was funny. But okay, World Wrestling Federation wrestler Owen Hart, known as the Blue Blazer, died Sunday night. Blue Blazer's partner, White Turtleneck, was unharmed. Yeah. Yeah, that was a uh, deal at the time. Could you imagine that today? And it was a big deal at the time, too. <laughs> Could you imagine that today? Yeah. <laughs> All the apologies that would be going on. Also, oh, it's happening gracious. like once a year at this point because there was the JYD thing on ESPN about a year earlier, too. It's wrestling. Yeah. Oh, wait. Uh... Oh, wait, I saw something. I saw a headline that said a comic who made joke about Owen Hart responds, but wasn't that it, – it's from 08 when there was that roast where someone made that inappropriate joke, and then some of the wrestlers wanted to Oh, it was a roast. Him. Well, anything goes at roast, so. Yeah. Wow. All right, so – you, you can still be in poor taste <laughs> at a roast. It's it's a thing. <laughs> yeah. All right, so uh, the tourist talks about how Vince was profiled in a favorable cover story in last week's U.S. News and World Report. And then was interviewed by CNBC in response to the article. In the article, he admitted the cheating on his wife numerous times, but stopped when he realized how much he was hurting other people. He said he could do a better job patting people on the back for a job well done. He said he is proud he only hires quality human beings. Yes. In 1999, he says that. He defended the WF storylines by saying the kid's story, Snow White, includes a stepmother demanding that her stepdaughter's heart be brought to her. Instead, the heart of a boar is brought to her, and she thinks that it's that of Snow White. Okay. He talked about having dyslexia and ADD, which caused problems with his grades in school through college. He talked about getting court-martialed in military school, then struggling at East Carolina University to graduate in five years, including summer school. He said his biological mother had been married five times, and he talked about being raised by an abusive stepfather. The more entertaining story was about his son Shane at age four being scared of Dracula being in his bedroom closet. Vince went into the closet, made a bunch of racket, then walked out and told Shane not to worry because Dracula is now dead. <laughs> Dracula's dead anyway. <laughs> well, he's undead. Well, yes. And uh, during the CNBC interview, he was asked if he has considered taking the WF public. Uh-oh. MS is an intriguing idea and a possibility in the future, but has no concrete plans to do so. Oh, this is rich. He also said that USA Network head Barry Diller stands behind the content of Raw. He said the two of them had dinner the week before. He compared his writing staff to that of a Hollywood studio, adding that the stars also have input on their characters. How about that, Bix? How about that US News and World Report story, huh? <laughs> I'm intrigued just by how... A lot of this is just the same stuff he'd end up saying in the Playboy interview two years later. Well, it's it's out two years earlier in this in this article. So. Yeah, but I mean the Linda stuff, the Dracula story, the, some of the childhood stuff, but not all of it. And yeah, like that's interesting. Like, did he have like pat answers just for everything? Just got a great memory, I guess, at the time. Uh, well, I guess um, if people want to read it. At, it is uh it is in the microfilm archive on uh, archive.org that they have in the US News and World Report. So there you go. There you go. 
Vince had a meeting with TSN executives on May 12th of Toronto, actually just outside Toronto, talking about the content of Raw and where the show would be going. Raw is being investigated by the CRTC, similar to the FCC in the United States, even though TSN heavily edits the show. CRTC is most concerned because Raw airs at 4 p.m. Eastern time on Tuesdays, and also because TSN doesn't have a stagger fee, so the show airs on Monday nights at 6 p.m. on the West Coast. You can already see many aspects of Raw toned down as far as graphic, really tasteless stuff, and they are mainly going for the double entendre humor. Uh, I don't know about that. <laughs> I don't think it starts getting toned down, if you want to say toned down, until later in the year. Would you yeah, say that, Vix? Yeah, it's the PTC stuff, I would say. Yeah. Yeah, I'm trying to see... I'm doing a Google site search of the CRTC website. See if there's anything. Okay, this page is not here anymore. Uh, maybe I need to use the, I'll do the cached version. Yeah, there's something, that, there's a transcript from 1999 from, yeah, from June 7th, right? Okay, that's not working either. Okay, well, I'll have to find this separately then because it looks like they changed their website around. But if you have some free time, it is worth, digging into some of the weird complaints people have made to the CRTC about Monday Night Raw and stuff over the years. As with FCC complaints, they can get amusing. Well, Kyle was a youngster in that time period. Uh, was Monday Night Raw quality television for a uh, child under the age of 10 in that time period, in your mind? I, I mean... <laughs> This could be a huge can of worms, right? I think that <laughs> my my personal belief is like, well, yes, there are things you obviously probably shouldn't show to children. I think the majority of egregious violence, you just tell kids that's not how we actually act in real life. Like, it's okay to enjoy it as a show, but we don't behave that way. And they'll turn out fine. Uh, my parents never had a problem with me watching wrestling. They explained to me that it was like a movie and that's not real life and we don't act that way. And I never had behavioral problems related to watching wrestling, but so I don't necessarily know if I'm the best person to ask here because I, you know, if I had kids, I probably would have let them watch it, whatever. It's, it's like any good guys versus bad guys show kids watch, right? Power Rangers, Ninja Turtles, which also people didn't want their kids watching at the time. Yeah, so, yeah. so it's, to me, it's like, it's, it's more of a parenting thing, like teaching your kids right from wrong than like wrestling being like bad for kids. Exactly. I mean, it's it's the parent's discretion. I am a a perfectly functioning, well-adjusted member of society, so I don't (laughs) think that you could blame the downfalls of people on because they watched wrestling in 1999. No, I mean, it it is really about to the parents to make the decision. Yeah, in that case, when I was in, in school, like schools didn't like wrestling, but again, schools also didn't like Power Rangers and Ninja Turtles. So it's like, okay. Yeah, I mean, that's just thing, you know, more Mortal Kombat, you yeah, know, and all that stuff. Like that. Oh my God! I mean, the video game when when that when that started going on, I mean, the whole Janet Reno thing when, where she was going after stuff. I mean, it was it was an interesting time in the nineties, just as stuff is evolving and how people were reacting to it. You know, it's crazy. I mean, I definitely enjoyed playing Mortal Kombat on Sega Genesis as oh, a child. <laughs> I thought it was the coolest thing ever. It was amazing. I also knew that I couldn't go out and slice people in half with a sword and watch their blood hit the ceiling. It's like there's there's a level of um, 
remaining attached to reality associated with and, it, right? And and then the thing is, is if you have you know something happen where like a Lionel Tate or something like that, where something happens that is a you know totally isolated incident, then that's going to get blown up as the reason why things need to be changed. Yes, because one you know one thing happens somewhere when there's you know millions you know watching this or whatever you know one thing we got oh my god you know so I, I really do believe that again while there are some things that you probably should not let your children watch the most stuff that's like cartoon violence or, or wrestling i hate to say cartoon violence because wrestling is not a cartoon but it's on the same tier as like the violence they would see in power rangers or whatever you know so it's like just explaining to your kids like, hey, you watch this show because it's fun to watch, but that doesn't mean go out and like beat people up in the street. You know? <laughs> like, yeah, I mean, it, it's it's like a human version of watching, you know, like Bugs Bunny and shit like that. I mean, they're they're dropping fucking anvils on like motherfuckers and Bugs Bunny. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, the thing is, like kids, you know, kids like superheroes and villains. They like cops and robbers, cowboys and Indians, like all, all the, the games kids play on the playground. I don't know if they still do. But to me, it's like, OK, wrestling is just another branch of good guys versus bad guys. Right. Mm -hmm. Like well, it's supposed it's, to be. Yeah, I mean, like, kids don't get, like, heel versus babyface, per se, but they do get good guy versus bad guy, and that's pretty much what wrestling was giving kids, is just another superhero, supervillain story. Exactly. That's right, how, how I look at it. Yeah, I mean, okay. Hey, but, hey, it's very it's, it's reasonable. It's like superheroes. Wrestlers yeah. felt like superheroes when I was a kid. Like, I thought they were superheroes. Like, they were these larger-than-life superstars. Yeah, I mean, and God knows, especially in the 80s, you know, when, when I was oh my growing God, up. yeah. With Hogan and, so, and people like that, yeah. It's so wild because, like, for all the good that, like, internet and accessibility and social media does for, like, building your brand and, and creating brand equity, I feel like that's something that's been a little bit lost in wrestling is that pie-in-the-sky mythical unicorn feeling that a wrestler is a larger than life entity like it's it's good that people are humanized and relatable to the audience but i also i i remember like watching and like thinking like stone cold steve austin's like this superhero he's so cool you know <laughs> like who is this guy like he's not a normal person and, and like I, I feel like that mystique is sometimes lost a little bit in translation today with the accessibility factor and, but it's, and, it's not, and it's not just wrestling either it's it's not just it's wrestling just either. In general, movie yeah. stars, movie the the R around movie stars is totally different now than it was even twenty years ago, twenty thirty years ago. Because oh, yeah. everybody everybody is so accessible, and you see every move they make, you don't have that aura of these movie stars anymore. So and, and athletes too. Aren't even well, even like wrestlers like aren't even on that echelon anymore, right? Like I would imagine that in the nineties or eighties, like wrestlers probably like if you were a big name wrestler like you couldn't just like walk through an airport unbothered and, and now like if you think about it unless someone explicitly watches wrestling week in and week out and is like super familiar with it like short of somebody like john cena or the rock like most of these guys probably go about their daily lives and don't run into people too often like they can still wake up go get a cup of coffee somewhere <laughs> like it's not like it is. It's not the same level of celebrity that it once was. It's like you're famous within this subset of people, but to the general populace, you're still just another dude. 
Exactly. It's almost like a sweet spot, right? Because you get to enjoy that little taste of fame. But again, you can still wake up and go get a cup of coffee relatively unscathed. Yeah. Yeah. All right. House shows. Business for the week saw Raw taping in Fort Lauderdale, May 11th. Draw sold out 13,402, paying 332,402. Tallahassee on May 12th drew 8203, paying 203,190. Hershey on May 13th drew 7183, paying 198,96. Philly on May 14th drew 16,316, paying 393,370. Baltimore on May 15th drew a sell out 12,020, paying 284,465. And Richmond, Virginia, on May 16th, draws a uh, 10,712, paying 267,890. Tallahassee and Hirsch, she had the main crew, with the exception of X-Pac. Not sure why, but maybe because his contract calls for a maximum number of dates per month. Austin Undertaker, who generally given midweek shows off. So Rock and uh, Billy Gunn was the main event of those shows. Philadelphia was a complete crew, with Austin, Big Show, and Rock beating Undertaker, Triple H, and Big Boss Man. When Austin stunned Bossman on top with X-Pop back, but Jeff Jarrett off, given the weekend off. Baltimore and Richmond were split shows because most of the top names went to the UK. So those shows were headlined by The Rock over Bossman, a big show of Mark Henry, and a body slam challenge. And they felt the cards that used people like DOA, Prince Albert, Kurt Angle, and Terry Taylor. Reports on Kurt Angle versus Terry Taylor are anything but positive. Reports all week in every city where the Hardy Boys too much matches, which were openers of most of the shows, were the best match every night. Originally, LOD was to be both on these shows, and with a split crew, them not being used pretty much seems to indicate that they aren't going to be used for the foreseeable future. And merchandise for the week was 408270 or $6.02 per head. That's a little low for this era. Yeah, it is. It is. All right, the first Union Center in Philly on May 14th, 16,316, 393,370. Merchandise at this show was $177,032 or $11 per head. That's all. Edge and and Christian beat the Hardys in too much in an elimination match. Steve Blackman overdraws by submission. Al Snow with head over Bob Holly. Val Venus and Jackie over D Lo and Tori. Kane Next Pock over the Acolytes. Goldust over Gangrel. Road Dog over Billy Gunn by Count Out. The Godfather over Owen Hart. Ken Shamrock and Mankind over DOA. And Austin Rock and Big Show over Undertaker Triple H and Boss Man. So there's your Philly show. At the house show in Tallahassee on May 12th during the Mankind Ken Shamrock versus Acolytes match, Mankind played heel when faced with Farouk, since that's where Ron Simmons was a college football hero and borderline legend at Florida State University. Mankind got on the house mic and said he was going to give Ron Simmons something he didn't get in four years of college. And that's an education. <laughs> Fans are doing the Seminole chop during Simmons' match. Of course they did. Well, that was cute, though, because Ron is a legend at Tallahassee. So, Colin Oliver there. There you go. In Richmond, Ron son boss man outside the ring, grabbed the camera from a fan and took a picture and then gave the fan back their camera. Oh, the, the days where people actually brought cameras <laughs> and not their phones. My phone is a pretty uh, good camera, though. I have a whole picture album of photos I took at like various house shows with those disposable cameras when I was a kid. I'll have to look and see if there are any really cool pictures in there. I'm my sure brother there has are. some. My brother has some. Yeah. I, need, I need to get from the Omni shows in 85, which I need to get a hold of. 
But uh, My father was a fan at the collective in Dallas this year with one taking pictures. Awesome. Like, that's cool. Like, I don't know. It's a throwback. You see something like that, I'm like, wow, it that's is. cool. I mean, it takes me back to my childhood. Yeah, and people taking Polaroids <laughs> oh sometimes. Remember, like, barely being yeah. able to see over the guardrail, like, straining with this little shitty disposable camera, like, <laughs> oh, must get picture of Kane. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> because yes. when you're a kid, you're so excited. I, um, oh, God, speaking of Kane's, like, I went to a house show as a small, small child. I don't even know how old I was. I was little. And I was up on the guardrail, like, you know, super excited, like, stone cold shirt on, like, pigtails, like, little little redneck kid. And Kane comes walking down, and I tell him he sucks, and he's a giant red bastard. <laughs> and he stops and looks at me. <laughs> and I, like, I, you know, shit my pants and ran to my mom. But I remember it, and, like, I guess he, like, my mom said he, like, grinned or whatever, and I'm like, man, he worked me. He worked nine-year-old Kai. I thought I was going to die for sure. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, mom! <laughs> wow. I mean, kids, kids are something else, man. Especially in especially indie shows. Memory. Yeah, wow. you know, when I, was going to, when, when I was going to my local indie shows all the time, I mean, the kids—they were the 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 most like vocal, you know. I mean, they're in your face with the wrestlers, telling them how much they suck. That this and the other. I mean, they had no filter, man. They didn't care. Yeah, I don't give a shit if adults like my wrestling or not. If kids are into me, I'm happy. Like, I'm like, yeah. Man, I remember how wrestling, how cool it was when I was a kid, and like, that's what I always like. I never forget that. Like, whenever I go to wrestle, I'm like, man, this is the coolest shit ever. Like, when I was a kid, wrestling was so cool. Like, I want people to feel like it's that cool, right? Like yeah. I don't care like if like grumpy adults don't like my wrestling. I don't care if other wrestlers don't like my wrestling. Like if <laughs> if kids like my wrestling and they think it's cool and they're having the time of their lives, like that's great. Like that's Absolutely. all you can really ask for, you know? And because like kids are the worst critics, man. Yeah, everybody thinks the worst critics are like keyboard warriors or like other wrestlers in the business. It's like, nah, dude, kids. Like if you suck, kids are gonna let you know. Yeah. Like, if you can win kids over. Like, and with everybody else's opinion. <laughs> and they're not being ironic about it either. No, no, they're dead serious. <laughs> well, also, exactly. the perfect example, though, too, is... I think we talked about this on the show once or twice before. I think I've talked to you about it, too, Kaya. Like, the moment that Dan Brian Danielson went from being a great wrestler, especially for how long he'd been wrestling, to one of the very best wrestlers in the world was after he started doing those months-long stays in the UK where he was working the holiday camps in front of kids, yeah. you know, every day. Oh, yeah. It's yeah. it's really wild to me, like, how many people in wrestling will be, like, you know, super, like, jerking each other off in the back, like, oh, I'm so good, it was so good, our match was so good, and it's like the kids are, like, asleep in their chairs, and I'm like, was your match really that good? <laughs> <laughs> like, and I mean, that's not a knock on anybody because obviously kids have a different attention span than adults but it, it's like man you know there's something to be said for the simplicity of creating joy with wrestling you know that gets lost on a lot of people these days um so i always try to remember that i always try to like go what would i think was cool if i was a kid watching this like you know mm-hmm absolutely all right, Rot wasn't wearing a cast on his left arm with the house shows this week, so I guess he's healed up there. All right, the torch. Insane Clown Posse appeared on MTV's Love Lines. 
and confirmed that they no. love <laughs> love, line. love lines, love <laughs> space lines. Love and line was wild, man. I loved it. And confirmed that they'll oh be returning God, to people the. People are nuts. Yeah, they've confirmed that we return to WF to help introduce Thrasher's new evil clown gimmick, which None never happened. None of that. <laughs> Love lines. Love space lines. Good old kick space boxing. Good old. This is way not day too. Oh yeah, well still. Yeah. What's the you craziest think- thing you've ever heard somebody call in with on Love Line? Oh, my God. Well, see, you know, the radio version is crazier than the TV version was. Yes. Oh, I, I mean, know. I remember oh, on the radio, oh. there was one. And this isn't, like, crazy, but it's just mind-blowing. Like, it just goes to show you, like, how, like, I hate to say how dumb people are. But it's, like, or just, like, how actually it's kind of sad how, like, obviously information to this type of stuff is, like, not accessible at the time. I remember like one time I was listening in my car and this lady called in and she couldn't figure out why she was pregnant because she was using the contraceptive jelly. And like, they're going back and forth about it for like five minutes. And she finally is just like, I've been eating it for breakfast, lunch, and dinner, and I just can't eat any more of it. I don't know why it's not working. Uh, That sounds like like a prank. Mind blown. Like, like mind blown. Like in, and I mean, it could have been a work. I mean, you know, whatever. But I'm just sitting there and I was just like, oh, my God. Like, that was wild to me, like that somebody would think. But I guess if you don't if you don't have information or you're not educated on it or whatever the case may be. Right. Um, that, was, that was wild. That was a wild one. That one blew my mind for some reason. I was like, wait, what did she just what, did she just say she's been eating it? <laughs> like, what? Um, There was a guy. I, I vaguely remember this one. That called in, and it, it was they were talking about you know crazy ways to masturbate. Oh dear! And he was talking. Lord only, Lord only knows. <laughs> he was he masturbated with raw ground beef and peanut butter, and and Adam Carolla okay. being Adam Carolla being quick on his feet. This is why I remember being quick on his feet as he always is. Asked him, "Is it chunky or creamy peanut butter?" <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, I, w- I would have to ask, like, all right, like, what's the, what's the idea behind this? Like, is it a sensation-based thing? Like, is it a texture thing? Like, d- like, help me to understand. Like, I wouldn't have ridiculed somebody for that. I would have actually been curious as to what drove them to make the decision that that was the best way to go about masturbating. <laughs> okay. Help me yeah. to understand. <laughs> I think I've yeah. blocked out most of the calls at this point, which might be good. But, but- but still, you know, even though Love Line was crazy as what it was, it wasn't as crazy as fucking talk sex with Sue Johansson. That was nuts yeah. on Oxygen. Oh, my God. When the women would call up, these women would call up with all their sex stories. Holy shit. Oh, now that's a show that needs to be revisited, folks, from the early 2000s. I, I think they're still – I think she has some kind of Canadian presence still. Um, I, it, that show was insane. <laughs> but anyway – all right, UPN announced their fall will announce their fall lineup on May twentieth, and WF is expected to be part of the lineup with a Tuesday night show. WF has also been talking with Fox, but either time slot, ad revenue splits, or content control may have been more favorable with UPN than Fox. That's not to say Fox is still a possibility, but indications are UPN's more likely. There are reports that Fox offered to buy part or all of Titan Sports, and a TV clearance hinged on that. Vince is not interested in selling majority interest in the WF. I don't know what I make of this story. It's the torch. 
So, but we, but we know what happens. We know they end up on UPN, but not on Tuesday. So, there's that too. And to close out, WNBC news, TV news on Pro Wrestling that will air on May 23rd after the Jesse Ventura movie <laughs> will only air on that station. Dave's not sure the deals made regarding interviews with WF talent, but Dre Adronico not Jay Electronica, of the WF was able to stop other NBC affiliates from potentially airing the piece. May 23rd. We covered that infamous day on Between the Sheets a while back. Of course, that's the date of Over the Edge. Of course, Owen Hart's tragic death and the Jason Ventura movie on at the same time. Yeah. So and- a wild night in wrestling history. I don't remember if this piece airs at all. I think it did. But did it air uh, that so I night? We, well, I think we talked about it. Yeah, it was, we did that. We did on show ninety six, way back was when we did that. Did that that uh, week? And uh, yeah, I think I think it aired. Because if I remember right, they're they're promoting it throughout like the first half or two thirds of the movie. And then you start getting like the upgraded, you know, updated news breaks. Like at the, I think it was like the last break was where they first alluded to Owen Hart's death. Which I've told this story. I mean, I was watching the movie. I didn't buy Over the Edge because I didn't think. I mean, I I bought Hardcore Heaven. So, and and there was another. I think a boxing pay per view that was around that time too. So this is you know I'm not making a whole lot of money in this time period. So I got to pick and choose which pay-per-views I was buying. And we were watching WCW at a, a co-worker's house anyway. So I went, I didn't worry about that. So I said, so I'm going to skip this, this pay-per-view because so, some of those B-per-views I would skip. Yeah. I'm kind of glad I did in the end. Yeah. Because I didn't see all that happen. I mean, I, I saw it on the news after the Ventura movie, but I was like, holy shit. Wow. Yeah. So, I had never watched I had never watched any of the show. I remember pulling it up when the network launched just because I was curious how they handled it, which was to just, you know, cut out anything Owen Hart related. But, like, even if you set aside the ring being broken and stuff and that it's kind of obvious when with the quick transition and stuff, everyone, everyone, it, it's everyone sounds like someone just died. Like, it's not, you know, it's just even if you want the historical value of seeing it, it's just there's nothing there to enjoy or anything yeah well you know what can you do i mean and and you know as a kid at that time i mean kaya how, how did you react to hearing about owen's death for the first time this is gonna sound so awful but i was so young that i don't think that it like really resonated with me well it's understand <laughs> it's understandable i was I mean, nine it's no, understandable. I, sure I was aware it happened, but it's right. like when you're a nine-year-old child, you're not. It's all like, oh, okay. Like I just like, oh, okay, but you you don't process it the same way an adult would process an event like that. Yeah, especially but, like, I mean, as a kid, like your only exposure to it is like he's there and then he's not there, you know. And it's like they they announce it and all, but like they're not like to your point, they're trying to like be take all the stuff all the coverage keep it very low key so it's like if you're not like following it following it like and you're just consuming what's put in front of you like is that a fair statement yeah it is i mean it had to be it had to be interesting for kids that were watching raw 
the next night where it's, you know, a tribute show to Owen. You know, it's like, why is this, what's going on here? I mean, that had, I mean, there had to be a, a, quite a few parents well, well, yeah, had, that had to explain that, you know? You're curious, yeah. but like, yeah. also, you're a child with the attention span of a goldfish, so <laughs> yeah, it doesn't yeah. hold you, per se, you know? It's like, yeah. oh, okay, like, I, I feel so bad saying that, because obviously it's something that's very tragic, and as an adult, I have looked more into, and I understand the significance and the impact on our industry, but it's like, when you're a kid, man, you just don't, it just doesn't hit you the same, you know, you're like, okay. Like, like that's just how kids process. I think stuff like that because they can't really process things like that in the way an adult would. You're right. You're absolutely right. Yeah. So interesting times. This is the week before. Very interesting. So. Yes. You know, yeah, it, talk about like the big what ifs and wrestling, right? Like they're like big what ifs that would have changed the trajectory of things per se, even if it's like little or major. And that's something that I always wonder is like, what if Owen Hart never passed? Like, well, what 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 if what if Owen left when when Brett, you know, all that stuff went on? You know, yeah. I mean, I mean, that's another thing too. I mean, how different is everything if he quits? Or and, if Brett and, doesn't leave? Or Brett doesn't, doesn't leave? force him out? Yeah, yeah. I mean, there's so much that goes in that, but what we have is what we have, and you know, it's 23 years later, man. But at least AEW is celebrating his memory in the best way that anybody really can right now with the, uh, yes. the tournaments and everything. So uh, props to them for uh, you know aligning with with uh, Martha and you know doing all this, so people can younger people can be ex- exposed to Owen in a different way now. So very cool on Tony and everybody in AEW's part. Absolutely. Those tournaments have been really fun as well. So I appreciate like the lightheartedness surrounding something that's obviously a tribute, you know, but it's like, oh, hey, but we're going to make this really light and make it truly honoring his memory in the best way possible. Absolutely. Well, now let's go to the state of Japan. Step towards international promotional. Excuse me. Step towards interpromotional. Did you say international promotional? <laughs> international. <laughs> I had international on my mind because we're international now. Steps towards interpromotional matches between All Japan and New Japan to revive a stale Japanese wrestling scene were publicly taken this past week. With a much publicized meeting of All Japan President Mitsuharu Masawa, New Japan President Seiji Sakaguchi, IWGP Heavyweight Champion Keiji Muto, and then a second meeting with Masawa and Masiro Chono. The meetings themselves were at this point publicity stunts, more than anything else. Virtually all the magazines were invited to the former meeting, which was taped for broadcast on All Japan's TV show on Nippon TV on May 16th. The meeting itself took place a few days earlier and received a ton of newspaper magazine coverage. And all three posing in front of a photo of Giant Baba. Nothing in specific was stated about Tokyo Dome event, nor has anything been hinted. But the fact that Muto's face appeared on the All Japan television show tells you negotiations must be pretty deep and things had to have been worked out with the television networks as well. The All Japan New Japan native wrestlers contracts include exclusivity as performers for the respective networks, Nippon TV and TBSI respectively. There have been two periods in history when the groups did interpromotional matches. Once in 1979 for a Japanese all-star card, which wasn't televised on either network, and brought Baba and Antonio Noki back together as a tag team. And again, for several events in 1990, in the first event on February 10th, 1990, at Tokyo Dome, the All Japan New Japan tag matches, which were largely responsible for the first time pro wrestling ever sold out the Dome, 
But those matches being Jumbo Sharuda and Yoshaki Yatsu against Kingo Kamura and Osama Kido and Tenugurichiro and Takamas Masawa against Riki Choshu and George Takano never aired on either his television show due to those contracts exclusive to the network. Although the two matches of each group's top foreign stars at the time, Stan Hansen versus Vader, did air on each fan program. Muda said the meeting Masao was like meeting his lover for the first time. <laughs> <laughs> it's well known in Japan that Muda has high regards for Masawa, considers Masao as the only wrestler in Japan who is his true equal or maybe even his superior. A few years back, Muda at the time that he held the IWGP title had suggested doing a Tokyo Dome match against Masawa and being willing to put Masawa over clean because he thought it would be the right thing for long-term business. But the match never took place for political reasons. That match would have been tons better three years ago when Muto wanted to do it because both were three years younger. But at the time, Business Japan was so strong, nobody needed to do it either. Masawa's public comment was that he wanted to keep all Japan as Baba would have liked it. And it's known that Baba was an isolationist who didn't like doing business with other organizations. Still, it is expected that there will be more talks. There was a face-to-face duel interview in this week's Japanese version of Playboy magazine with Masao and Chono. None of the newspapers or wrestling media were even aware that Masao and Chono had done the interview until the magazine came out. Huh. Hmm. This was a deal. Um, I remember that that Muto Masawa story was even covered in Pro Wrestling Illustrated in the 97-500 issue, where it was mentioned in one of the blurbs that Muda wanted to wrestle Masawa. And, you know, Dave's right that the that both promotions were, were doing, you know, really strong at that time business-wise. But, I mean, could you just imagine, <laughs> you know, if, if, the, if the people that could, you know, were in charge could put their feelings aside and have one major, like, Super Bowl of wrestling-type show featuring all the big names in All Japan New Japan against each other one night only, how big of a business that would have been. It had been massive at that time. Completely. Yeah, they could have gone down in 96, 97 especially. Yeah. yeah. I mean, remember, 97 is the year of a zillion dome shows. So they could have absolutely pulled it off. And it would have been well-received because of there being so many shows. It was just commonplace that those shows were occurring. But so you not? can – yeah, but you can tell that these guys are – they're itching. They're itching to do this. And then after you know, 2000, when All Japan falls apart, then it's off to the races. And it's All Japan that's doing it first with New Japan. You know, which is which is yeah. the f- the funny part, and then Masawa, you know, when Noah starts hooking up with Zero One, and then everybody everybody starts working with everybody by then, and as two thousands go along, but um, yeah, I mean, this was taboo at this time to, to even think about something like this possibly happening, but the talent wanted it. You know, it's that deal where, you know, you got your your bosses and and, and stuff like that who had these beefs with each other. But the you know the the workers want it, yes, because they want to prove themselves against the people that's always because you know perceived as the best. And it only gets stronger yeah. too because I had not realized this was when Masawa and Mudo really first met for the first time. But after this, Masawa's best friends are basically Mudo, Chono, and Ashimoto. Yeah, yeah, because I mean Kawada was Kawada. Um, you know, their relationship was what it was, 
Masao and Kabashi, you never hear about them being like friends. Really, you don't hear a lot about Masao being friends with a lot of people. Ogawa, you know, and, and, and people like that. But or, really, Masawa, yeah, and his protégés like you know Marufuji or whoever. Yeah, yeah, his friends in wrestling. Well, I think Taoway and Masao are pretty were pretty good friends, but. I mean, his friends in wrestling were the people on the outside. Fuyuki's like his one of his best friends. So I mean, well, yeah, Fuyuki I mean, didn't start as an outsider. No, he. I mean, no. He, well, he he was IWE, but he came there as a young boy, and he did young all the young boy matches with Masawa. Right. They were contemporaries as young boys. You know, even though he wasn't all Japan trueborn. Yeah. Speaking of young boys, like when you think about that giant Baba tribute show, right? Like Marafuji was on that show in like mm-hmm. the opening match. And like he hadn't even been wrestling like for a year at that point in time. He's already in the Tokyo Dome. Like that's wild. Yeah, well, I mean him, Morishima, Rikio, all those all those guys that that, you know, we know of oh, Gimen Kenta. All those guys mm-hmm. started out as all Japan guys. Yeah. Um I think even Suzuki started all Japan, right? Yeah, Kotaro. Kotaro. Kotaro, as I call him. Kotaro. Kotaro. Who was the the first Noah Dojo graduate? uh, Because Morishima and Rikio were all Japan. Oh, my goodness. Um... Oh, was it one of like the Kaba and and Kanto was too? Was it like one of the the later Was it like Tanaguchi maybe? Um, hmm. I know that Hachi, he was all Japan. Yeah. Um, oh, Jesus. Um, trying to think. Uh, I don't feel like they're really much in the way of debut. I mean, until she, pretty deep. Shiozaki, Shiozaki was 2003. So he's got to be one of the first. Um, yeah. Because I remember him graduating. Um... He's probably he may be the one. Um, I actually don't know. <laughs> I really, I'm more versed in like the dragon system than I am Noah per se. So I, I have just out of my wheelhouse completely. Oh no! It was it was it was um, Katara Bix. Okay. Yeah, he he started in in 2001. Okay. So it would be him. Yeah. There you go. So there you go. Tanaguchi was was 2005. Okay. So, yeah. Yeah, that it, it would be Kotaro. But anyway, yeah, I mean, this is something that was definitely talked about. Nothing came out of it, you know, and of course a year later, then everything starts going after that. But let's go to All Japan proper now. Even though the question of the presidency of the company has been answered, there's still something of a power struggle with Motoko Baba and Mitsuru Masawa. No matter how it's portrayed, it is still Baba who is funding the company and has to give approval to any decisions that involve major finances. The general feelings that Tokyo Dome show itself was a great event because of the farewell to Baba. But it didn't come off as a major league production that the big K-1 New Japan shows do when they run the Dome. Because Giant Baba, who was who, who he was and what he represented, which was old-style black boots, black trunks, hard, long wrestling matches, as long as he was around, that was considered okay. After the Dome show, there were a lot of comments how, compared with New Japan K-1, this wasn't a Major League show aura. In the listings of officers in the Observer, Sachiko Baba is a cousin of Shohei Giant Baba, who has always worked in the office. Yeah, 
you can tell <clears throat> that when Baba died, that <clears throat> public opinion started to change on All Japan, where they would look past the way their presentation was out of respect for Giant Baba. But now that he's gone and we're not changing anything, it's like, okay, the time is now. It's time to get modern. Yeah. And then Masawa went too far in the other direction at first when Noah started. You know? Yes. Daisuke Ikeda <laughs> with his giant plastic sword. Yeah. I think a lot of that, though, was probably him and Fuyuki spitballing on stuff, too. Yeah. Because Fuyuki's heavily involved in, in early Noah as well, so. But, yeah, I mean... <sighs> I understand trying to keep all Japan traditional and out of the memory of Giant Baba and you know stuff like that, but you kind of you, you got to get with the time sometimes, you know. You got to you got to do things to make it look modern, and they just weren't doing that. Yeah, so. I mean, the only thing that really, and it was for a short time, that even just modernized the look more was like when they had the Sega deal. And they changed the ring apron and stuff up a little bit. Like, it, at least, mm -hmm. it, you know, it kind of looked a little fresher. Yeah. Yeah. It's suspect the Road Warriors will come in for the July tour. They want to work 12 weeks per year with the idea of being six tours for only two weeks of the tour. Masawa's ideas were for them to work four tours, but the entire tours. So deals aren't finalized, although both seem to want to do business. With Bob off house shows, it's more important for drawing in smaller cities to have legendary names to Japan like the Road Warriors Invader appearing on the shows, since Baba is no longer there. Yeah, I mean, we talk about that a lot on this show, that Giant Baba's most valuable contribution to all Japan in his latter days was working these house shows, because the fans wanted to see him, because he's only coming there maybe once a year. And that was a big deal for them to see the legend. You know? Well, and also the way Baba always did things... You not only knew, you know, which is rare for this era of wrestling, I guess, not only were you going to see him wrestle, but you had an opportunity to meet him because he's always sitting at the gimmick tables. Absolutely. And that's the thing, you know, and, and you still you see a lot on the U.S. independent scene, Kyle, where you have these, you know, these independent promotions that aren't the big indies. But, the, you, you know, your average indie promotion will try to bring in that name that would work WWF or WCW 20 years ago or more to try to bring them in and to, to do special appearances or even wrestle a match, trying to bring them in as a draw because I mean, the fans remember them and then you use them to hook the fans in and then you have the talent go out there and put on a hell of a show. And you know, then the fans are like, okay, I like this. You know, you got to use well, that hook to bring them in. Well, I mean, ideally like, yeah, you want to, I mean, I don't know. Now we're going to talk booking. Okay, we can talk about my booking philosophy. I think that if you're working like a mid-tier indie, one of the things to remember or when you're booking a mid-tier indie is like, yes, it absolutely helps to have somebody like that on your card to help get over the younger guys. But like if you're not padding that card out with local talent, you're just you're breaking your own wallet, you know? So you want to make sure you strike a balance between having that person there to create opportunity for the young guys, but also like not booking too many of those people that have name value because then it's like, well, now you're just losing money. <laughs> right. I mean, the two so, promotions that come to mind. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. Nah, you go ahead. I was, you're good. Okay. Uh, 
The two promotions that come to mind as striking the right balance with that, I think, would be AIW and WrestlePro. Yes. You know, good balance of their students. Um, you have sometimes the name is just doing a signing and a promo, but it still brings people in. And, you know, it, they also mix in indie names, but it, it, it all works. Yeah, WrestlePro is really good about it, especially about getting their students' spots on the card, right? Because yeah. I, I would assume that that's a big appeal of that is that, you know, they use Creative Pro students to kind of have their cards out and it gets them reps and gets them in front of people. And by booking a veteran name, you're also now putting asses in seats to see these new kids. So, yeah, it is a balance. It's a very delicate balance. Yeah. All right. Johnny Ace, who books a lot of foreign talent, has also brought the possibility of using Mike Alfonso, the gladiator Mike Awesome, and possibly Carl Willette. But none have been approved by Masawa. Alfonso has been out of action for months due to having reconstructed knee surgery. He was a regular for FMW, but appeared to be ready to make the move to quit that office and become a regular of ECW. With ECW's current situation, combined with the idea that FMW, which is drawn poorly, and Alfonso's pays $2,000 per week, combined with Alfonso himself realizing it's time to make the move to the more stable, larger office, he's expressed interest in coming in under the name Mike Awesome as a full-time foreigner. This has also raised questions about the status of Gary Albright, who is not on the next tour and whose stock has dropped because he has had good matches and his original shooter reputation from his famous series of matches with Nobuhiko Takata and UWFI has faded after years of doing traditional pro wrestling. Officially, all Japan is just saying Albright will be taking one tour off. It's pretty much the end of Gary Albright in all Japan at this point in time, in a way. But yeah, I mean, Mike Awesome... He seemed like he would have been the guy to go with, you know, as a new top-level foreigner in all Japan at this time because of the stuff he could do, and he's different. Yeah, and I got to think it was it, the knee was as big a problem as anything because he does come in and he does get a push, but doesn't really last. And he becomes more of a, a full-time guy in ECW. They make him the champion, blah, 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 right. blah. Carwell, that's an interesting name here too, though. Yes. He works the July tour. Yep. But that's his only tour, so I don't know what's up with that, but I'm just looking at his cage match right now. How's this for a match? Tawa and Kawada versus Vader and PCO. Yeah, that's a match. <laughs> <laughs> that's definitely a match for sure. That, but... that was a match that happened. But yeah, I mean... It's time to try to try new things at this point in time and see what sticks and what doesn't. So that's what they're doing here. All right, let's go to New Japan Pro Wrestling, and they're trying to do some different things. There are still attempts at a backdoor business with the WWF. The holdup is that New Japan has so many chiefs that are making a big money move takes time. There are those in power that don't like dealing with the American companies and those who have ties to WCW and people like Scott Norton and NWO Sting who are popular with the group that WCW pulled from them if a WWE deal is made. Although all trainers used WWF talent like Bart Gunn and the Road Warriors, and a deal to use Dr. Def Steve Williams on the Dome Show was originally a WWF deal, the money figures WWF wants are way more than all Japan's willing to pay. Yeah, I mean, it would have been interesting uh, to see if... And you, why? You, like, it's, does it really behoove them to leave? You know, well, like, oh, we're going to pay all this money and it may or may not work out for us. And I don't know about Well, my thing... Well, my thing is, is that, I mean, if I'm New Japan, I know WF is, you know, doing great or anything, 
but what would a deal with them be more beneficial than with WCW at the current time? You know, that's a very I, good question. I don't think so. So who knows? Maybe, I mean, maybe they see that, th- that they think that WF will send some talent over there, but I mean, WF's roster is but not deep at all at this point in time. So, yeah. I mean, it's like, who are you sending over there? So I just say that they're, that they're seeing Austin's success and seeing the rock and thinking, okay, maybe there's a chance we could get them on a dome show. Because Maybe. WCW WCW doesn't doesn't have people that we want anymore, like unless Goldberg. But yeah, I don't yeah. know. Is this is this the time period I remember Bruce Bricker talking about on his podcast once, where he claimed that Tiger Hattori was calling him and Bischoff working both sides, probably. And, but the the way Bruce told it was that. Tiger calls him is being like putting on a heavy Japanese accent, which if you know much about Tiger Hattori is a little weird because he lived in the States for already, I think, decades by this point, right? When he's not on tour. Since the 70s. Yeah. 70s. Um, And then hung up and then called Bruce back. Oh, no. Allegedly. And it's Bruce. So who knows? But it's wrestling. So I can see this. Well, you know. Okay, thank you. Uh, <laughs> but that he thought he put Bruce claims that Tiger thought he put Bruce on hold, and it was but he didn't. I was like, Eric, brother, you know, doing the whole Tiger Hattori thing, you know, in his actual voice because he was trying to play them or whatever. I I'm trying to see if the specific clip is isolated anywhere. Uh, it is not. But. Oh, well. It it must be this because I do think it was around this era. Sounds right, and yeah, like that, like something like that wouldn't happen too. So there you go. All right, Kazuo Yamazaki will be out of action for possibly six months due to was either a lung infection or possibly a collapsed lung, along with bronchitis. Yamazaki, thirty five, had bled from the mouth at the matches several times on the last tour. The belief is that he may have suffered a hard kick, which led to some internal damage. As someone mentioned today this past week in Japan, when somebody goes down, the reason is usually when they were injured, often by a stiff kick. In the U.S., it's generally because they were banged up and took so many drugs to keep going that the drugs did them in. I mean, not wrong. I mean, neither of those are a very appealing instance. (laughs) No, but, I mean, obviously something happened because, I mean, he retires January 4th, 2000. So, I mean, he's, he's retired. So... He's one of those where ain't no telling, you know, what he could have done even as he grew older. Because he seemed like he was hitting his peak in this time frame. He, this is, and he was in nineteen ninety eight he was amazing. I mean in the G one. I mean amazing. I agree absolutely. Like I think he was always gonna be at his I mean, you know, he was a new Japan guy originally, but he was always going to be best as a New Japan-style wrestler, and that post-UWFI run really let him kind of flex a bit. Yeah, I mean, and he would—I mean, he was already doing a thing with Nagata and them, where he was like their mentor and stuff. And I think that's where we would have went if he kept on going as being that type of guy, where he's like the leader of GX or something like that, when Nagata and Nakanishi and those guys. As like their mentor, and he 
but yeah, he was just fantastic. He's he's so unheralded, it's crazy. Yeah. What a fantastic performer he was. Yeah, and I just Jesus. checked Cage Ranch. He comes back for the G one, um, then doesn't wrestle between the G one and uh, the Dome. Yes, he retires, losing to Nagata. Yep, in his retirement match. Battle Arts. They ran Ooh. on May fourteenth. At the Nakajima Sports Center in Sapporo, which drew only about a thousand fans. That ain't good. For uh, Mitsuru <laughs> Matsunaga, Mr. Danger, against Yuki Shikawa in a bed of nails death match. Shikawa, a big Antonio Noki fan who actually patterns his big shows around symbolism from his own childhood, watching each fan in the late 70s. His sumo hall show was headlined by himself, using moves Inoki used, beating Inoki's old rival Bob Backlund. Use an old-style backland moves, plus bringing back the Road Warriors, which was actually a successful event. This show was based around the Bed of Nails match with Inoki and Umanoseki Ueda at the Budokan on February 8, 1978, where neither wrestler took the bump into the Bed of Nails. In later years, other promotions have done that gimmick, and wrestlers at Matsunaga have taken the bump. But the finish was Inoki breaking Ueda's arm in storyline with an arm bar, and he was out of action for a long time, so fans... Got the storyline destruction, so they were happy at the time that something extra was delivered. The finish was a throwing in the towel. So in this match, Masanaga used all kinds of gimmicks, including a fireball, before Alexander Oates got through in the towel for Shikawa. Number three for three in fireballs in this episode. I'm pretty sure this one was a little bit better. Though. <laughs> <laughs> is this is this the the best fireball out of all the fireballs we've discussed thus far? Probably this week. Do we have a, do we have a clip of this fireball? Uh, don't think we do. But Battle Arts I is bet tough. We could find one. You probably could at some place in some secret places, but I don't think I it's think on I YouTube. I can find it. If I can find it, I will get you a clip of it. Let's see here. Or a gif at least. I mean, it's possible, but Battle Arts is one of those toughies where you. I mean, you can find some stuff, especially older stuff, on YouTube, but. It's, it's kind of a tough one at times, especially the latter era. Well, also because Samurai TV and YouTube and all that. Let's see here. All right, so I'm checking real quick. Yuki Shikawa. Look at the, um, the org. Yeah, I, yeah well, you, you keep reminding me. I keep forgetting to check stuff there. I mean, stuff keeps getting deleted, too, but pe there are people uploading surprising amounts of battle arts there. All right. Yeah, the, the, yeah, the match isn't on. The match isn't on YouTube, so... I think uh, it is on the archive, though, so I'll look into it. Oh, okay. Get a, get All a right. fireball gift. There you go. All right, so uh, we had Daisuke Akeda being Bob Backlund when the referee stopped the match as Backlund suffered an apparent broken nose. Alexander Otsuka, Muhammad Yone, be Hayabusa, and Tetsuya Kuroda in 21-13. While Yui Sano of Nobuhiko Takada's crew captured the FMW junior title from Minoru Tanaka. Sano has spent the last several years doing shoot style with UWFI and Kingdom, and in actual shoots with Pride and Pancrase, where he took savage beatings, as that just wasn't his thing, did pro wrestling moves like topes, powerbombs, and using a dragon suplex to win the match. After the match, Sano talked about wanting to put his title up against Jushin Thunder Liger. Since Liger and Sano's matches from 1990 are now legendary. The other gimmick was Masao Orihara and Takeshi Ono coming out with Strong Machine Mask. They're originally trying to get Ichimasa Wakamatsu, the former manager of machines in Japan, and who's now running for public office. 
He was too busy campaigning and couldn't do the show. Where Aranono came out wearing the mask, then took them off and wrestled under their own names. But here's our results. Yoshinori Sasaki over Ryuji Chikata in your opener. Carl Greco, future Carmelinka, over Monk Junji. Masaki Mochizuki and Grand Naniwa over Tiger Mask 4 in Nakoda Adaka. Katsumi Asuda and Ryuji Yamakawa went to a double count out with the super strong machines, Masao Rihara and Takeshi Ono. Sano over Tanaka, Yone and Otsuko over Hypus and Kuroda, Ekeda over Backlund, and then Matsunaga over Ishikawa. Stack show. Yes. Lots of great talent on this show, and that Sano Tanaka match is fantastic. Yes, that's the that's the one thing I remember seeing from this show, and I remember it being a big deal at the time because it's a really, really excellent match, and this is the big, really the beginning of the Sano resurgence that goes through his Noah run. Yes, not that he was ever bad, but well, he he wasn't doing a lot of pro wrestling. Yeah, he was doing shoot style for however many years, you know, straight shoot style. Yes, like they mentioned, he's going back to his roots. Yes, and I did, uh, I found the match with the fire, and I queued it up, I think, to right before the fireball on a uh, Google Drive, so. Oh, well, there you go. Oh, there we go. I, I don't have it in my usual browser for sharing this kind of stuff, so I'm, no sound, but let's see. See that fireball. It's a darkly lit building, too, so they don't have the big lights on as well. That's interesting. Well, <laughs> uh, we were wrong. <laughs> he basically, he, it looks like Matt and I actually dropped the fireball as he was throwing it. <laughs> well, green three for fireballs. Yeah. Sorry, Joel Gertner. <laughs> well, somebody could throw a fireball. Asushi Anita ran his own show on May 13th at Cork and Hall. <laughs> and said he wouldn't be wrestling in New Japan anymore. That's almost certainly an angle. Because on May 14, Chono said that he wanted to meet with Onita, so it just appears they're going to also set up Chono and Onita as a tag team. Well, Onita sold out Cork on May 13. It announced at 2150 for something of an old-style FNW nostalgia show where they brought back the old no-rope barbed wire street fight tornado deathmatch main event that made FNW Ooh. famous years ago, where Onita teamed up with Shigeo Okamura and Sambo Asako, a former FNW wrestler retired years ago, beating... Tanuki Nichiro, Shoji Nakamaki, Lama Namanumi from Stringomania fame, and Ichiro Yaguchi. In return for Tenru working this show, Anita agreed to work Tenru's War 7th Anniversary show at Cork and Hall on June 20th in a singles match as Tenru will work double duty against Onita and also tagging up with Magnum Tokyo against Judo Sua and a mystery partner. Also on Anita's show, they brought back Crusher Mayo Damari and Shar Shishuya to work a women's street fight match using a barbed wire baseball bat, brought back Pandita, who was an early FMW gimmick, and also brought back the old FMW tag team of Dr. Luther and Dr. Hannibal, Lenny St. Clair, and Steve Gillespie from Western Canada. So how about that? All right, here are our results. Ray Pandita over Yusaku in the opener. Oh, this is fantastic. Asian Cougar and Phantom Funakoshi over Takashi Sasaki and Exciting Yoshida. There are no more Japanese indie-sounding names, period, than Phantom Funakoshi or Exciting Yoshida. <laughs> I love it. Well, and Asian Cougars won the kings of the, of the indies, so there you go. Street Fight, Toxic Corp, Shashashi and Crusher Man Damari over Yoshiko Tsumura and Yuka Nakamura. Then you got Dr. Hannibal and Dr. Luther over Kasuji Ueda and President. Senshiro Takagi. 
And then our no rope barbed wire street fight tornado death match Onita Asako Rokumura over Tenru Nakamaki and Yaguchi. This Who's sounds this? like a lo- lovely show. Is this the first Onita Pro show? It's if it's not the first, it's one of the first. Yes, because okay. I think he started in '99, so this has to be one of the first. So also the beginning of the Onita Yaguchi Association too, I would think. That, that is correct. Yes. So. It's a very indie show, but I love that, especially in this era. When you, when you, you look what you have here. All right, so we have you know your old school indie guys for the FMW guys. You got your new school indie guys like Cougar and uh, Yoshida Funakoshi, and then you have guys like Tenru who's here. And then you got you know Takagi and Takashisaki. I mean, this is a really fun looking show. That's what you would hope for here from Onita Pro. So, uh, good times. Let's go to Joshi now, shall we? Gaia ran Corican on May 16th. They drew an overflow crowd and now said 2200, which saw Aja Kong win the AAAW title from Chigusa Nagayo in 1054 after eight spinning bat fist punches in a match where Nagayo vowed to retire if she lost, although the latter deal is a total gimmick as Nagayo wants to start from scratch as a way to get the fans behind her new story. Ouch. If you ever seen Kong deliver one, you know it's no picnic to take. Chill. The, <laughs> the big deal was that Kong worked the match total Bayface style, not using any gimmicks. Day believes this sets up a rematch between the two, which may be taking place sometime in the next week or two. Where if Nagaya loses again, then she has to retire. Well, you gotta be careful playing around with stipulations like that. I mean, it's Japan. It may be a little bit different, but still. Be careful. I mean, it turned Onita uh, into Mr. Liar, so... <laughs> yeah. All right, our results here. Sugar Sato and Shigaya Nakashima over Toshi Yamatsu and Rie. Mayu Miyazaki and Mima Shimoda over Maki Namao and Sakura Roda. Shigaya Nakashima over Sonoko Kato. Then Aja winning the AAA debut title over Chigusa. And then our main... That wasn't even main event. Then our main event, Karu, Toshio Yamada, and Meiko Satomura over Linus Asuka, Eskomita, and Sugar Sato. In 2410. And then we had a retirement. Michael Matsumoto of Gaia officially retired on May 15th. She hasn't wrestled in months after suffering severe back damage. Uh. Joshi, when did you first start uh, delving into Joshi? Gaia? Not until I started wrestling, honestly. Really? Okay. No, my teenage years of wrestling consumption were mostly Ring of Honor. (laughs) <laughs> which makes sense given where I'm from the East coast and I'm very close to Philadelphia. So that was the thing. I didn't really even get into like Japanese wrestling until I was much older. I just never, I don't know, like short of like, obviously I was familiar with the Japanese matches, the Michinoku pro matches that occurred in ECW. And then obviously when they had Japanese competitors in Ring of Honor, I was familiar with that as well. But I, I honestly didn't do the deep dive until I was older, and I have no shame in admitting that. You know, it's yeah. well. I mean, it's Joshi Joshi went through that phase. You know, there was a was not like accessible. I mean, like uh, yes. I, I love like you know Manami Toyota, Bull Nakano, and like Aja Kong, and all of them now. Like, right? They're legends. They're they're wonderful, incredible performers. But it's like I was not familiar with that growing up, or even for a chunk of my adulthood. That's something that I think just the accessibility to that footage being widespread is new. Well, like that's it, not 
an old yeah. like yeah it kind of went through a thing you know me and me and Bix can talk about this i mean joshi was a big deal online in the early days of internet wrestling fans but in the mid to late 2000s i mean it was like non-existent yeah, when and there was Gaia, Gaia and all Japan women closed. This is my yeah. non-mainstream wrestling would be that yeah. time period, right? So, yeah. Yeah, and, and, and see, it basically was, you know, not that big of a deal in Japan anymore either. It wasn't until, you know, it wasn't until stardom really started getting going over there. And, you know, Shimmer started bringing people over as well. And I think it kind of went hand in hand. When when Shimmer started growing over here, the interest in Japanese women's wrestling started picking back up again. Yes, I so it was like, agree with that. Yeah, so you know, as much as you know, you know, we give Dave Perez that credit for doing what he did over here with you know the American you know women's wrestling scene. You could honestly argue that he brought back eyes to the Japanese women's wrestling scene as well. Well, and I mean, let's be realistic. It, uh, obviously, her talent got her there, but. I don't think Asuka goes to WWE if Prezak's not bringing her into Shimmer fairly regularly. No. I think that's a fair statement. Yeah. Yeah. It's that exposure that, that gets her out there. Absolutely. That's why, I mean, and, and you know, Dave's one of our best friends. But, I mean, so it's not like we're, you know, blowing smoke up his ass. It's true. This is why he deserves to be in any type of indie wrestling hall of fame. It's for for the re, uh, those reasons alone, not to mention his work as an announcer and as a manager, but his oh, work yeah. as is his work as, as being the champion of women's wrestling in in America and basically bringing American eyes to Japanese women's wrestling is that reason? Because who knows who knows how different women's wrestling is in this country if not for Shimmer, you know? Yeah probably close to non-existence still. I, I often, you know, people ask like, oh, why didn't you start wrestling younger? You know, and it's like, oh, well, let me tell you, when I was 19 and 20, like women's wrestling did not have the stronghold that it has nowadays. Like the idea that women's wrestling can sustain on its own and there's multiple promotions and it gets a lot of time on TV is a relatively new concept. And I know that somebody who's like 19 or 20 now, like probably can't grasp that there was a time where like women's independent wrestling was not really a thing, but it's like, for me at the time I was growing up, like it, I hate to say this, it made more sense for me to go to college and, and get my education than to pursue independent wrestling, you know? It's just Absolutely. the opportunity was not there like it is now. Now, I can tell you if I was 20 or 21 years old in current times, like, absolutely, I would pursue professional wrestling. No no questions asked. There's tons of opportunity for women. Like, there's more interest than ever before. But at the time, like, where that was, when I was young, like, that was still it was still like fledgling almost the concept that women could be independent wrestlers and like have their own promotions and have their own shows. And it, well, it, just, it, it, it was it the perception. Was, it simply was just not a thing like it is now. And it's, it's so crazy. Cause I think in the, um, in light of the excitement of the women's revolution and it being at the forefront within the past three to five years, especially like people forget that there was a time where it's like, wasn't really a thing. Like strong panty matches. Yeah, Shimmer <laughs> was a thing, right? Like Shimmer was a thing, but by the time Shimmer really started hitting, like okay, like I'm in college, and it's like, well, might as well finish this out. But 
it's just it's very interesting to me like that because it's now like the common practice that women's wrestling exists people assume that's always been the case and it's like no I didn't have the opportunity in you know 2010 that a girl in 2022 has for independent wrestling it just simply was not a thing yeah I hope I don't sound like a jerk saying that like I think it's absolutely wonderful that like you can be 20 years old and be a very successful women's independent wrestler these days like that's awesome like I wish like that's so cool for those girls but like it just it wasn't a thing when I was 20 years old no (laughs) you know you you had you had your certain ones that were working regularly but it, I mean, yeah, my it was, involvement at 20 years old was being like drunk at Ring of Honor, beaten on the barricade like a wild animal. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and, and, and even then, and even then, you had like Lacey and Rain, and and you know Daisy Hayes, and Daisy Hayes, and Allison Danger. But it, it, it was always the same ones working the bigger indies. I mean, you know, it was it was just it was a select crew that yes. was getting the exposure, you know. Until Shimmer started up and they started finding, you know, all these different yeah. girls from around, you know, the continent, basically, Canada, United States, and then bringing in people from around the world. I mean, it's that, you know, that really started it up. And, well, and who's to say, like, that if I, okay, who's to say I wouldn't have been wildly successful? I mean, you, you could argue it both ways, but it just didn't make sense for me at that time in my life. You know, it, it just, hey, you had to do what you had to do. It's not there. The opportunity wasn't there. But you had to do what you had now, to do. And I love that everybody's seizing the day with it. I think that's really great. Yeah, absolutely. Yes. Thank God. All right, JWP. It's so weird because I feel like yeah. I was gonna say, I feel like I I've spoken to like men in wrestling about this very thing. And like they always argue, like, oh no, you would have been fine. You would have been fine. Like, come on. And I'm like, Okay, well, now that's your, I hate to say male privilege, but that's like your male privilege, assuming that just because there was opportunity for you in wrestling, that it was there for everybody. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like, it's, it's truly something that I think um, men in wrestling have a hard time wrapping their heads around, which, you know, I don't begrudge them for that because it is what it is. But it's it's very interesting to take. I mean, you would think, though, the fact that Sarah Del Rey got hired as a coach and not a wrestler when she did would kind of help explain things to people but well yes and then the other thing is like for all of the i think i've expressed this frustration to bix as well as some of my other close friends it's like for as rah rah as everybody is on the internet for women's wrestling and as supportive as male competitors are like that is not always the case when it's the boys club and there are no girls around because you would be surprised how many you know top male independent wrestlers think women's wrestling is dog shit, have no desire to watch it and think it has no place, but they're not going to say that publicly because obviously that would be like signing a death sentence. Mm -hmm. But there's still like, even though it's not public, like there's still a lot of disdain for women in wrestling. And there's still a lot of men in wrestling who think women do not belong. Like it's just socially unacceptable to state it publicly these days. I mean, there's a lot of men, there's a lot of men that, I mean, if 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 they perceive the you know the female talent to be attractive, then you know and and they can work. Oh, that's that's great. That's a, that's added. Yeah, extra. but here's the thing: is they don't think women can work. Like there are men yeah. that think there are no women deserving of working at top level top level independent promotions, which oh, is mind blowing to me because Absolutely. there are tons of women working. Like, oh my gosh, look at somebody like Thunder Rosa. She could hang in the ring with anyone. She's phenomenal. She deserves 
to be at the places she's at. But there are people that would argue that there are no women competitors on that level. And that's just insane to me that you could be like that. Yeah, times have changed. Absolutely. And 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 the fans believe I will, more I will than ever. I will down from my soapbox now. I just, <laughs> well, um, the thing is, the fans believe it more than ever. I'm not going to topple the, the boys club patriarchy in one episode. <laughs> <laughs> but, 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 I think but, that it's worth noting that that behavior, while it's not public, it still exists. And it's still very much a thing that women in wrestling encounter on a daily basis. But the, but the thing is, though, is it's one thing to have the talent believe that. But if the fans now believe that women can be main event stars in promotions, that's that's the most important thing. If the fans believe it, because they're the ones paying, you know, fans aren't the ones creating opportunity, though. That's true. But but if they're paying and supporting it, then you have to kind of look at it like, well, it's, it works. I mean, clearly fans enjoy women's wrestling. I think it's it's awesome. There are tons of fans that are very supportive of it and demand it on a daily basis. But, you know, if it's not what the top promoters see value in, it's it's still stuck, you know? Yeah. It's stuck in the old ways. But but luckily we have a lot of independent promoters now that are more than willing to spotlight the women talent. No, absolutely. I, I feel personally one of the best things that's, that's ever happened in my career was getting to work for WWR Plus and Drew Cordero. He's certainly someone who's created multiple avenues of opportunity for many women's wrestler women's wrestlers throughout his oh. entire career in wrestling. So I just I'm eternally yeah. grateful for that opportunity to grow. And I yeah. wish more people were open to the concept like he is. A lot of a lot of people work in national television today. Came through WWR. Absolutely. Absolutely. All well, right. Here's Jay- the other thing. Yeah. Uh, let's chew on one more thing while we're still on women's wrestling. I'm sorry to tie us all up. Oh, here. you're good. Fine. But, you know, you sit here and people people go, oh, women's wrestling. There's no money in women's wrestling. There's no future in women's wrestling. Okay. Let's just take a sampling here. Look at all of the top stars at the top of the food chain. We'll say at AEW and WWE today. What gender is their offspring? Hmm. Girls. Girls, right? Triple mm-hmm. H. Girls. Roman Reigns. Girls. It's all girls. And don't, and don't, the future and, of wrestling. And don't think it don't think the Levesque daughters will, will be one at least one of them won't be working because you know it's gonna happen. No, hundred percent. Like Isn't the oldest already training in the shield? Yeah, I think girl. so. The next generation of the shield is is girls. Like it's women are the future of wrestling. I truly believe that. Absolutely. Well, it's it's the evolution. Mm-hmm. It's the evolution of the business. Absolutely, you know, and 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 there, and then more women and young girls are passionate about the business as they've ever been. So, I mean, absolutely, yes. Yep. I mean, okay, I'm to, done. We can get back on track now. I was just going to say to close the loop before we get back to Japan. That was just like there's a reason that like the last few months, like how show like crowd pop videos for Naomi and Sasha Banks have become a thing all over Twitter and stuff. Oh yeah. You know, it seems like every house show now that they're on, you always end up seeing people tweeting videos of their entrance and being amazed by like the kind of reaction they're getting. Yeah. All right. JWP Kobe Sambo Hall, Maitwell from a thousand fans. We have Maya Hashimoto over Akute Sai. Command Bolshoi over Yuka Nakamura. JWP Junior title, Keoko Horiyama over Sabasa Kuragaki to win the title. Devil Masami and Ran Yu Yu over, oh yes, 
Masai Genki and Yoshiko Tamura picks. Uh... Carlos Amano and Tatamaya Kansai over Azumi Hiyuga and Kana Mizaki in your main event. But let's get to the meat and potatoes of this section. Neo Ladies Pro Wrestling. No. Axe City Hamamatsu on May 16th for 310 fans. And we have men working this show. Takashi Sasaki over Tadahiro Fujisaki in your opener. And then Mitsunobu Kikazawa, Kikutaro over Kengo Takai. So we got men here. But we all want women in our Neo Ladies. We have Chihiro Nakano over Tanny Mouse. Yoshiko Tamara and Yuka Nakamura over Toxicore, Crusher Bay at the Bar, and Miss Mongol making a Neo appearance big. It, 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 yeah, it wouldn't be Neo without <laughs> the outside wrestlers being even worse than the main roster. <laughs> we have a Japan Cup tournament match where Chaparita Asari defeated Sayendo, and then Kyoko Inoue and Masai Genki over Carlos Amano and Ran Yu Yu in the main event. Well, at least there's one or two good wrestlers in the main event. But there is, I mean, seriously, though, all it is, it's, it's clearly like just. Kyoko, in a way, was just not a good trainer. It seems like. <laughs> it happens. Yeah. But there you go. Pix's favorite wrestling promotion, Neo Ladies Pro Wrestling. All right. Well, that's it for the first half of the show. It's halftime. So after some great 1999 commercials, we'll pivot to halftime. Where we'll uh, talk about Patreon. Then we'll hit some plugs. And then we'll come back and go to Mexico where we got news on Pedro Aguayo and where, what his future may hold. Great Sasuke's in CMLL. And we got the Torimon guys running around Mexico. And plus an interesting WBC show to talk about as well. All that and more after the break. Hello, can I use your phone? Beat it! Hit the road! Hey, it's me, Ken Griffey Jr. No, I'm Ken Griffey. I'm Ken Griffey. I'm Ken Griffey Jr. I'm Ken Griffey Jr. I'm Ken Griffey Jr. I'm Ken Griffey. New Griffey Slugfest. I'm Ken Griffey. Griffey, 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 Griffey. This time it's so real, you might even think you're the man himself. On Nintendo 64 and Game Boy Color. I am Ken Griffey. I really am. No, I'm Ken Griffey. It's just a moose. This spring. Courage has a new face. Honor, a new identity. Lethal Weapon 4's Jet Li is Black Mask. Rated R starts Friday. The 10th Anniversary Mitsubishi Eclipse, a value package savings of $1,000. Now available with 0.9% APR financing for 48 months. Kids' favorite characters from Teletubbies are now at Burger King. There's six beanbag finger puppets to collect in all. Get one in every tasty Kids Club hamburger meal you buy. Still just $1.99. And try a Teletubbies favorite, Tubby Custard from Jell-O, only at Burger King. When you have it your way, it just tastes better. It's the biggest production of the year, the Family Guy season finale. Can I see your license, boy? Boy. When their dog ends up in the slammer. Well, I see somebody's been neutered. What's a family to do? Let's get a kitty. God, I hate this freaking cat. The Family Guy season finale, 8.30, 7.30 Central, Fox Sunday.
Pep Boys knows how to give you a great deal on tires. They don't run specials on just one size. Pep Boys discounts every size in stock. That means all 35,000 mile tires are four for $99. And all 70,000 mile tires are four for only $169. Even top of the line 80,000 mile touring tires, all sizes four for $199. Call it a bonanza, an extravaganza. It's how you save on tires. Pep Boys. Cars like us. People love us. Get ready. I'm hitting a different girl every night. For the wildest party of the year. Oh, Trip in. Put Put some stank on it. (laughs) Rated R starts tomorrow. Introducing Chicken Salad at Subway. Try our delicious chicken salad sub handmade right in front of you. Subway, the way a sandwich should be. The PJs will return on the new Fox Tuesday. It's a special Fox Thursday movie. She jumped in and say hi! Stallone, Snipes, Bullock, Demolition Man. Thursday at 8, 7 central on Fox. A bike thief goes shopping at a police station. The police impound yard. Don't you think that's a little stupid? On the next Cops. The Cops Hour. Tonight at 11, 10 central. It's a nature trip. Oh, natural. Get him off me! The Simpsons. Wednesday at 6.30, 5.30 Central. On Richard Carn's favorite episode, Al hosts a cooking show. They love me. And it's Tim's turn to be the assistant. <laughs> Wednesday at 7, 6 Central. All right, we're back. Hope you enjoyed all those great 1999 commercials. As we move to the halftime segment of the show, we'll begin talking about Patreon. Patreon.com slash Between the Sheets. And we will be starting recording this week on uh, this new Patreon show. We're doing part two of our series into Titan Gate 92. We'll be discussing scandals throughout uh, Titan Sports and the World Wrestling Federation throughout 1992. Whether it's uh, prescription drugs, whether it's hard drugs, whether it's steroids, whether it's all the, you know, ring boy stuff, uh, and in the next show, we'll be talking about Vincent Mann and his issues that he had with Rita Chatterton and other things. And, yeah, it's a, a wide spectrum of uh, scandals rocking Titan Sports throughout 1992. So, uh, of course, part one came out a few weeks ago. That's up at patreon.com slash twin sheets for $5. And the new one will be up uh, in the next couple of weeks before the end of the month. So, um, yeah, we're at, the ha- we're at that halfway point here. Uh, so everybody put it down $5 if you haven't already and listen to part one and all the other shows that we've done through our five plus years, almost six years of the Patreon. So there's tons of audio there for you to peruse for that uh, monthly fee of $5. And hopefully you'll like what you like what you hear and keep donating. And that way you have uh, plenty of time to listen to stuff. So, um, yeah, there's a lot there. Well worth it. The best stuff we do is on the Patreon, as we always say. So, $5 a month, patreon.com slash twin the sheets. Dollar month gets you access to the Discord and thanks in this segment, which we'll do in just a minute. $25 gets you the opportunity to pick a show for the week. Now, when you want to do this, make sure you have two shows in mind, just because somebody could have picked the week that you want to use, or it could be something we've done already. So always have two shows in mind. If there's any questions, talk to either one of us, and we'll um, 
get back with you, make sure everything can work out your way on the calendar and have you set up. And uh, follow the protocol on the Patreon website, of course. 30-day rules in effect, 10-year rules in effect, um, Wednesday to Tuesday of the year that you want your show in, this year or next year, not the year that you want your show. And uh, let, okay, let us know. Let us know why you want to do the show, and that way we'll uh, make sure everything lines up and you'll be able to uh, enjoy your $25 pledge. $50 I should send in for a segment of the show if you choose, and 100 for the whole show if you choose. This is part of the perks for the Patreon. And annual fee, Bix, for everybody that want, might want to jump on and, as an annual uh, subscriber. Yes, if you want to do annual billing, I believe it's 16% off regardless of the tier. So for $5 a month, that comes out to uh, $50.40 a year. There you go. What a bargain. So uh, patreon.com slash between the sheets. All right. Who do we have to thank this week as our new and or returning patrons? All right. We would like to thank Joe Larson. Thanks, Joe. Will Hofer. Thanks, Will. Future recluse, future recluse or recluse, whichever. <laughs> Thank you, future recluse. Let me make sure I'm reading this one right. Daniel Nufter. Thanks, Danny. Tracy, uh, it's, we decided it's Warobi, right? I believe. Yeah, I think so. Tracy Warobi. Thanks, Tracy. Tracy Warobi, yes. Uh, Jason Hagholm. Thanks, Jason. John Geyer. Thanks, John. A familiar name, but I can't remember if he was already a patron. Stosh McConnell. Thanks, Stosh. Maybe in the past. It's been a, we've been doing this for years, so yes. you know, sometimes you forget. Graham Cameron. Thanks, Graham. I'm going to read these last two out of order for a reason you'll understand. Louis Nelson. Thanks, Louis. And Jeff, a ghost. <laughs> Thanks, Jeff. Jeff, Jeff then ghost. in parenthesis, a ghost. <laughs> Thanks, Jeff. A ghost. <laughs> so we thank all you new patrons, you old patrons, returning patrons, people there from the beginning, come along the way. We thank all of you for supporting us at patreon.com slash which we the sheets as I yawn. All right, IWTV. What well, I tell you what, they've been very, very busy this month, Bix. So tell everybody what's going on in IWTV. Well, you know, for starters, uh, Uncharted Territory season four Southeast First started on Monday. Yes. And I caught some of it because we were recording during some of it, but uh, pretty solid show so far. I would say the highlight would be uh, our friend's violence and is forever defending, I think it was the SUP and action tag titles against, uh, oh God, why am I forgetting their name all of a sudden? Shit, now I feel bad. But their tag title defense was really good. The brain fart. I mentioned it. Ah, shit. I, had, I, I just remembered it earlier and now I'm pissed off. But... Um, it was the I watched it Monday after we finished recording. What the okay, hold on. <laughs> Uncharted Southeast. Now I feel like an asshole. Uh no. Oh man. That's funny. I know it, but I'm waiting for you to get it. I forgot. I don't know why. Oh, 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 Culture oh, Inc. Yes, yes. Culture yes, Inc. Yes. <laughs> no, but they had a really good match, and I was very impressed Eli with Eli and Malik for the first time. Yes. Yes. Yes, and Dom and Koo now are, they have four sets of tag belts, right? They have a lot of belts. And Culture Inc., they're, you know, they're a young team who's uh, coming up, so everybody watch out for them. Very nice gear as well, which is always a plus on the indie scene. 
Yes, and they were very impressive. But yeah, Damanku, so they're sub champs, action champs, C4 champs, Black Label Pro champs, plus Ku is action singles champ, and Dom... Is that tonight? Because it's not live streaming the Akron AIW show where he's getting his shot at uh, Matt Cardona's absolute intense title. Something like that, yeah. Tonight. We're recording this on Friday, to be clear, because that's not live streaming because the Akron building is not really good for that. But those shows usually go up pretty much as quickly as possible. I'm checking the AIW Twitter right now. Uh, Maybe that's I think it is this weekend, but it's I'm not seeing it right now uh okay wait there we go uh okay no no no. that's next week 21st so this coming as you hear this this coming saturday will be the aiw show in akron and though it won't be live streamed it should be available on uh iwtv within a day or so of it happening so there's that so yes lots of lots of gold and potential gold for dom and Koo. um as we're recording this there's a west coast pro show tonight that will be up on demand by the time people hear this. Let's see what we got here. Kevin Thatcher. Kevin Thatcher. Timothy Thatcher versus Kevin Blackwood. Uh, Biff Music, Vinny Massaro. Will Ospreay, Titus Alexander. Uh, AJ Gray, Robert Martyr. Uh, Billy Stark, Stark Sheik. Levi Everett. Uh, J.D. Drake. And more. So, usual, very nice looking on paper. Uh, West Coast Pro show and then okay what else do we have here at least the so the weekend we're recording this week there's also an on point show a northern Fe- who's northern federation of wrestling is a new one to me i don't even remember seeing that when we were going over this stuff last week uh high tension wrestling yeah there is a lot this weekend action is uh may 21st yeah so yes which well, i don't know if that, that, that's a live or not a live stream I know they're they're they have a show. In uh, High yes, they are live streaming on the one that now is a this release is uh this, well, it'll be this Saturday. Uh, this uh, Saturday, yes. So let me see what the lineup. AC Mac and Allen Angels is the main event. Uh, you know they've got a lot of history together. Yes. Have had matches in action. It's going to be for the uh, the championship, the IWTV championship. So uh, yeah, everybody go check that out. Yes. Uh, okay. This Saturday. I- yeah, I got the lineup. It is so w- at least what's announced so far. That's at least on the IWTV site. Uh, Mac and Angels for the IWTV title. Marcus Mathers, I believe, making his action debut against Damian Tangra. Uh, Bobby Flacco and both Finley brothers against the Skulk and Damian Turner. Phil Schneider said that Bobby should be replaced by Fit. <laughs> Isn't Bobby like Brogan's like lifelong best friend though? Yeah, but Phil wants fit <laughs> being there for the whole Finley family. <laughs> sure, sure. Um, and also uh, Luke and PJ Hawks in action, uh, taking on Jay Spade and Brady Pierce. I I think that uh, that uh, Matt Griffin should go ahead and book uh, Swoggle to team up with the Finley brothers. Well, yeah, they are brothers. That'd be perfect. That'd be perfect. <laughs> <laughs> Get on that, Matt Griffin. Yeah, I mean, you can just text Thorne. Thorne is, uh... Thorne Swoggle's, uh... Booking agent, isn't he? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, well, Dom. Dom's in there, too, so... Well, yeah. But, so, yeah, that should happen. That should happen, absolutely. Yes. Oh, and I also, uh... Because I forgot that on the, uh... 
ICW No Holds Barred show in Boston that is coming the weekend. We're recording this and it should be up on demand by the time uh, people hear this. Includes uh, <laughs> the death. Is this the first death match ever between a married couple, Casey Kirk versus Brandon Kirk? What about no? Uh, John John Morrison and Taya had that match. Yeah, weekend. would you consider that a death match? It was pretty fucking wild. Yeah. <laughs> there was a lot of weapons involved in blood. Yeah. So. I don't know if you saw Brandon had tweeted, uh, I think it was earlier this week, like a screenshot of him and Casey trying to figure stuff, like certain things to do during the match, like with fire and stuff. And like, just my response was like, I'm simultaneously terrified and thinking you have the perfect marriage. <laughs> but should be an interesting match. I've been I've been pretty high on both of their work lately, so I'm curious to see that. Plus, uh, Eric Eric Ryan defending the American Deathmatch title against uh, Bobby Beverly in a Taipei Deathmatch is the main event of that one. So, trying to think, is there anything else on here? Um, I have not watched the LVAC show that Joe's supposed to have called yet, but I know that's up. And I didn't see a ton on demand that went up this week other than the archive live stream. So I think we covered it. They had a Lucha Meme show go with Tony Tappan against Virus. Really? Okay, yes. I saw there was a Lucha Meme show, but I did not check what was on it. That's that's a very interesting match, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, I expect it to be really good. I mean, you know, look at... uh, Look at how you know Tony's matches with Makabe look and stuff. Like he can he can go on the mat, so that could be really yeah. interesting. Also, a- ASF versus Ricky Marvin. Anyone else I'm familiar with on the show? Oh, Dante Leon in action. A fellow black and brave graduate of uh, Kai McKenna. So, gonna try to watch some of that at least. Definitely, definitely uh, Tony Deppin versus Virus though. Yeah. So. If you're not already a subscriber to IWTV, go to independentwrestling.tv, use code BTSPOD, and we will get a uh, referral on your subscription as long as you remain a paid subscriber. Yes. All right. Private Internet Access. Today's episode of Between the Sheets is sponsored by Private Internet Access, America's number one virtual private network. Even if you use incognito mode, your internet service provider is storing your browsing data and many times even selling it bastards but private internet access can help private internet access encrypts and reroutes your internet traffic through one of its own servers hiding your data from your internet service provider or network admin and with servers in over 75 different countries you can get unrestricted access to geoblock content from around the world private internet access comes with easy to use apps and browser extensions for all devices a rock solid privacy policy open source security advanced customization settings and it was just ranked the fastest VPN in the world by PC Mag. Number one, El Numero Uno. And if you sign up with Private Internet Access right now, you can take advantage of a special deal only for BTS listeners. Let's talk about that, shall we? You can get a monthly deal at eleven ninety-five a month. You can get a yearly deal at $3.33 a month or $39.95 a year, but the best deal. 83% off. Three years plus four free months, $1.98 a month, $79 over three years. Yes. Amazing. And, and of course, those are paid up front, the uh, three-year and one-year one option, to be clear. So, I mean, 
you, I mean, it's a fantastic deal because you got the unbreakable VPN security, strict no-law policy, tons of customizable privacy features. Trust your data is protected by the most transparent and privacy-focused VPN ever created. You can cover up to 10 devices at no extra cost with dedicated PIA apps for every platform, every browser, and every operating system. You get zero restrictions, unlimited content, thousands of servers, undefined countries. You can easily access all your favorite content, such as TV shows, movies, music, apps, more, regardless of where you live. And you got no law policy, 100% open source, easy configuration, built-in ad blocking, 24-7 customer support, all the advanced features you want. Just fantastic. And it's so much more inexpensive than virtually every other VPN on the market. So if you get private internet access right now, you could take their 30-day risk-free challenge, try it out for 30 days, see if you like it. If not, just return it for a full refund. So go to privateinternetaccess.com slash between the sheets and try out the best goddamn VPN on the planet, completely risk-free. Hey. Bang. So there you go. All right. Next week on Between the Sheets, we'll go back to 1995. And uh, on the plug at the end of the show, we talked about maybe getting a guest. Well, we're just going to do it, me and Bix, this time because we're going to go ahead and get that Patreon show recorded. So we want to make sure that we have enough time to take care of that because it's going to be another one of them doozies. So we're going to do next week's show with just us. And we got you know, a little bit to talk about. It's one of those short weeks. But we got Shawn Michaels returning to Raw as a babyface. We'll talk about that. His first, his first match since uh, the Sid Angle after WrestleMania. Oh, and, and what my, a match it was. King Kong Bundy. Yeah, this is my favorite incarnation of Shawn Michaels this time period. So we'll be talking about that and all the other stuff going on at the time, including Diesel having his elbow issues starting to break down. We got the indie scene, of course, with USWA featuring the return of the Downtown Connection in Memphis with Downtown Bruno. We have Smoky Mountain Wrestling running major shows in Charlotte and Knoxville, but not to their standards. So we'll talk about that. We have Bill Alfonso making his debut in ECW on television. Plus, we'll have a Cat This Chat promo, which is interesting. And some interesting house shows to talk about. That's the D. Malenko, Eddie Guerrero fuse getting going, hot and heavy. We'll have Lucha. We got Japan featuring some indie shows, including two indies we never talked about before. Um, we got All Japan starting their tour up. And at WCW, we got Slamboree 95. Quite the show to talk about there and everything else going on at WCW during that time period, which is uh, quite the time period, so to speak, for WCW, including a former NFL player showing up, possibly looking for work, and uh, Ric Flair Invader against Dos Amigos. So all that more next week on Between the Sheets. Hmm. They're mm-hmm. facing a, an alleged Mexican mass team on Worldwide while they're feuding with Hulk Hogan and Randy Savage during sweeps. Hmm. It's one of my favorite WCW angles of the period, so we'll talk about that and a lot more next week on Between the Sheets. All right, you can follow me on Twitter at Chris Zellner, K-R-I-S-Z-E-L-L-N-E-R, show proper at btsheetspod, bix at david bix and uh bix you had a new article go up uh, in the recent week so go ahead and talk about that and whatever else yeah i think i plugged it a little bit last week but it uh went up since then um have an article at fanbite looking at me ma- you know mainly the historical part but using the you know latest in the wwe won't let certain people quit stuff 
to look at some stuff I got with regards to Rick Root's uh, contract dispute from over 30 years ago. Because of all things, I had done a Freedom of Information Act request with the U.S. Attorney's Office for stuff from the WWF investigation about him, and it had his correspondence with Vince McMahon and stuff about all that, as well as his contract. So that made for some interesting reading. I didn't actually mention it in the article because I just couldn't find a good way and a good place to fit it in, but... So it's like there's this Vince letter. There's a letter from one of the lawyers whose name they don't mention. I'm assuming it's um, oh, what's her, uh, Mary Gambardella, who I think was the uh, House Counsel at the time. You know, you know, and there's I think a royalty statement stuff too. And there's only one like longer letter from Rude. And the more the more we've learned and stuff about Rick Rude over the years, it seems very clear that he wrote the letter. But there's this handwritten note from someone, I'm assuming Vince or Linda McMahon, that I don't have in front of me right now, but it says something to the effect of, and these are all linked in the article too, uh, this letter obviously wasn't written by Rick, and if it was written by a lawyer, it's very sloppy. <laughs> like, they were just in denial that Rick Rude would be, like, as angry at them as he was. It's very strange to read. In that sense. But, How dare he? Yeah, you know, that's a story that yeah, we don't talk about it as much now, but it was a big deal at the time. You know, the whole thing where he, you know, on whatever delay payoffs were coming, saw that he wasn't getting the pay he was promised from when he was injured, which he was upset about both because they said they would take care of him while he was injured, and also because they false advertised him for so long while he was injured that he felt he should get the main event payoffs for those shows because he drew the houses, which is, look, does it, having a substitute make it complicated? But I mean, WWE's the one that false advertised him. They used his name to draw that house. If he's not getting main event money, he should at least get something comparable because he still kind of did his job in terms of bringing the people there. And... They get into that dispute, and then on TV, he's suspended for uh, insulting Big Boss Man's mother. <laughs> Which, what a weird suspension. Although, the angle where he's handcuffed to the guardrail by Boss Man at the end of Superstars, that was not intended to write him out off, right? That was just, it just happened to be a fairly decent angle to be his last appearance, right? Yeah. So... All that's in there. You know, the documents are linked in the article, so everyone take a look at that at Fanbyte. And do I have anything up with them in the next week or so? I'll, I have to double check, and I also will have something going into Double or Nothing, kind of. Now that, you know, we haven't had an arena, you know, Vegas Double or Nothing since the first one, because of the pandemic. So I'm going to have something coming up ahead of the pay-per-view, looking back at the first show, and now, you know, there are a lot of overlapping wrestlers and stuff, but boy, does AEW look different from what it did on that first show. Yeah, well, the XWWE guys sh have shown up. Since well, then, not so. even that, though. Like, the the OWE presence, the way the Japanese women are being used, you know? Like, there's a lot there that just kind of, well, for various reasons, even before the pandemic. Well, the difference is, back then... You you had all the EVPs had, had their own little thing, and now it's just one person. Yeah. So. 
you know, and then other stuff like the some of the more maligned inclusions in the Battle Royal, like Dustin Thomas and uh, what's his face uh, from your neck of the woods. One sunny days, of course. Well, he was just on AEW recently, but so. in his current gimmick doing extra work. Yeah, but still. Yeah. He's been working for them the whole time in video production, but anyway. Yeah. So yeah, so that'll be up soon. I'm, I forget if I have something else coming up ahead of that, but I'm sure there will be more. So anyway, everyone uh, check that out. And I think that's it for now. All right. Well, let's get back to the rest of the show. All right. Me and Bix are here for the Lucha section now. Kyle will be back with us in just a little bit, but uh, let's go to AAA. And uh, both CML and AAA are trying to convince Pedro Aguayo to continue wrestling until September. Pedro had said that the June 11th Triple Mania show would be his final match for AAA, and then he'd have one final retirement match for CML only in Mexico. The Aguayo retirement tour has been packing houses throughout Mexico. CML wants his retirement on, on its own 66th anniversary show, which at this point is scheduled for September 17th. Funny mm-hmm. reading this. <laughs> He's not wrestling that much longer. 2001, yeah, two years. I mean, one thing that he deserves a lot of credit for that I don't feel like he gets, at least in, like, you know, English Lucha fandom, that guy decided to not only go out putting someone over, but retiring off of an injury angle to put someone over. Yes. You do not see that often. No. No, and he, I mean... Shaved his head. <laughs> I mean, everything. I mean, he, he went hard in, in, in doing that, too. And, it, I mean, he secured himself. A lot of these guys aren't, but he was. Yep. And so, he, I mean, that wasn't his last, last match. He did a few after that, but it was effectively his retirement. Yeah. And he, pretty much. He made Universo Dos Mil a much bigger single star coming out of that. You know, he was a star, you know, yeah. as part of Hermanos Dinamites. But this is, you know, what we're, we were just talking about in 2001 and going from there is his peak, absolutely his peak as a singles. Yeah. All right. Uh, Triple N and Antonio Pena are again making noise about running shows in the United States this year. Well, wait, Conan's not there. So who's? <laughs> Who knows? All it's, right, it's, it's, it's the once a year observer item either way yeah they taped TV in Arena Solidaridad on May 16th La Briosa and La Nazi Tino of Montevideobos to beat Miss Jana Vicky Carranza and Soshiamara and Hermata Granapachi Marabunta Mr. Condor defeated Mexico Nina de la Calle Oscar Sevilla and Sky Day interesting then we have Felino Heavy Metal and Umberto Garza Jr. Over Abismo Negro, Cibernetico, and Electro Shock. And then a steel cage match <clears throat> where we had uh, El Sangrario, Mongo Chino, Pocho Jr., and the Panther losing. This is, uh, we got multiple Atomicos here, or something like that. It, yeah, I think, it, well, it's three, not. It's a three way three-way, three-way Atomicos match because we had the, the, Los Vipers, Hysteria, Maniaco, Mosca de la Maset, and Psychosis, number two. And then we have Los Vatos Locos, Charlie Munson, Mayflowers, Nigma, and Picudo. So it's a three-way Atomicos cage match. And AAA, well, I guess really Lucha Escape rules, where especially if it's a three-way, you don't necessarily announce a winner, you announce a loser. Yes. So that's AAA. 
Steve Malone, they return to remake on May 21st, where Grace Sasuke defending his NBA middleweight title against Utsumo Guerrero. Well, that's where he will do defending. Uh, he won an elimination match on May 14th at Arena Coliseo. They're also challenging the show, going back and forth between Negro Casas and Scorpio Jr. over a hair versus hair match. Although the show wasn't made specific at the match would take place this week. The May 14th and May 11th shows at Coliseo were both sellouts, and there were approximately 250 fans that came in for the former show on a Japanese tour. tour. Plus a lot of Japanese media since Sasuke's there. It was advertised in Mexico that May 14th's card was going to be taped for Japanese television. It wasn't made clear what station, but the best assumption would be Gaora, since Sasuke was on the show. And all the Mexican wrestlers had major working shoes on, knowing so many people would watch them, and the lure of lucrative Japanese tours if they impressed the right people. The big match in the middle was set with Tarzan Boy, Zoro, Pantera, Tony Rivera, and Olimpico against Fuzzagadera, Violencia, Ultima Guerrero, Black Warrior, and Riva Canero, Torreo Cibernetica. The local press reported this match as being the best match of the year in CMLL, although those who have seen the match weren't going that overboard in the praise. The match aired this coming weekend on Galavision, although Dave has no idea when that show airs, because whenever he tried to see it, soccer's on. It wound up with all the technicals eliminated, but both uh, Utimo Guerrero and Rebo Guerrero left on a Rudo side, so they had to face each other in a singles match. Guerrero scored a pin with a backward suplex, literally dropping Bucanero on his head with a scary-looking move for the pin. Sasuke teamed with Negro Casas and Elantis in the main event, beating Zumbido, Zumbi Zumbidoski, Apollo Dantes and Scorpio Jr. in straight falls with the Rudos DQ'd in the second fall. All right, first off, we'll talk about May 11th, the Tuesday show Casas. We have Fletcher and Ricky Marvin over Principe Negro and Sangre Azteca. Mono Negro Jr. and Sky Day over Alan Stone and Moto Cross, his brother Chris Stone. Angel Azteca, Mr. Oi, and Super Kendo over Américo Roca, Damiano Guerrero, and Ia de Gladiador. Arcángel de la Muerte, Satanico, and Valentin Mayo over Mascara Magica, Solar, number one, and Starman. And then the Vida Charles Jr. and the Headhunters, winning by DQ over Dr. Biden Jr., Gran Marcus Jr., and Villano Tercero. How wild is it that Skyda is working a AAA TV taping and a mainline CMLL show in the same week? Yeah, I know, right? That's interesting, especially in this era. Yeah. Yeah. May 14th. La Grande Durango and Picasso over a Nimingo Publico and Fugaz. Chicago Express and Moguer over Olympus and Solar, number two. And then we... And then we had the Torneo Cibernetico, won by Ultimo Guerrero. Cien Caras, Mascar, Año dos Mil, and Satanico over Brazo de Oro, Brazo de Plata, and Shocker. And then Atlanti, Sasuke, and Casas over Dante, Scorpio, and Zumbido. And then May 16th, at Coliseo, we have El Cafre and Fierro over Ángel de Plata and Sombra de Plata. Fantastic y Peloso over Heque and Reyes Vellos. Asure Jr., Mascar Magica, and Mr. Oi over America Roca, Dr. O'Borman Jr., and Carl Fagardi Jr., and then Brazo de Plata, Grace Sasuke, Miss Niebla, and Jorge Mendoza over Paul Nates, Black Warrior, Gran Marcus Jr., and Satanico. And then our main event was a Caballero Coach Caballero match. El Torero over Guerrero del Futuro. Hmm. So I did watch what's on YouTube on Roy's channel um, from the Friday show. Because especially when I was looking at the notes, I was like, oh, a Cibernetico. And what I haven't seen. Um... <laughs> Dave's assessment that it was hyped up, but the, the people he talked to who saw it didn't think it was particularly noteworthy, I think is kind of right. Because, I mean, especially with those guys at this time period where 
uh, CMLL, I mean, not even just CMLL, also in other promotions too. Torneo Cibernetico pretty much is a like, guaranteed blow-away match. It was fine. Um, the main highlight to me was being reminded of just how good Olympico was when he was younger. Yeah. You know, um, the, the overall highlight, though, is that when Sasuke comes out at the beginning of the match... Because he's defending against the winner, he is wearing the survival Tobita t-shirt. Yeah, yeah. And the <clears throat> main main event was fun. Um, the thing I noticed though was that Sasuke uh, Sasuke did not look comfortable doing the first fall of a CMLL main event with the brawling and stuff. Yeah, but yeah, good times. Yes, and then oh, this yeah. promotion just keeps heating up too. So. Yeah. IWRG, Arena Nakapan on May 16th. We have Zonico by Caballero Azteca. We have Brule, Circus, Roddy, and a mystery partner. Well, nobody knows who it was. Over Kenichi Arai, Mercurio, Rokambale Jr., and Suzumi Mochizuki. Moonwalker, Starboy, and Ultimo Vampiro over Bombero Infernal, Dr. Cerebro, and Manyakap. Fantasy beat Wake Ray Cuervo in a Mascara Contra Mascara match. And then our main event for the IWRG Intercontinental Waterweight title, Shima Nomanaga, Shima retained over Mike Suicida Segura. That sounds like a hell of a match. Yes, it does. And it's not as common, but like the IWRG TV from 99 is out there. Uh, I remember years ago, Bahari made me like an eight hour best of IWRG 1999 that I wish I still had. But I don't remember if that match was on there, especially because that's a match I would really be into. Yeah. Yeah, sounds like a hell of a fucking match. And then we got Tori Mexico. That was a special show in Nakapan on May 15th. Only result we have is Grace Sasuke defending the Indian middleweight title over Sumo Fuji. So, yeah, no more results yeah, other so than that. I'm guessing this is the one match that aired on Goura from this show. Possible. That's why we have the result. Possible. And well, also, it's a title match, too, so it could also just be people charting title matches more and how that's easier to find. Yeah. All right, WWC, Manati, Puerto Rico, May 15th. We have San Cristiana over Bouncer Bruno. No, it's not Downtown Bruno in no, his uh, incarnations. Brian Logan over Black Boy, Sean Hill over Brett Sanders, King Alexander over Tahitian Warrior, and then Dutch Mantel went to double count out with King Alexander. Ray Gonzalez won a street fight over Petoff. Ricky Santana over Rico Suave by disqualification. Rico. And then Double C World Tag Title Match. The Star Corporation, Cheeky Star and Fit the Bodyguard, retained over La Corporacion, Invader One, and Glamour Boy Shane by disqualification. So, there's WWC. Yeah, I have a, a quick question, and I'm curious what you think of this. Because I've wondered this for a while. Is Victor the Bodyguard the biggest money-drawing wrestling star with the worst ring name? <laughs> Um, that they never did a name change with him after he became a push wrestler? Dolph Ziggler. Is, is Dolph Ziggler a big money draw? Like, 
He's been a he's been a guy that's been in main events for over ten years in WWE picks. Yeah, but yeah, but, but that's but he's main evented. He's been world champion. But you uh, get my point, though. It's not just I, a stupid yeah, gimmicky name. He, he, it's Victor the Bodyguard. True, but still, I would say Dolph Ziggler is a worse name. Okay, I get your for, point. I mean, and he's been a he's been a major player in that gimmick for over ten years. Well, over ten years now. Yeah. So, yeah, exactly. All right, Kaya's back with us, and let's go to the independent scene. And what a story we have here to lead off. And one of those good practical jokes, Mike Moraldo, who wrestles his ace darling, was told that he was going to be part of an interpromotional angle and do a run-in on Gino Caruso, oh, his show on May 12th with Devin Storm. Well, he did the run-in, but there were only 25, 30 fans in the building. And as you look closer, they were all pro wrestling people, including Jim Cornette, King Kong Bundy, Steve Carino, Nova, and promoter Jim Katner. And it turned out to be a surprise bachelor party as he's getting married shortly. Aww. That's nice. <laughs> a feel-good story on this week's Between. A celebratory his... occasion. <laughs> Imagine his reaction. <laughs> he's ready to this angle. And then, like, wait a minute. Where's everybody at? Is that Jim Cornette? <laughs> King Kong Bundy? What's he doing here? Well, also, <laughs> it's funny for me, like, I don't know the last time I tried to watch any ECPW on YouTube, but the last time I tried, which was during the uh, Metal Maniac comeback, just to see what that looked like, there were like 25, 30 people in Ridgefield Park, so it was <laughs> about the same. Par for the course. <laughs> yes. Amazing. All right, well, let's go to LAW in Chichester, Pennsylvania, May 16th. Open a match. Trent Acid over Billy Real. Cool Kid Ice over Nick Burke. Rich Myers over Mr. Motion. Then we had LAW heavyweight title where Jimmy Gennetti beat Stevie Richards to win the championship. Rock and Rebel over Johnny Law. Well, we know whose license was used here. Cujo and Matt Martini over Hollywood Inc. Bodacious Brad and Hollywood Frank. James Proper over Chris Krueger. Johnny Cashmere and the other Ron Starr over Midnight and Nate Hatred. And then our main event, Rocco Rock over Derek Domino. Hmm. This is a show, Bix. Yeah. Um... Got every flavor of ice cream in the case. <laughs> yeah, you got one half of Public Enemy against one half of uh, Derek Domino and Harley Lewis. The Misfits, yeah. Yeah, you've got, you've got your Rock and Rebel match <clears throat> that he got, got from the... Rock and Rebeling himself onto the show. <laughs> uh, you got Young Trent Acid. Yeah, uh, against Billy Real too. Wouldn't they? You know, broke yeah. in together basically because they Absolutely. were the. Uh, Oh, what was the nickname for them when they would do spot high spots in the parking lot before uh, ECW show? What was it? The, was it the Sick Kids? Something like that, yeah. The, I don't think it was Extreme Kids, but it was something like the Sick Kids or something like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So there's that. Now let's go to Blaine DeSantis' Pennsylvania Championship Wrestling, where they brought in several new wrestlers from around North America as well for shows on May 14th in Hamburg. Pennsylvania, May 15th in Wingap, Pennsylvania. The former drew 800 fans. Apparently, Venom Black from Tijuana really impressed with the highlight being a three-way with Christopher Daniels and Reckless Youth. 
Also brought in for the weekend were Tony Jones and Michael Modis of All Pro Wrestling. Tuco Scorpio, who won the Peace Debutant on three-way over Daniels and Reckless Shield on May 14th, but dropped to the next night in Lance Diamond. And Detroit, Ontario guys like Joey Legend and Zach Wild. Let's read the results of this show, shall we? Let's go to Hamburg in the Fieldhouse on May 14th, 800. Chris Kruger and Sweet Mr. E teamed up with Judd the Stud over J.J. Johnston, Scott Fury, and Vincent Goodnight. Christopher Daniels over Venom Black. That's a hell of a fucking match there in 1999. Tony Jones over Zach Wild by Countout. Lance Diamond, Simon Diamond over El Fuego. Flash Flanagan over Joe E. Legend. Then the three-way where Scorp beat Daniels in Reckless Youth. Glenn Osborne and Michael Modest went to a double disqualification. Talk about your indie worlds colliding here in 1999. Oh, what a match this is. Jet Peterson and Starla Sexton over Mr. Ulala and Lagata. And Starla Sexton, of course, is uh, Molly Holly. That's correct. And then our main event. What, what the this hell is, is this? Flash Flanagan, Glenn Osborne, Lance Diamond, and Reckless Youth defeated Christopher Daniels, Michael Modest, Tony Jones, and Venom Black. Okay. This must have been a TV taping, too, since we have a few people working <laughs> double duty here. Yeah. And then we go to that Wing Gap. Thought. Yeah, exactly. And then we go to Wing Gap at the middle school. We have Vincent Goodnight over Sweet Mr. E. El Fuego over Zat Wild. Chris Kruger over Tony Jones. Mr. Ulala and Lagata over Jeff Peterson and Starla Sexton. Scott Fury and Boogie Woogie Brown over Kodiak Bear and Sweet Mr. Uh. E. <laughs> Anytime Kodiak Bear gets mentioned, Bix groans. Uh, Flash Flanagan over Michael Modis. Venom in a three-way, beating Christopher Daniels and Reckless Youth. Joey Legend over Glenn Osborne. Lance Diamond getting the PCW title from Scorp. And then Scorp and Glenn Osborne over Lance Diamond and Joey Legend. How is it that Blaine DeSantis just running his own shows is doing a much better showcase of the indies than Break the Barrier was? <laughs> <laughs> Amazing how that works out, isn't it, Pix? Yeah. I'd be curious to see a lot of this stuff. I mean, they're interesting-looking shows. Um, after discovering what a gigantic human Flash Flanagan was in the clusterfuck last year, I'm just curious what he and Mike Modest would look like physically with the height <laughs> difference. Um these are interesting shows. Venom Black. Who? I mean, that's crazy. You yeah. Bring him in uh, an indie show in 1999 for Tijuana. I mean, the, that's outside the box right there. Yeah, and PCW always put on good shows. So, you know, I think this some of this stuff is out there. So I'd be very curious to get if this got on IWTV or YouTube or whatever. I definitely want to watch them. This, although some, some for you know genuine looking forward to it. Some for main event of the first Morbid show reasons. curiosity yes yeah um yeah, exactly. like well i have to see this <laughs> yeah and i also just like again just the different places he's bringing people from you know multiple people from ontario you know because dave didn't mention him but you know fuego is another ontario guy he was one of mm -hmm. you know the stalwarts as a trainer at sully's gym you know training you know beth phoenix and think gail kim and he wouldn't have been around earlier, so I think he would have maybe broken in around the t same time as Edge and Christian. But, you know, that's, you know, another uh, guy from way out of, you know, the territory, so to speak. So It's like crazy yeah. how you can trace the roots back like that. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. All right. Maryland Championship Wrestling. Good at old Owing Maryland. Maryland. It always knows. Owings Mills High School in Owings Mills in front of 508 fans. That's that number on May 16th. 
Earl the Pearl that's over. That's a decent sized draw for an indie man. Yeah. Earl the Especially Pearl. Like at 99. I know. Sorry. I know. Yes, you're good. 508. Yeah. Nice house. Earl the Pearl over Stevie Richards. Romeo Valentino over Adam Flash. Cuba Ball Carmichael over Gregory Martin. Tom Brandy over Julio Sanchez. Two of my favorite names from the old PWF 500 names in the NCW Tag Title Match. Two dope and sideswipe over the Bruiser and Danny Rose to win the championship. A three-way for the MCW Cruiserweight title as Christian York retained over Joey Matthews and Ramblin' Rich Myers. MCW Heavyweight title match, Moss retained over Jimmy Cicero. And then the final match, Guy Pritzker and Justin Ott over Martin Sharp Schrader and Dino Devine. Which those other two guys, you think they could be like some of the high school coaches or some shit like that? It must be, them. yeah. I don't recognize it's, those names. Yeah. Also, I love that it's very obvious that you put this in your results file from Je- from a Jeff Amder RSPW post because it has match time since he was the timekeeper. <laughs> Is that well? There's ways of getting things fixed, but yes, as a Jeff Amder special. Yes. So there I always you go. found like time cues to be very interesting and like actual times for matches because sometimes things feel way longer than they are and sometimes things don't feel as long as they are and you know it makes a difference between a show going four hours or two like it's the whole world of time cues is very very interesting in the effect of, that they have on professional wrestling and wrestlers especially indie wrestling oh my gosh like case study in time cues Recently, I was at a show and I did time cues and it came in at like two hours and 15 minutes. Perfect. Next night, I did not do time cues and it was like three and a half, four hours. <laughs> and I was like, man, you know? Yeah, I, I think that the was per- the thing that happened. <laughs> I was like, yeah, okay. I, I think the perfect time for an indie show is two and a half hours. I give and take 15 minutes. It, yeah. But what, once you get the three and over, that's a little much. <laughs> that's well, a little like that's much. The, that's the thing, too, is I think that people don't, you know, like if you're not actually keeping time, then people like don't have it in the back of their heads to tighten up. Right. Because it's weird yeah. because it's like when you when you're keeping time, everybody miraculously is within their time frame for the most part. But when you when you don't keep time because people have demonstrated that they can, you know, keep time themselves that's when the wheels fall off it's every time like Absolutely. You, you would think that like okay I'm, I'm not even trying to figure that one out but yes very interesting and also very interesting that it seems like they were really good about keeping all the matches between like five and ten minutes like give the main event and i think that's something that's kind of like lost these days is like every match goes like 10 to 15 minutes and then it makes these really long indie shows and it's like mm. man but there's something to be said for just like fast moving gets it done down and dirty. And then the main event and the semi-main are your longer matches. Like I miss that format sometimes. Well, and also as, there... as both a fan okay. and a wrestler. But also there are some venues. I mean, and you know this, that like some promoters don't take as good care of it. Some do, but like there are venues, you know, like Ridgefield park where a ton of the fans are coming in from New York city from the bus and they need to make that last bus and not every promoter who runs that building is good about keeping up with that. Yeah, it's it's just an awareness thing and also like 
not everybody has the tools to do the time cues. Not that you need tools to do it. Obviously, it helps if you have like radios and you have referees that are trained to do it. But you do it like baseball style where somebody like scratches their nose. It's like, oh, wait, there must be three minutes left. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So no, it's, it's interesting how that, that shift has taken hold recently in professional wrestling, how like most matches are clocking in between like 10 and 15 minutes as opposed to like your six to eight minute exchanges. Yeah. All right. ATCW. This is a show that was in Martinsburg, West Virginia at the old police gym on May 14th. There's some names on this one. Hell Billy Otis <laughs> and Nick Fury over Agent Orange and Tiny. I hope he wore overalls. Pinky the Flamingo <laughs> Kid over Purple Haze. The Minister Sinister. Oh, come on. <laughs> over Shift <laughs> DZ Gillespie. Julio Sanchez over Armageddon. Christian York and Paul Mitchell over Joy Matthews and CJ Brock. Hey, Ty Streets on this show, Bix, beating Chad Austin by disqualification. Friend of the show, Chad Austin, a, yes. A, a three-way of Morgus the Maniac over Don Rot and Patch. And then our main event, Marty Gennetti over J.R. Ryder. Wow. I, I had completely <laughs> forgotten about Hellbilly Otis. What a name. Marty Hellbilly? Hellbilly. Hellbilly. Yeah, Hellbilly. Okay. Hellbilly Otis. Yeah. I like that. Well, you know, what it's 1999. What album was out? Hellbilly Deluxe by Rob Zombie. That's right. So there you go. But Marty Janini gets one half of the J team. Amazing. JR. Yeah. Well, also, I forgot to mention earlier, I was surprised that we had the J.J. Johnston results as J.J. Johnston because I, I didn't realize he worked as J.J. Johnston before he was J.J. the Ring Crew guy. I thought that was like his promotion from being J.J. the Ring Crew guy. Yeah. Can you imagine if the J team was around today? <laughs> how big, how, I mean, they they would be on, on a lot of indies yeah. because of their look. They really but they would. Were, but they were also like, you know, JJ was greener than JR was, but they were bad size. They had a look. They were athletic. Um, and they could hang. Yeah. They could work. Yeah, absolutely. Ohio Valley Wrestling. This is free WF days. They were in the Louisville Gardens on May 11th. We have Trailer Park Trash going to a 10-minute draw with Vito Andretti in the opener. See, Cornette sets his shows up like the old territory shows, as we were talking about <laughs> earlier. Here's you a 10-minute draw on your opening match. Well, it's not Cornette yet, though, because Cornette is only uh, – I mean, I don't think – maybe he's bought in, but he hasn't – he's about to relocate either way, right? Yeah, but it's Danny Davis, you know, Cornette, and now that philosophy. They have an American Eagle over Chris Alexander. Johnny Spade uh, beat Jason Lee by DQ and OVW Heavyweight Title Match. Cousin Otter, Jebediah Blackhawk, and Rod Steele over Guido Andretti, Rasputin, and Vito Andretti. And then I mean, been a street fight where Flash Flanagan teamed up with Nick Densmore and Trailer Park Trash to beat Damage of Rip Rogers and Rob Conway. This is Ohio Valley of shit right here, this show. Yep. Yeah, it and, is. So there you go. I have Miss South ran a couple of shows. We'll talk about that. Salem, Indiana on May 13th. We have uh, the Suicide Kid retaining IW Mid South Light Heavyweight title over Harry Palmer. Cash Flow over Chip Fairway. Mean and Hard. Me, Mitch Page, rolling hard over the War Machines, one and two. Then we had Doug Gilbert and Tommy Rich going to a no contest with Harry Palmer and Tracy Smothers. Ian Rotten and Richard X 
legend, over Chip Fairway and Dean Baldwin. Yes, sharp boy. And then a double tables match, two tough Tony went to a no contest with Man Man Pondo. Then Tell City on May 14th, we have Roland Hart of War Machine number two, me, Mitch Pedro, War Machine number one, Man Man Pondo over two tough Tony. Then the War Machines teamed up to beat Mean and Hard. Doug Gilbert over Tommy Rich. And Ian Rott retained the IWA heavyweight title beating Mean Mitch Page. And in Bloomington, Indiana, we have Suicide Kid over Rolling Hard. Ian retained the IWA heavyweight title in the Singapore Kane match over Mean Mitch Page. Doug Gilbert over Tommy Rich. Ian Rott and Suicide Kid over Mean and Hard. And Tuta Tony over Man Man Pondo. So the early days of the Mid-South. Yes, pre-Doug Gilbert list. Yes! Yes. Yes, whereas in GCW, the Doug Gilbert list means people who you want to book against Doug Gilbert. It's sad, though, that we didn't get Tommy Rich in, like, 2002, either of been suffer some shit like that. Imagine him. Yeah? Him working punk, punk and hero and doing that type of shit there. <laughs> oh, my God. Yes. Also, okay, I'm curious. Kai, have you ever seen the Dean Baldwin gimmick? No. Okay. <laughs> Look it up on IWTV when you get a chance, because it's... Shark Boy without the mask, huh. as like the lost Baldwin brother is his gimmick. Constantly carrying really? a cocktail, and the best was when he brought the gimmick back a few years later. I think in '03, who was he feuding with? There was someone who did a chase with him around the uh, what was it? Charlestown building was the warehouse in that era, and mm-hmm. like did a whole chase around the building where he never dropped his cocktail. That is impressive. Yes, he definitely had that Billy Baldwin type look going on there. I honestly Absolutely. think he was better at that gimmick than at Shark Boy. I like I enjoyed him better than that too. But Shark Boy was more of a uh, better looking gimmicking. He got to have more success with it. So there you yeah. go. Power Pro Wrestling. Now there's a lot of stuff going on this TV show, but we only have one thing that was online for a clip. Now, on the May 15th show, it opened with Vic Grimes in a parking lot, telling downtown Bruno to run him over with a car. A few years back, Grimes did an angle in Hayward, California, where a car door going fairly fast hit him in a parking lot. Just a door? Anyway, Bruno went to do it, but everyone it was stopped the No, it was the outstretched door, yeah. I know, but I'm saying Dave made something that was just a door to hit him, not a car. Oh. <laughs> Grimes yelled <laughs> everyone for stopping him. Grimes promised before the show was over, people would see nothing that they had seen before on Memphis television. Well, we have the clip of the parking lot. So let's go to one Vic Grimes with downtown Bruno in the WMC parking lot. And let's see what kind of craziness goes on here. Together. Live Saturday morning, Power Pro Wrestling presents the Power Hour. <laughs> Whoopee! Another hour of loser <laughs> 70 style wrestling. Hello, Randy. When are you going to stop laying down on the tracks and letting that stupid train run you over? Hardcore equals ratings, and I'm hardcore. And today, boys and girls, for your viewing pleasure, Vic Grimes put his body on the line one more time. And after today, you'll be saying nothing but vicious, vicious, vicious. <laughs> oh, Bruno, come on down. I got a show for you. Wow. I want you to take these keys, get into that car, rev it up, and I want you to step on the gas and run me down. What do you say? I can't do that. You do it, or I'll take your downtown face and run it up and downtown Union Avenue. Now do it. Get in that car. Run me down. That's what I want. That's what you do. Now 
He's legit gonna hit him. I wanna get up and over the hood. Give it a lot of gas. Now come on. Let's get some here. Yeah, there you go. Hey, what are you doing? What are you doing? See what I'm talking about? See what? They're holding. They're holding. Holding back. Get Bruno out of the car. He's not gonna have any of that. I'm sick of this. I'm sick of this garbage. Why do I get the feeling that Randy did not like Vic Rhymes very much? <laughs> Gee. I kind of wanted to see him take the car. Disappointed. <laughs> well, you'll hear about what he, what he does as we move along here, but sadly we won't have the clip. Fireball? Uh no, it's actually not. I, Sad I, say. We had three fireballs. I had to I know to say it. Yeah, it's a, a running theme on this show. So anyway, other things going on. They set up a J.R. Smoove and Glenn Kolka feud with the Freebirds. J.R. Smoove being, of course, Fatu, Rikishi. There were several players from Memphis Redbirds at the studio, and Grimes asked the biggest one to hit him with a chair, and they did. Then Grimes wanted to hit the guy back, but Dave Brown and Corey Macklin, along with referee Aubrey Wayne, stopped him. Aubrey Wayne, of course, being Kim Wayne's son. No, 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 uh, I think Aubrey might be Ken's little brother, right? I thought it was his kid. Well, cause, yeah, you're right. You're right. It was his brother. You're right. You're right. You're right. It was his young brother. You're right. Yes, you're definitely right, the right. second best There's referee named Aubrey. Yes, there is. But second best referee named Aubrey. Yes, and the free birds here is Michael Hayes and Terry Gordy, as we'll talk about in a few minutes. Um, Derek King came out with a personal head security, his own Ralphus. But instead of being a fat guy, it was an old sickly guy called C.B. Wyatt. And Nicole Bass was here. Nicole did an interview saying she would get rid of, of Derek King because Brandon Baxter got her started in wrestling. Nice fiction. They did another angle where Mick Tierney tried to get a retired wrestler, Buddy Wayne, father of Aubrey Wayne, but Kurt Angle cut him off. Vic Grimes brought out a wheelbarrow full of weapons and challenged anyone in the back. Rocky the Redbird, the team mascot, started taunting Grimes and Grimes beat him up until the Power Pro staff beats and several of the baseball players pulled him off. Now, why is there Memphis Redbirds on the show? There is a Redbird Rampage show on May 28th. It's going to be at the Memphis Redbirds game after the game. So that's why there's the tie-in here. And at that show, Mark Henry, Meat, and Prince Albert from WF would be there, along with Michael Hayes and Terry Gordy teaming up against Smooth and Kalka. Mark Henry versus Albert is one of the matches announced. Then we have Brandon Baxter doing an interview with bandages on his eyes, and he probably would never regain sight in his eye, and said this was real life. At least he didn't say it was a shoot, like in ECW angles. It's a shoot, brother. And that King had done it to him. He said he's going back to Texas and was crying and hugged everyone doing an interview pattern after that famous interview Shawn Michaels did to get himself out of the 1997 WrestleMania and dropping the title to Sid. So Derek King and CBY came out, put a plastic bag over his head. Dave Brown and Corey Macklin both got physically involved. Fuck, I hate we don't have this. <laughs> Brown has virtually never gotten physically involved in three decades announcing the show. But then again, Derek King is half David Brown's size. God, I wish we had this. Carl Willett is headed in under the name Chris the Dragon Cannonball, blowing fire out of his mouth, a la Ricky Steamboat's WF gimmick. Considering this was likely a WF gimmick set to try out, and that Steamboat owned the dragon name for wrestling in the U.S., remember him filing a suit against Yoshiro Asai for using the ring name Ultimo Dragon, Dave could smell a problem. 
funny how that doesn't get talked about anymore, Bix. The Ricky Steamboat Ultimo Dragon situation. Well, was that a Ricky yeah, thing or was that up in a while. more a Bonnie thing? I, I think it was more of a Bonnie thing. But, of course, Ricky name, Ricky's name was attached to it. Yes. Kid Wicked, Tony Williams, in an interview, saying he was a franchise player and would show Mick Tierney, who's three times his size, who he called a big robot, how to work. <laughs> Tierney ended up being DQ for throwing down the referee. So Vic Grimes eventually had a weapons match with Steve Bradley. <clears throat> and Grimes' big spot was jumping off the top of the television van onto Bradley on a table with a somersault sent on. The table didn't break. And Grimes rolled off at the concrete pavement with a sick thud. The show ended with the match is on progress. I'm, I can't get over them doing the plastic bag angle on Saturday morning, though. <laughs> After people had already learned in wrestling a decade earlier that you probably shouldn't do those, period, on TV. So let's think about this. Vic Grimes did a somersault senton off a van onto a table that didn't break. And then he rolls off said table and makes a thud on the concrete. <laughs> Outstanding. Awesome. Sounds awesome. <laughs> What's well, not even the craziest bump he did, because we all know what happened in XPW with New Jack. So, <laughs> where he almost got killed. But, uh, yeah, a wild morning in Memphis with Vic Grimes of Power Pro Wrestling. I love how sometimes we'll be in the car on a trip and Yoya, who's one of my frequent car mates will be just like watching like random wrestling on his phone in the back seat. And sometimes like he'll watch like wrestling that maybe isn't so great. And he'll be like, man, you guys got to see this. It's awesome. It's always something that is just like a dumpster fire. You can't look away from. And it just makes me laugh now. Whenever there's just some like hellacious bump or just something that is absolutely absurd. I just think, man, that's awesome. (laughs) <laughs> yeah 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 i mean it, ha- it, ha- it has that he said he hit the concrete i was like man that sounds like something yo-yo would show us <laughs> like you guys got to see this it's awesome hey as long as he's okay that's all that matters i mean yeah, yeah it's, it's, he's it's, okay it's it's just it's it's the prince it's just interesting it's just funny it just made me laugh because i just think of that it's like a good memory we have on the road i suppose all of us in the car yeah there was like one we watched one time. I can't even remember. It was like some indie show in Pennsylvania and these guys were having like a hardcore match and it was it was not very good or safe. And everything is a botch. It's just a mess. And then somehow, by some grace of God, these two like drunk redneck motherfuckers pull off this picture perfect Canadian destroyer off a ladder, which I think was probably supposed to be a sunset flip power bomb but like, oops, <laughs> oops. It, it's it's just like it's mind-blowing because the whole match just is like mind-numbingly bad that it's like wait what the fuck just happened like how did that go off without a hitch <laughs> but everything else is just like horrible <laughs> crazy i'll just see if i can find it it's on youtube wild shit man i mean it's just yeah man Especially in this era, you know, in the late '90s, where people, or ECW has become so influential on the, on the new batch of wrestlers that were out that time that they're trying to incorporate yeah, it was that. Like when it, I was 13 and Jackass hit the scene, and everybody oh god, in Jackass videos, yeah, like oh, we can do ECW stuff. 
And now let's close out with a subdued WCW section because we have no Nitro, of course, but no Thunder during our week due to the NBA playoffs preempting it on TBS. So there's that. All right, let's go to the Pros and Torch. Goldberg's relationship with WCW has never been worse. With his main beef being that he is overworked and underpaid relative to other top stars, he's playing hardball with WCW. He's changed his home phone number and isn't speaking to anyone in management. He's demanding a new contract for more money, said to be like Bret Hart, like money, and fewer dates on the road. His current contract probably pays him in the neighborhood of $800,000 a year. He said to be willing to sit out until his demands are met. He is rumored to be taking advice from agent Barry Bloom and Booker Kevin Nash. Nash, who also employs Bloom as his agent, is being accused of playing both sides. He is giving Goldberg career advice, but it's said to be bad-mouthing him there at Bischoff. Also, Nash pushed Goldberg out of his scheduled Tonight Show appearance in favor of himself. Goldberg is scheduled to show up at the Tonight Show to take part in the Nash-Brett match and will have surgery on his injured knee after that. Some wrestlers believe Goldberg's injury is similar to Hulk Hogan's, and that's a nagging injury that has required surgery for some time. But like Hogan, Goldberg picked an opportune time to have the procedure. He did suffer an, a minor ankle injury during the angle of slambery with Brett. There's been some suspicion that Goldberg's contract dispute or his injury is a work, since there are elements of the situation that appear to be storyline oriented. That's not the case. It's simply a coincidence that he suffered a legitimate leg injury during the angle that was supposed to cause a fake leg injury. WCW, everybody. Part of the histronics of him being carted out of the arena into an ambulance would have taken place, even if he hadn't suffered a legitimate injury. Okay. So, so we get a real, real injury in a, at an angle that's supposed to create a fake injury. And <laughs> not the first time that happened in WCW. Of course not. You know, McFoley being the obvious example. Um, yes. Okay, so here here is the financial data we have for Goldberg from the WCW contract stuff from the discrimination lawsuit. So he actually is under contract in 96 to some degree. I don't know when he started, but he makes a little over 20 grand. In 97, again, I don't know what type of deal he's on. He made over 116 grand. So then 98, he makes uh, over 460 in payroll. Plus, you know, that's when licensing is ramping up, so he gets another really kind of, you know, almost 50 grand in that. And then 99, where he signs the new contract, and I'll get to that in a second, he makes 4.65 million and 2000. We don't have complete data, but I think as of May, when this stuff is from, he had made uh, over 2.3 million. And the contract, so he signs the new deal on July 1st, uh, year one, two and a half million, year two, two, two and a half million, year three, two and a half million, you're four, three and a half million, no termination cycles, 175 max dates, see contract for pay-per-view bonus, no signing bonus, but uh, there's got to be something else to this if he made over 4.6 million in payroll and um, he was guaranteed two and a half. So I'm, I guess that's all pay-per-view bonuses then. And Sounds like it. Interesting then also, he is... He, for his big contract, is being paid his pay-per-view money under actual payroll. Hogan is not. Huh. Hogan's is on the Turnover Entertainment books, as far as we know. Mm. Very but, interesting. But yet he... It's an argument that, for certain people, the WWE style of compensation 
historically it's changed now with the bidding wars and the higher downside guarantees. But like for someone like Goldberg and granted, he's the he's a huge exception that he became such a huge star so quickly. But for someone in his position, he would have been, if he was the same person with the same success in the WWF at that moment, he wouldn't have needed to ask for a new contract. No. Which is interesting. Like, I think, especially in modern wrestling, the straight guarantee plus royalties is probably the best way to go. But yeah, he, you know, he was in a position where he was making much less than he should have given his push. So, you know, good on him for holding out and getting them to make a deal because he deserved it. Yeah. Yeah. All right. So Kevin Nash was on tonight's show on May 14th and did well for himself, although his storyline made little sense. He talked about Goldberg issuing the challenge to Austin for $100,000 and said they knew all along that Austin wouldn't accept. The original idea was for Goldberg to go on the show and challenge Brett on May the 12th, as mentioned in The Observer last week. But Goldberg's banged up a little and probably more important at odds over wanting his deal renegotiated. He also missed a Hollywood Squares taping, and DDP took his place. It was moved to May 14th, and Nash ended up replacing Goldberg. They showed the clip of Brett attacking Goldberg, and Nash called Brett high-maintenance and a whiner who doesn't want to work for our federation. So he challenged it to the match at the Tonight Show. He also had this story how he got the name Big Sexy, sort of crediting it to a conversation with his wife. So Dave guess he liked the way Austin came off, and he credited his gimmick to his ex-wife. Dave said he guessed that sounds a lot better than Terry Taylor taking a name from a young Canadian wrestler who came up with it and gave it to him instead. <laughs> yeah, and also, yes, Terry Taylor and Scott Demore have been friends that long that Terry Taylor would be up to date with Ontario indie wrestlers and know who that was. Yeah. Wow. So on May 17th, Jay Leno was running down Bret Hart to prepare the audience for uh, Bret's appearance as a run-in for the audience to set the challenge on May 18th for a May 24th match. An appearance was also uploaded on Nitro the previous night. But that would be built up on Nitro next week and take place in a wrestling ring set up in the parking lot tonight show in Burbank. Nash never explained why he was making the challenge and why Goldberg wasn't there, but Nash offered $250,000 if Bret could beat him. Jay Leno was laughing all the way through this to make sure nobody took any of this seriously. It left especially hard at the idea that Goldberg was actually injured. When Leno brought up Nash bringing the $250,000 in cash for the match, Nash balked and said, he's bringing a cashier's check, which made Nash look bad. Well, but no, but, but that's, that's Dave not knowing what a cashier's check is then, because a cashier's it's, check it's is pretty also, much as good as cash. And it's also Kevin Nash. So I could see him saying that as a joke, too, in a way. But, also, but Dave's still wrong. David thinks a cashier's check is like a personal check. <laughs> I know that. In reality, Goldberg's leg was bruised but not broken. He's scheduled to go off to scrap at knee surgery anyway on May 25th, but made the one more angle before then. And then hopefully he'll be back for Bash at the Beach on July 11th for Lauderdale, which would be against Brett, since Brett should be okay by then as well. But that's because you're only 50 50 at best at this point. It may have to be pushed back until August. Well, none of it happens. With Goldberg out, they're going to give monster pushes to Nash and Savage as two big stars to try to get Nash over strong as the leading babyface to be possibly something with Hogan, who would come back as a heel. Wrong. There was a full-page ad in USA Today on May 17th, larger photo of Nash, described even internally as an embarrassment, as it didn't even have the starting time for Nitro listed. W.C. everybody. 
WCW with two weeks of lead time and trailer battling the ratings didn't even build up one match for Nitro, while WF built up two mainline singles matches for Raw and Heat the previous night. They're now also planning the World War III pay-per-view to be in Toronto. The original November 1st house show was canceled and moved to a pay-per-view date. Well, there's no World War III in 1990. It's mayhem. It's mayhem. With Hogan as a heel against Brett. Although any plans two weeks in advance, let alone months in advance, are all speculative at best. Eric Bischoff told some of the wrestlers on May 17th for Nitro they had to focus on the company around 10 wrestlers who weren't named. For it to be Hogan, Page, Savage, Flair, Nash, Halstein, Brett, Piper, and Goldberg. All but Goldberg being past 40. Everyone else had to wait for their push. This is diametrically different from what just about everyone following the situation believes is a way to cure problems if such a cure exists. Bischoff, and it goes by Nitro, which I, I forgot to take out of here. But anyway, we talked about that before. But um, it's believed that Bischoff uh, talked with Hogan, who brought him to the conclusion that the guys are the money players and nobody else can draw money, meaning the older guys. At this point, only a few of those 10 could still mean much because they've all had their knees clipped so many times. Bischoff apparently told one of the second group of wrestlers, the guys who need to be pushed for the future but never are, if not more, than they try, try to push younger guys. But ratings have fallen and it didn't work. Everyone's trying to figure out when the period was when they tried to push the younger guys. Besides, if they did try to push younger guys now, it would fail miserably in the sh- for the short run because they've been buried for so long. But the idea is to have the patience to get them over, and the lack of patience and worrying about Tuesdays now is the downfall, and the guarantee that things won't change substantially in the foreseeable future. They do all this shit on tonight's show, and it leads to nothing. In fairness, for a good reason. Yeah, but Be- still, nothing. It, it's, you know, it's because... But it's it's all for nothing because I want heart dies though. I mean it's not it's not WCW's fault. Yeah, but do you think it would have come off even though that doesn't happen? I mean, the the match was going to be that Monday. It was going to be the twenty fourth. I know, but still, I mean, knowing how everything is <laughs> with WCW, Brett was in the air something on the way to happened. LA when he got the news. I know, but something would have happened. You don't had, think they would have gotten as big a coup as an actual match on The Tonight Show? You just think it's impossible? Because it's WCW. <laughs> <laughs> something would have happened. I I don't buy that. It probably would have rained or some shit like that. They could have done it outside. <laughs> yeah, there is that, that it was supposed to be outside, but... Something would have happened, because WCW can't have nice things because they're WCW. I guess. But still, I mean, it's still major promotion for them to have this exposure on fucking NBC. Yes. You know, on the Tonight Show. Yeah, and also I do think it's interesting that Goldberg clearly scheduled his surgery based on thinking he was working the Tonight Show. Mm-hmm. And again, Goldberg and Brett had that hot angle in Toronto. Nothing happened. Until later in the year when... Everything with the shit. Yeah. Nineteen ninety nine was such a curse year for WCW, man. God almighty. Oh, I mean, what you know. God. Mentioning the, you know, Savage Nash feud, you know, the with like the literal poop angles. Uh it, it's an interesting question for you, Kai. I mean, you're you're, you know, at the time a youngster. I mean, WF was seen. I mean, as the hot end thing, and WCW was kind of fading out. I mean, what were your thoughts on it at the time? I was probably checked out of WCW already at this point in time. 
especially considering like the rock Austin feud was so fire hot in 99. And that, that was what I really liked as a kid. So I was checked out completely at that point. It's crazy because I mean, WCW had just had their greatest year ever in business wise the year earlier. I mean, it's just crazy. Not just their greatest year ever. The great, the biggest grossing wrestling company in history up to that point. Yeah. Insane. And the kids did not care. Yeah. Well, I mean, all about same old, same old. You know, I mean, I think, I think that, you know, everything changed it, it, you know, when the Wolfpack reformed with the NWO. Yes. Because the Wolfpack was over with kids. I used to see those red yeah. Wolfpack shirts and shit like that. And then they put them back together with Hogan, and they're not cool anymore because they're back with Hogan. Well, yeah. and Hogan, doing it the Hogan same night as the – start being cool because he starts wearing his, he starts wearing his uh, like jabos and stuff like that. <laughs> he starts looking like cool Hulk Hogan, you know, yeah. like he's trying to go to Limp Biscuit concert, yeah, you know. Too. We're not into it. <laughs> yeah. And to do the finger poke thing on the night of the Foley title win, too, I think, like, even though we talk about the line, Bischoff feeds Tony, and how that, you know, leads to the Raw doing even big, bigger ratings and stuff, but that, on top of the fact that you're doing this terrible angle, and it's this soul-crushing heel turn, and blah, 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 like, you're also doing it on the night where it's like the biggest possible contrast with the positives that the other companies bring to the table, which you yep. know because the other show is taped. Yep. Yeah. All right. Well, uh, let's talk about some other stuff. Scott Steiner had back surgery this past week and won't be able to wrestle for a while, although he was at Nitro in Rick's corner. But if you notice, he went out with a shirt on. Ortiz also injured, so Day gets the Phantom Angle on Nitro where he challenged Rick Steiner to a match and never came out for his match. will be a storyline explanation of it. That's not really an explanation of anything, though. <laughs> but in more good news, they're going to start doing Piper's Pit on Nitro. They don't start doing Piper's Pit. <laughs> no, but Kyle was telling me off the air that uh, one of her favorite matches that that she that she likes is uh, Ric Flair and Ronnie Piper from the Great American Bash from 99. That match is really good, though. See? <laughs> I didn't say it wasn't. <laughs> they chopped the shit incredible. out of each other. Yeah. Study on maximizing. Yeah, but yeah, it, it, it'd be interesting if they would have got Piper's Pit on Nitro to see how it would have went yes. in 1999 with Piper. But he was kind of unpredictable. But yeah, seriously, that is probably Piper's last really good singles match. Because I, I don't think I saw it until like a late worldwide where they did it as the flashback match. You know, oh. when they were doing that later on, I was like, holy shit, they are just beating the I hell out of each other. School, and I got to pick the match to watch. That was the match I picked. <laughs> Amazing. You can imagine how this went over in a room full of people who are very serious about wrestling. But, <laughs> <laughs> Uh, yeah, the comment was basically uh, what Bix said. It was a solid match, you know, and maximizing, you know, taking your secret, your secret sauce, your bread and butter and, and getting the most out of it. It's Flair and Piper. I mean, they know how to work a crowd. They know how to get the, the most, uh, the least. And yeah, exactly. So plus they've I mean, been good stuff. friends forever by this point, too. Yeah. Oh, well, yeah. 
yeah, yeah. I mean, I, to be fair, I had also thrown out some some other matches that were way better that I really enjoy. Like, I love the, you know, Dean Malenko, Eddie Guerrero, two out of three falls match from ECW TV in August of 95, and we watched that as well. But I was like, at that point, I just needed some entertainment. Yes, you, you need a palate cleanser. Yeah, it was it was good, and it was different. We hadn't watched anything like that just yet, so. Exactly. It needed variety. Absolutely. Variety Gold. is the life. Absolutely. Goldberg was on radio in Atlanta and said that Flair was as old as his father and needed to retire, and that Hogan, Savage, and Piper needed to step aside as well, which appears to show his frustration is no different than anyone else's. They, kind of curious which show he was on in Atlanta, because mm-hmm. I don't I don't remember any Goldberg radio appearances at this time. May have been on probably a sports radio or something like that. Lee's Mark Jr. broke his ankle on May 12th in Springfield, Missouri. I think that's the end of him in WCW, isn't it? Pretty much, yeah. All right, house shows for the week on May 11th. The TV tape, Saturday Night Tapings in Cape Girardeau, Missouri, drew 3486, paying 67443. Springfield drew a set of 2965, paying 72837. Thunder in Wichita. The tape, they taped Thunder during our week, but it was for the show the next week. Uh, drew 6306, paying 133. 133- 006. Des Moines on May 14th drew 6876, paying 144.61. Omaha on May 15th drew a solid 6685, paying 134,941. And Sioux City on May 16th drew 3651, paying 78,390. Springfield was headlined by a three way with Sting over DDP and Flair, with Booker T over Brian Adams in the semi main event. Des Moines, Omaha, and Sioux City reported as good shows, were headlined by Sting over Flair. And Ray and Kidman over Malenko and Benoit. We don't have complete merchandise figures for the week, but based on what we do have, it was going at $6.74 per head. All right, Torch has some results. Springfield on May 12th. We have Vampiro over Lash LaRue. Hugh Morris over Jerry Flynn. Silver King and La Parca over Lismar Jr. and Supercolo. Chavo Guerrero over Humatu Guerrero. Conan over Disco Inferno. Sting over Flair. And DDP in the three-way main event. And then Booker T over Brian Adams. Now, Wichita was Thunder taping. Which we talked about the Thunder on the show. But we got the taping results. Hack over Mike Enos in a hardcore match. Ernest Miller over Super Galo. Vampiro over Silver King. Conan over Hugh Morris. Laparco over El Dandy. Rick Steiner over Scott Putsky. Kimmon over Hoovy. Ray Mysterio Jr. over Kasayashi. Raven and Saturn over Vince and Horace to retain the tag titles. David Flair over Barry Horowitz. Kurt Henning went to a no contest with Disco when Savage interfered. And Savage went to a double DQ with wrestling Twitter's Buff Backwell. <laughs> this I'm, ain't thunder right here, folks. Look at he, these results. Yes, oh I'm, my God. I'm sure Rick Steiner sold plenty for Scott Putsky. <laughs> I'm sure he did not use we, the word sawed off once. I think we played that match on the show. I, that sounds right, <laughs> yes. Yeah, so, but good Lord, what a thunder that is. So, uh, May 15th in Omaha at the Carbon Coliseum. So, we have a Springfield and a Carbon, uh, the inanimate Carbon Rod here, uh, uh, Coliseum. We have Hugh Morris over Jerry Flynn in the opener. A lot of crowd heat for Flynn. Okay. La Parca and Super King over El Dandy and Super Colo. Gentleman Chris Adams beat Vampiro. Adams worked the match as a heel and had okay heat and okay heat and spots. Raven over Hack in a very weak hardcore match. Ray and Kidman beat Benoit Malenko in the best match of the night. 
Solid heat with the crowd really behind Ray. Sting over Flair. Very good match. Sting was really over the crowd. He told him he was born in Omaha, and his grandparents were in attendance. A very good house show. Results sent in by Bruce Grumbert. Oh, I'm sure because it's a WCW show, he did not make a scene. <laughs> no. No, he was uh, well-received there at that yes. show. <laughs> but, you know, these business figures and stuff, though, it really shows. And I'm kind of curious what Kaya thinks of this as having lived in that part of the country, you know, while training and stuff. You know, it goes to something to bring up sometimes that, like, WCW had these wrestling markets that were mainly like Nitro era WCW markets that they really built up well. And it doesn't feel like there's as much of an effort, at least on a like major promotion scale, to really cultivate that anymore. So like how big is the indie scene locally in that like in Iowa and stuff right now, besides Merrick's promotion, I guess? Um Okay, so yes, there is SCW Pro, which is Merrick. And I guess, gosh, that's been around since the early 2000s, I want to say. So like coming up on this time period, it's it's been around for a hot minute. It's changed hands a few times. But let's see, there's, there's Zawa Wrestling. That's a smaller indie that runs in that area. I'm not actually super familiar. Most of us travel more to Illinois, Chicagoland area to work independence there. Or we'll work Minnesota, we'll work like Higher Ground, First Wrestling, that whole group up that way. There's a promotion in Nebraska, Next Level Pro, that runs in like Omaha. I'm trying to think of what else runs. And then obviously like the Missouri, so you know, like your Journey Pro, your Glory Pro, all of that stuff. Um, but yeah, it's it's like Iowa itself. There's not a whole lot going on in iowa proper these days i know iwa ran rock island for a hot minute in the early 2000s but that's not a thing anymore it's very it's not there's not a lot there's really not a lot most of the time you're making your trek to chicagoland indiana yeah it's funny because the quad you mean the quad cities used to be wcw one of their some of their best stuff with best number of attendances and everything was in the quad. Oh, the, the crowds it. at Mark of the Quad for those nitros were always super hot. Davenport, Moline, you know, Des Moines, all the, I mean, Cedar Rapids, you know, all yeah. those towns, everything. They were hot WCW towns. Yeah, no, 100%. It's just nowadays, I mean, I feel like it's okay. So hop in the car, two hours, you're in Chicago. It's yeah. Like, on, you know, like, why, why eat sirloin? <laughs> it's, exactly. Yeah. All right, stand with a torch, and pretty much stand with a torch for a minute here. Several top WCW wrestlers have said they won't sell for Ric Flair because Flair has become such a comedy act in the ring. It would kill their credibility to do anything but dominate offense against him. Who are these marks? I'm going <laughs> to guess that this is a Kevin Nash conversation with Wade Keller. Yeah, it sounds like a bunch of marks to me. Uh, on WCW Live, Kurt Henning said he was disappointed to turn out for Rip Root's funeral. He said Rude's death was a lifestyle wake-up call for him and other wrestlers. Unfortunately, it was not. Sadly, it was not, yeah. Steven Michaels, MIA. Ex-wife Deborah had to file for a deadline extension for their ta- for her taxes while waiting to hear from him since they were married for part of 1998. As the last word, her accountant hadn't heard back from him in weeks. WCW manager's attitudes apparently the longer he stays away, the better, since he almost always brought his personal problems with him at WCW events. 
that is when he actually showed up. And the guy was going through some shit. What can you say? Uh. Brian Noms has a ref for being stiff with his offense, but not selling or taking bumps for others. Hmm. Really? Gee. Gee. WCW has not reneged on his termination notice from David Boy Smith, but they have continued to pay him anyway. He's able to leave his house and his body cast. He wants Russell <laughs> okay. WF if he recovers enough to return to the ring. Well, he does. So, okay. The claim has always been that he actually signed before Owen died, right? That has been claimed, but I don't think it's true. Because here we're seeing this and we're like a week out. Yeah. Exactly. And because I got to think also, he has a termination notice, but um, he's still getting paid. So I got to think they might be a little skittish until they figure that out. Um, McMichael, by the way, he is terminated on May 28th. There you go. Not too much longer. Nope. So, yeah. Contrary to current internet rumors, several sources at WCW said there's no interest in bringing in Tammy Citra, Chris Candido. And it was right for a while there. When the Chastity porn movie story gained mainstream attention, she was asked if there was any other footage of her in porn movies. She said no. So WCW decided not to hold that against her. Had she been in many porn movies, or had she been in another part coming out soon, her job might have been in jeopardy. But Bagwell's been in softcore movies, so WCW didn't want to be inconsistent and be accused of a double standard. You know, it's look, it's not the same thing, but that is shockingly modern and progressive for 1999 pro wrestling. It is, because, I mean, that was a big thing when that, when that stuff came out online. I mean, all your wrestling news sites and, you know, all this other stuff, people were trying to find out where they could get the get the video or get pictures of it got like the gorgeous george thing you know that would come up as well the masturbation video i mean that was that was stuff that everybody was looking for back then you know in that era yeah it was but you know good who whether it's bischoff or whoever like good on them for handling it well yeah because the george thing i mean they didn't hold that against her either yes so wasn't the, yeah, that the, that I think was well that was also hacked wasn't it wasn't that I think it was I think it, it was something there was it was not it something was, she intended to get out there no 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 it was a private thing yes which that's got to be one of the first times that kind of thing happened too just period yeah yeah and then we close out with this the famous rapper Master P wants to get involved with pro wrestling without WCW or WWF. Well, I mean, we know the story now. He specifically was going to go to WCW because it all came from him watching Nitro or Thunder with Swole and seeing Conan do Bout It, Bout It and Rowdy, whatever it is, Bout It, Bout It and Rowdy, Rowdy or whatever. Bout It, Bout It, Rowdy, Rowdy, yeah. Yeah. Um, and, you know, it's in the Nitro book, the whole story. Swole had worked a few New Japan shows as a boxer doing different style fights. So when this happened, he called Brad, Brad Ringens, who had trained him. Brad Ringens hooked him up with WCW, and they made their deal. Master P. He was a big deal in 1999, man. I mean, it, I mean, that's the thing that people don't remember that, you know, maybe weren't, you know, as old back then. But, God, I mean, he was huge. Huge star and, and, and a huge star in wrestling, but it didn't gain any traction because he wasn't around that much and that long. 
and they spent a lot of money that probably more than they should have on the whole thing plus he didn't seem like he was particularly committed it seemed like he was just trying to make money and do what his friends wanted to do and then it all went south when some of those friends pulled guns on eric bischoff yeah <laughs> yeah <laughs> amazing Oh, the misogyny i thought i told you all right well that is it for this week's show kyle we had a Awesome time having you on. We thank you for being with us. So it is now time for you to plug what you got going on in your world right now. Oh, man. The only thing I have going on in my world right now is a lot of uh, gym and CrossFit and physical therapy trying to get this shoulder back to a place where I can wrestle again. Um, Which when I say that, things are going very, very well. It's just obviously a very slow process recovering from massive shoulder surgery. So that's all I've been up to. Um, you can follow me on social media. My handle is at Kaya M C K K A I A M C K, and that's Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, TikTok, Patreon. It's all the same handle. So please follow my journey back to the ring there. I update it all the time. You can reach out to me on those platforms. I try to engage with as many people as reasonably possible. But I'm not really getting out to too many shows. I mean, obviously, I do some ring crew for GCW here and there. But the focus for me right now is just getting back to where I need to be in the ring. Yes, absolutely. You're starting to you know, get a lot of momentum there. And uh, these type of setbacks can happen. So let's all hope for the best and come back better than ever and kick some ass. Well, yeah, that's the thing. You know, at first it was a little bit discouraging to obviously experience such a massive setback when I had so much momentum going on. But as far as coming back, it's okay. I have to have this time off for my body to heal. So how can I make the most out of that time? Like, where can I improve? What can I do better when I come back? Like, okay, I've been gifted time to train in the ring a little bit before I make a comeback. So where do I want to clean stuff up and how do I want to do things different? So You know, you can look at it as like being this horrible thing that happened to you and it's terrible. Or you can look at it as I'm getting something taken care of that was giving me issues for a while and I'm going to come back better and stronger. And I've been gifted time to improve that other people don't get. So I'm trying to just keep it in a good, like reframe it in a way that is very positive and very nurturing for me. Absolutely. Take advantage of it, you know take advantage of a, a possible bad situation and make it a good situation that's the way to do it yes that's the way to do it all right next week on between the sheets go back to 1995 and a short week show only a five-day week but we're filling in the gaps baby all right in the world wrestling federation we got news on uh Diesel and his elbow injury on the Eastern Canadian swing, which features a uh, the show promoted by Joanne Rougeau in Montreal, which we'll talk about that, as well as Shawn Michaels' return to television after WrestleMania, oh, after the Raw after WrestleMania, as a babyface against King Kong Bundy, kicking off my favorite era, Shawn Michaels. So we'll talk about that and everything else going on on Monday Night Raw during that uh, during that show. The fabulous Freebirds, Michael Hayes and Jimmy Garvin, reunite in the AWF. We'll talk about that. We we got clips from Memphis, including Downtown Bruno reviving the Downtown Connection. And he's got an interesting angle of Miss Texas on TV. We'll talk about that. 
We got two big shows of Smoky Mountain Wrestling, Charlotte Memories and the Volunteer Slam. And both shows definitely have interesting uh, stories involving the attendance and the reception of those shows. So we'll have news on that. In Extreme Championship Wrestling, we'll have some house shows, including one at the Flagstaff and Jim Thorpe, as well as some, uh, some TV stuff, including the debut of Bill Alfonso. So we'll have that there and other random assorted indie stuff. Then we'll have Japan, where we got uh, a, a couple of indie promotions mix we've never talked about before in Between the Sheets. Hard to believe in Japan we still have that, but we do. We got All Japan opened up a new tour, and New Japan clarifies what's the situation in the match with Great Mood and Paul Orndorff at Slamboree. Oh, and Slamboree, you might ask? World Championship Wrestling. Slamboree 95. So we'll have news on that, backstage news, in from the camera news, all kinds of stuff going on there. We got WCW Saturday Night before the show. We got an update on uh, Gordon Soley and why he wasn't a slamboree. What former uh, very popular NFL star was seen at TBS Sports, Talk about baby talking to WCW, and which WCW employee buried him on the hotline. And Ric Flair and Vader face a mysterious mass team on Worldwide named Dos Amigos. All that more next week on Between the Sheets. And no guest at the moment, but I'm efforting. So there's that. Well, we do also all want to start all... recording the Patreon show. But... <laughs> yeah, but I do, I, do have a, I do have an invitation out. So we'll see what happens. All right. Well, that's next week. This is this show. Kaya, of course, thank you yet again for being on with us, and we would love to have you back on in the future. Bix, thank you as always. You're the rock of the show. And this is Chris saying so long from the Peace State of Georgia.
Hello, everyone, and welcome to Between the Sheets Patreon Special Edition number 67. I'm your host, Chris Zellner, joined as always by my co-host, David Bix and Span. And Bix, it's time to tackle Titan Gate 1992. And as we said in the build-up to all this, this is definitely going to be more than one show. There's no set limit on how many shows we're going to do on this. But we know it's going to definitely be more than one, <laughs> and maybe more than two, before it's all said and done. So uh, the time has come, and uh, yeah, it's going to be a lot of interesting to talk about on this show, isn't there? Yeah, and we know our goal is that the series will go through basically the Ultimate Warrior and British Bulldog firings. We're just not sure exactly how long that will take, pretty much. Yeah, well, there's going to be enough here, believe me, to... Uh, Make up for a, a lot of interesting audio that I don't think anybody's going to be upset. <laughs> so. As far as that, no. Um, and like we noted when we were setting all this up, you know, on the main shows, this is the whole set of Titan Gate scandals in 92 that we're covering. We're covering mm-hmm. how the drug and steroid scandals take further shape in 92, on top of the Ring Boy scandal and Murray Hodgson and all that other stuff, and... I guess we'll give the disclaimer up front. I mean, it starts off with more drug stuff, but takes a turn quickly. If you do not want to hear about the sexual harassment or abuse scandals, this is probably not a series you're going to want to listen to. Well, that's why. I mean, if you're listening to this, you know what you're getting into. Yes. You know, I, I know, I know why you want to give a disclaimer, but if you're listening to this show. Well, it'll be clear in the description, too, yes. You know what you're getting into. Extra from Wade Keller's A Few Met Clarifications feature in The Torch. Fire on the spot is what Vince said would happen if there was evidence of an employee involved in perpetrating sexual harassment. Phil Mushnick said on KFAN Radio in Minneapolis Monday night, two weeks ago, my man told me he fully suspected Mel Phillips years ago. He fired him four years ago because he felt he was spending too much time around kids. He hired him back out of sympathy in his heart. Then Friday, when Mel Phillips' name was brought up, he had to let the guy was a stranger. So that's Monday afternoon. Monday night into Tuesday, Phil's writing his column for Wednesday, which gets the front page of the sports section in the post. So here we go. Sex lies in the WF. WF's defense, just more lies by Phil Mustney for the New York Post. In a world where scandal within legitimate ranks has become an everyday reality, there are many who respond to the staggering tales being reported by men who once served the World Wrestling Federation as tales that are both easily explained and dismissed. After all, we're told pro wrestling is simply a rogue industry behaving as a rogue industry. And that's exactly the mindset WF owner Vincent Mann's banking on. And that's exactly what it's empowered the WF to do to people, children and adults, exactly as it wishes when it wishes, and all, all, as often as it wishes. The WF is power drunk in the knowledge that its autonomy fully enables it to violate every standard of human decency because right-headed humans possess neither the time nor inclination to do anything about any industry they've always viewed with bemused disregard. Hmm. Never will you encounter a human more cold-blooded, more devoid of honor and provided than Vincent Man, America's foremost TV babysitter. In your wildest, most twisted dreams, you won't meet up with a licensed man, a miscreant so practiced in the art of deception, the half-truth and the bald-faced lie, as to make the artful Dodger appear clumsy. A George Steinbrenner or a Don King pale in comparison. So help us. 
Indeed. Annabelle Lecter is the only fictional character who comes close. Ding, 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 ding. So, as we've discussed before, and I'm sure we'll discuss again, holy shit did this stick in Vince McMahon's craw for decades. Yeah. (laughs) That, That Hannibal Lecter line specifically. It comes up in every lawsuit. It mysteriously comes up in Russo's first issue after having taken over the Pro Wrestling Spotlight newsletter completely from... In his split from Arezzi, he brings it up. Every time they talk about Mushnick, it comes up. In the 50, friggin' 50th anniversary WWF book from uh, almost a decade ago, in the section about the steroid trial and stuff, they bring it up. It's constantly brought up throughout all the Mushnick litigation and stuff. It, it, it Something about being compared to a fictional cannibal serial killer enraged Vince to a ridiculous degree. (laughs) Now, it is a bit of an exaggeration, especially since we don't know about Vince. We haven't heard about any of the Vince allegations yet. But, like... It, it, that and, is a bit and much. that's the thing with people reading this too, Bix. Is they read that and they're like, oh, come on. You know? Now, <laughs> I don't think he necessarily means Vince McMahon eats people. No, I, but I, the I think, Well, that's the thing, and I think this is where it could just be better written. If your point is to say that there is no better fictional presentation of a sociopath or whatever than Hannibal Lecter, and that you're saying Vince McMahon is a sociopath and that's your point— there are a zillion better ways to say that. Exactly. Comparing comparing him to Hannibal Lecter, which you know, Silence of the Lambs is very, very big at this time. I mean, it, it actually, best. when would the act? When would the Oscars have been, or would they have happened? Maybe a month earlier, in March. Well, we're in. No, March. it was the same month. We're in March. So it's March. Okay, the Oscars aren't until aren't until two weeks later on the thirtieth. So it's it's a nominated very topical yes yes. very topical movie to talk about and hannibal lecter is you know the how he's portraying that movie and everything i mean you could you could make your comparison better without making it come off as a cartoony comparison like he does here yes and and, and, and people people read that and they're like "Uh oh look at this guy you know all of that said, both in general and under the circumstances, it's still completely ridiculous how much this bothered and stuck with Vince for so long. Well, Vince, Vince is Vince. What can you say? Yeah. All right. Um, after nine months of examining this man's ways and means, let's pick it up Friday night with my man spin control appearance on Larry King's CNN show. Following the conviction in, in June of Dr. Joe Zaharian, who for illegally dispensed steroids and other drugs to WWF stars, including Hulk Hogan, Ex-wrestlers, ex-ring announcers, and ex-ring boys have been crawling out of the woodwork to report on the record years of blatant sexual abuse, sexual harassment, pedophilia, and drug abuse engaged in and perpetrated by WF executives, stars, and administrators. So on Friday night, my man appeared on CNN in full knowledge of this steady stream of charges and fully expecting a lawsuit from a 21-year-old named Tom Cole whose corroborated claim is that he was sexually molested and harassed by WF execs and front office workers while serving WF as an underage ring-assisted gopher. McMahon met the accusations with 30 minutes' worth of indignation and unblinking lies. Mel Phillips, WF TV ring announcer, road boss named by Cole, and another youngster is the man who had recruited them and sexually abused them. Mel Phillips has never been an employee at WWF. McMahon told King what a strider resolve to this day. 
never been an employee. He's used as an occasional laborer. You know, on the occasions when WF is in business, Phillips is well known to the wrestling world as a WF regular for 10 years or more. Monday on the Phil Donahue show, seen among seven of WF's accusers, McMahon amended Phillips' history. Phillips said McMahon is not technically an employee, although he worked with us every day. Oh. McMahon also told King's National Audience that he had no idea whatsoever about any sexual misconduct by employees, not even a hint. Yet two weeks ago, during his poor, his hard out phone calls, he told West Coast-based journalist Dave Meltzer, then me, that he had let Phyllis go four years ago because Phyllis' relationship with kids seemed peculiar and unnatural. McMahon said he rehired Phyllis with the caveat that Phyllis steered clear from kids. McMahon also said that no charges of sexual harassment had ever been before been level. Baloney. As far back as 1976, Jim Wilson, a former NFL lineman accused of National Wrestling Alliance, exec from, of blackballing him from the business after refusing the excess sexual advances. The WF was a member of the NWA at the time, and Wilson's story and fate is well known in the wrestling industry. Oh, okay. So... I, I I was gonna say I, I Vince is clearly talking about the WWF, so it's kind yeah. of bullshit to bring up Wilson. But Vince would know. Vince would know about it. So I kind of get what he's going at. They were a member of the NWA. The NWA itself did get sued. I, I kinda get what he's going with here. I just well, don't know if I would have used that example to make that specific point. What much where Mushnet went wrong in all this to further illustrate his point, he should have said McMahon hired this same executive six years later. Yes. <laughs> that's that's where he should have, you know, put that in there to to add uh, gravitas to you know, this whole thing with this this line of uh, you know conversation he's having here. Yes. Now he that's hired it. Jim Barnett. That said, we've already talked about. I don't want to belabor too much. I get that Dave and the others are in a whirlwind of insanity at this time, and it's a complicated story to explain later. Regardless of what you think of how seriously the story is being taken, and that it should have been covered better, actually should have, it is still completely fucking insane that the part about what Vince told Phil and Dave just does not stick to this story at all. It's bizarre because, look, at this point, the main story is what Vince did or didn't know. That goes right to the heart of it. Why? Phil brings it up a couple more times in columns later in 92. Dave pretty much never brings it up again. Wade pretty much never brings it up again after this week. Even in the history pieces Dave does years later, this never comes up. And, you know, I asked him about it once, and he kind of agreed with my theory. It was just, there was so much going on. Like, he absolutely agreed with me when I asked Dave about it. He said, yeah, obviously it looks ridiculous now that this didn't really stick to the story. But just in the context of the time, just there was so much going on that it somehow slipped through the cracks to really reiterate it. Which, again, is insane. And the other insane part, outside of the questions in Phil Mushnick's deposition about this, as far as I can tell, and those questions are actually the most civil that McDevitt is in that whole deposition, WWF has never addressed or refuted, even 
excuse me, refuted or even addressed period this once. Their strategy, it appears, became ignore it. Pretend it never happened. If it comes up, do not say anything. As stupid as that sounds and as improbable as it was, holy shit, did that work? Yeah. Anyway, we still got a lot, so let's keep going. In 1985, Wilson repeated his charge on ABC's 2020. McMahon, dripping with sincerity, told King he had begun an internal investigation of all the charges. But later he said all the charges were a bunch of bunk. That's some way to begin the investigation. Yeah. McMahon also said that while he accepted resignations of his right-hand man, Pat Patterson, and his assistant, Terry Garvin, ex-wrestlers and WF execs publicly charged by at least 10 people as having made sexual advances on wrestlers, as having engaged in casting couch employment practices, McMahon had the colossal gall to suggest that these execs were victims of America's creeping homophobia. Real quick, before we get to Phil's rebuttal of that, this phrasing of charged, even though in context it's very clearly just made an allegation, McDevitt really tries to seize on that in the lawsuit against Phil and his deposition. Oh, they were yeah. charged? Which... I kind of get as a legal strategy, but in context, it's very obvious what he means. Yeah. Good God. Is there anyone with a more complete track record of teaching kids to hate homosexuals than McMahon? All his employees who have accepted ring roles as effeminate wrestlers have been positioned by McMahon as the villains. Hate has always been a big kitty cell of McMahon's and hatred for homosexuals has been a steady angle pitched to children. In recent tag matches, the Bushwhackers have wrestled the effeminate Beverly Brothers. Each time the Bushwhackers encouraged the kids in the honest to chant faggots, quote-unquote, at the Beverly's, this scene, Mom and Dad, has appeared on WS nationally televised shows. No, it hasn't. That one hasn't. No, and <laughs> Phil Mushnick, uh, again, I mean, that's wrestling, brother. <laughs> but, 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 it is a fair point to be like, oh... Oh, you're saying this is all about homophobia, Vince? Like, oh, oh, who's responsible for more homophobia than you? Like, I get his—it's a fair point, though. Yeah, but he's far from the only one that has done it. Oh, and, of course. You know? I mean, the the Beverly's Bushwhackers thing was kind of a weird, unique kind of egregious, though, because outside of, like, of that— on those house shows, like, other than the fact that they wore purple and were managed by the genius, there was never any hint that they were supposed nope. to be effeminate or, or quote-unquote gay or whatever. They were brothers! <laughs> that would be saying that it would be incest. Well, if it was with each other, yes. So, yeah, that one's a tough one. Um, anyway. But anyway. Um... <laughs> Finally, Friday, McMahon flatly denied he was attempting to reach a financial settlement with Cole, an effort to prevent him from filing suit. He said he's trying to reach him solely in an attempt to get to the bottom of the charges. Monday, McMahon appeared on the Donahue show with another altered story. He said a possibility existed these ugly charges were true, but then as the show wore on, he fought the charges with the same practice indignation and heart-clutching outrage seen Friday night. What wasn't immediately apparent Monday was that Donnie studio audience included Tom Cole. The kid and McMahon said on CNN Friday he was trying to meet with, but only to hear his charges and not to seek a financial settlement. Cole arrived at the show in the company of WF employees. Incredibly, Cole had reached an agreement with McMahon before Monday's Donnie show. The conditions of the Cole-McMahon agreement are that Cole will never again be confronted by Phillips, Garvin, or Patterson, 
that may man provide Cole with a multi-year contract to return his his position as a ring boy, a gopher with a long-term contract, and that Cole received two years back pay. And that's two years back pay for a teenage ring boy who used to make $100 a show, working no more than 30 shows a year. $70,000. Cole's attorney, Adam Allen Fuchsberg, 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 whatever, uh, said yesterday that the deal is not a payoff, but rather an agreement. Because Cole has returned to a job he once loved. Not a payoff, but an agreement. Semantic obfuscation. For 70000 plus, adding a highly paid ring boy to the payroll. The man gets away cheap if it means the preservation of his multi-billion dollar TV and toy empire. Certainly, my man bought himself out of what was promised to be a devastating lawsuit. They are still facing an unfair termination suit filed by former announcer Murray Hodgson, who claims he was fired after rejecting AWS execs' sexual advances. Fuchsberg said that McMahon, in an effort to save WF, will make a full and sincere admission that the sexual misconduct claims made by Cole are true. Oh, really? Uh, yeah, Fuchsberg later in the day sends a letter saying he never said that. Um, I'm not <laughs> sure how much I trust Fuchsberg, but I... I I don't know what I make of that, though, because whatever you think of Phil Mushnick, and there are a lot of negative things that you can say about him that are actually absolutely true, I don't think he'd make that up. So, I don't know. What do you make of that? I mean, I don't know. <laughs> um, I don't know what to make of it. Let me see real quick if I can find exactly what he said about that. Uh, I... Uh, I was misquote. Okay. Uh, at, okay. Uh, okay. First, at no time did Vince McMahon acknowledge having known of the sexual misconduct claims made by Cole. And I was misquoted by Mushnick as I did not say McMahon had offered to make an admission that the sexual misconduct claims made by Cole are true. Um, he doesn't. He doesn't say what he said though. That he says misquoted. But what could he have possibly said that could have been? Just quoted there. I have no idea. That's really weird, and to, and also it's made clear that the the seventy thousand dollars was basically supposed to be two years of back pay for if he had continued with the warehouse job that he had just started when he got fired, not the ring boy stuff. This is this is when he would have originally be, first become an actual Titan employee. But anyway. <laughs> Fuchsburg. Fuchsburg. Uh, which, boy, I, I could tell you a lot of stories that Lee Coles told me about him, but I don't know if we have the time. I mean, man, it gets away cheap if it means the preservation of his multi-billion dollar TV and toy empire. Certainly, McMahon bought himself out of what was promised to be a devastating lawsuit. WF still faces an unfair termination suit filed by former announcer Murray Hodgson, who claims he was fired after rejecting WF sexual advances, exact sexual advances. Fuxburg said that McMahon, uh, in an effort to say WF, will uh, make a full and sincere admission that since the sexual misconduct claims made by Cole are true, or that the sexual misconduct claims made by Cole are true. I already read this. Fuxburg said he saw the only final minutes of Don. Yeah, you, you doubled back further than you meant to. <laughs> yeah. It's a lot. He didn't know that McMahon, his agreement, he didn't know that McMahon, his agreement with Cole was already done, had the chance to come clean about Cole's claims. But instead, use the Donahue show to continue to try to discredit all the people who have come forward to support Cole's story. Hmm. And speaking of which, from the Torch cover story. 
Tom Cole and his older brother were with Basil DeVito backstage at the Donahue show Monday afternoon. DeVito, a vice president, refused to comment. We reached by Torch Weekly at his home Monday night. Chris Los, the other former Marine boy, went public with allegations has isolated himself from further media exposure. And basically just never appears or says anything in this context ever again. Um, Mike Sawyer, who was friends with him. And, you know, was doing his little leg drop newsletter at the time. Um, has said that all of a sudden, one day around this time, Chris Lewis had a very expensive new car. Funny how that worked out. Yeah, make of that what you'd like. Um, you know, we still have a lot to get through because there's a lot in the Torch and the Observer. Mainly the Observer. Um, but it'll probably go by quicker, at least. So as far as the calls, the way that Tom and, to an extent, Lee, who was not in the... No, excuse me, he was, like, nearby, but he wasn't able to, to see what was going on, and he was in the room because they kept him out of it. But based on what he's always said and what Tom had always said, Fuchsberg, whatever the hell was going on with him, kept... Taking breaks with the WWF lawyers and leaving Tom alone with the McMahons, or at least Vince, which I have no reason to doubt that story. And it sure makes you wonder what's going on with Felix Park, who was not the initial lawyer. The initial lawyer was Joseph Petura, who they just found in the yellow pages um, in, uh, in Utica. And they always said they regretted going away from him. Because he was the one who took those statements. He really seemed to know what he was doing. But, you know, we'll get more, we'll talk about now it can be told next time when Geraldo's producer got in touch with them and basically threatened to camp out on their lawn if they if Tom didn't agree to do an interview. Um, she ended up pushing on him that he needed a big city lawyer her boyfriend worked for a firm that had conflicts, so it couldn't be him. They directed him towards Fuchsburg, and this is what happened. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, well, and the other thing, though, is that Tom said basically he blurted out that it, you know, it wasn't about money. He just wanted to go back to work for WWF, which, you know, he would say later was the stupidest thing he ever said. It was not something that had even really been on his mind going back to work there. But he loved wrestling and et cetera. And yeah. So look, we're going to get a lot deeper into that as time goes on, especially once we get later in the spring and Lee and Tom have their split and Lee's going on all the radio shows. So we'll, we'll get to that then in part two or three or whatever. All right. Back to Dave. That's how Vince McMahon spent day one as the new and improved sincere Vince McMahon. Donahue staffers and panelists, including Bruno Sammartino, Meltzer and Hodgson. Why is Dave mentioning himself in that way? Uh, those who come forward to expose their from Donahue show were appalled to learn that one of the few people they had gone to bat for, Tom Cole, had not only been bought off by that man, but that the Dave had brought him to the show to flaunt him before the whistleblower's disbelieving eyes. Vintage McMahon. But the most disturbing about Monday's Donahue show was the look on me and the faces of the adults in the audience. They looked amused by it all, as if they were watching a cartoon show and listening to the testimony of make-believe men. A story of midget wrestlers being blackballed from the WF because one of their own, the karate kid, refused the sexual advances of a WF exec, led chuckle to chuckles from the audience. 
But this story been about the Orioles, the Packers, or Green Bay, uh, uh, Green Bay Packers, or General Electric, no one would be laughing. It would only be the lead story among every news entity in this land. A congressional hearing following a drop everything FBI investigation would ensue. While those accusers continue to surface on a virtual daily basis, this story must no longer be left to the media to expose. State and federal legislators must see it through. Federal law enforcement agencies must act. If the FBI can go after Howard Spira, that's a name from the past, it can go after the WF. But as long as the WF's real-life horrors are considered a laughing matter, no one's laughing louder than Vincent Mann. Talking about the, the people in the audience. I mean, again, that's what, it's wrestling. It's not serious to people, man. You know? But again, even then, though, like I said earlier, like the... The fact that that woman could sit – it's one thing to go into it with that. It's one thing to even be part of the way through the episode with that. To go through an hour of that and then ask, but isn't wrestling fixed anyway, is still a bit much. That – Bix, wrestling fans are so deep inside the bubble that they can't understand that people that – are not wrestling fans have... No, 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 I get that. But my point is, is that... The, my point is that woman who asked that question is not a serious person. You could say it, it... You could apply that to anything else. You could apply that... I mean, even just saying that it's wrestling, it's just that's... There are other people who ask stupid questions. There was the how many... What's the percentage of the homo, of homosexuals in the wrestling business guy? But it's still nowhere near as stupid and egregious as the question that closes the show but anyway again again it, again it doesn't i mean it is it, it, people's perception of wrestling that are not wrestling fans so i just realized i don't know how this happened the reason you were confused is that at some point when i was putting this together i maybe it was late maybe it was getting lost in the weeds i typed dave instead of phil that was the continuation <laughs> and the end of phil's column so well, there we go. And we weren't going to re-record that because we still got a lot to get through. But <sighs> look, by and large, he's in the right here. It's I don't understand why he doesn't. Because, I mean, again, the, the, the Phillips thing should have been the center of the article, and it's not. Um, That's what I mean, that's what really sticks with me here. And this article really, and not just the Hannibal Lecter thing, also becomes really the biggest sticking point in the whole thing as far as. The lawsuit, probably more than any other article. So, I I don't think there's that much you can take to task with it, though, right? Once you get past the Hannibal Lecter thing, you know, that that's the thing that sticks out. But that's uh, that's at the, at the beginning of the column, so you read that and you're like, well, it's also not okay. defamation, though. It's you know, it's it's some there's, you know, there's other things, but it's also Phil Mushnick too. It's also Phil Mushnick. That's his too, style. Who, and everybody and people knew that at the time, and that's why he's seen as more of entertainment. Yes, he's a columnist. Yeah, I mean you know, that's the thing as too. Entertainment. Very, there, there's like only one store, one or two stories here. And I, I think, oh, I forget if it's the one the day after the Savage column comes out, or the one where they're the first one where they talk about the potential lawsuit before it. There is one that is run as news where him and Mike Shane are given the Cobine line, but everything else is in Mushnick's column. And so that's the thing. If it had been run by the normal uh, news writers or whatever, and not by him as a columnist, it gets more traction. Yes. Now, this one's a little different because it was 
front page of the sports section, but... But still, it's a column. Yes. And it's Phil Mushnick. Yes. <laughs> if it had been done by one of the main sports writers, then I tell you, it's treated differently. Yes. Now, all of that said, Chris said they should have a drop-dead federal investigation. What do you see here that I included that uh, we have from the next day? Federal investigator Anthony Valenti of the U.S. Attorney for the District, uh, Eastern District of New York left a message for Mushnick. To hear this entire show, support Between the Sheets on Patreon for just $5 per month. Go to patreon.com slash between the sheets.